Welcome to the mop-up for, where are we today? It is the mop-up for September 22nd, 2022. It's autumn. Summer is over. The queen has been buried finally. It was beginning to smell. And it's been a busy week. We're going to talk a lot about the U.N. General Assembly, Attorney General Letitia James, Putin drafting 300,000 soldiers, and, uh, you know, they're going to go fight in Ukraine. A lot to talk about. A lot to talk about. Grace Jackson, who works our China desk. I love saying that. Grace Jackson, who works our China desk, will be joining us from Great Britain in about an hour to talk about this week's U.N. General Assembly meeting in New York and what it means for China, Taiwan and Russia. And then Royal Watcher, Royal Watcher and childhood friend of King Charles, Sir Arthur Grebe Striebling will join us from his estate on Ribbington Hall, which abuts Sandringham Palace, one of the king's Holmes, I, uh, he keeps a place. I think it's in Norfolk. I'm not sure. Sir Striebling will tell us how King Charles is faring after wrapping up his second week as King of England. And if memory serves, I'm going to ask Sir Griebling about this. I believe he dated Princess Anne. I, I think but we'll find out what Princess Anne was like in the gunny sack. Don't forget, Office Hours is this Friday night. We start at 8. I start the first 90 minutes, and then the community takes over with lectures, conversations, screenings of documentaries, and various teachers teaching various things. We have Professor Jonathan Bick teaching two classes this Office Hours, one, as always, on the Twilight Zone, and then he does another course on Star Trek. We have... Weekly Marks, lots of stuff. We'll talk about that later. Go to my website for the link. All you need is Zoom. And while you're at my website, sign up for my newsletter. It comes out every Friday at 6 p.m. It's a wrap-up for the week, and it includes an invitation for office hours, which starts two hours later. You should get your newsletter at 6, and then... Two hours later, we open up the Zoom room for office hours. Sign up for my newsletter. It's pretty amazing. It's, a, like I said, a wrap-up for the week. It includes an invitation for office hours. Keep an eye out for my newsletter, newsletter in your inbox and go to my website to sign up. Again, if for some reason you cannot find the invitation, uh, the link is always on my website. So, if it's eight o'clock and you don't see a link, and you have no idea how to get into office hours, just go to my website, hit the menu that's office hours, and it'll take you right in. We are live streaming today's podcast, as always, live right now on YouTube and in our Zoom room. You're welcome to join us to watch. To our listeners, uh, if you would like to see how the sausage gets made, eaten, digested, flushed down the toilet, and then pumped into the Harlem River to spread polio for the unvaccinated, check out our YouTube channel or our Zoom room to, to watch us produce this show. Subscribe. You'll get the invitation every time we're doing a live show. It's free. All you need is Zoom to be in the Zoom room. All you need is YouTube 
to watch us live on YouTube. Like I said, we're live right now on YouTube with two competing chat rooms. One chat room is our virtual studio audience here on Zoom. And then we have a, another chat room that I'm beginning to love that's also on YouTube. I love both chat rooms equally because we have the mods. The mods are keeping both chat rooms honest and free from trolls and making sure the conversation is on point and we're a little more organized. It's autumn and we're getting back to work. We we buried the queen. It's autumn. It's back to work. So I, I want to thank the mods who today are Autumn Leaves, Midi Doctors, Bob Carmody, M. Toussaint, Choking on Ashes, Lexi444, S. Scott is Taken. I wonder if S. Scott is Taken is related to the Is Takens from Montauk. I wonder if there's any relate. Uh, Dent F., Andy Brown, Sarah Bush, and of course, Invisible Ninja, who does a great job uh, getting our YouTube channel looking good. Well, I'm David Feldman coming to you from an air shaft overlooking a parking garage somewhere in Manhattan where the temperature is 78 degrees and partly cloudy. The time right now is 5.07. Most adults, p.m. Eastern on Thursday, most adults should be screened for anxiety. That's according to the Department of Health and Human Services. Gee, you think... They finally realized most of us should be treated for anxiety. In a new report issued earlier this week, doctors warned that since COVID, Americans have been operating under incredible emotional stress. Really? It took a doctor to figure that one out. The HHS is also recommending that everyone under the age of 65 get tested for depression and anxiety. If you're under 65, go get tested. This is America. If you're under 65, you should throw yourself off a cliff. That's how things work here in America. Apparently, they've just discovered that we're stressed out and it's time to test us about uh, for our anxiety and our stress. Yes, uh, here are your test results, Mr. Feldman. You suffer from anxiety and there's nothing you can do about it because you live in America and you'd have to go out of pocket for your mental health issues, but we did our job. We tested you for anxiety. And remember, there's no stigma. Do not be stigmatized by your anxiety. You should not be ashamed of your mental illness. Illness, illness. Remember, we can't do anything about your mental illness but please don't be stigmatized by it. That's America. Don't be stigmatized by your mental illness, but good luck getting it treated. Well, here's a heartwarming story coming to us from Kansas. I like this story. There's always bad news. Sometimes there's good news. Jackson County Sheriff's Deputy Matthew Hannes has been fired uh, for hog-tying a 14-year-old autistic child handcuffing his arms behind his back, then placing him in the back seat of the deputy's patrol car, and then without any warning, surprise, Sheriff's Deputy Matthew Honus 
tased the the 12 year old, I'm sorry, 12 year old autistic boy. And did I say 14? I got that wrong. I apologize. It was a 12 year old autistic boy. I, un- yes. So he tased the 10 year old and it was all captured on the officer's dashboard ca- cam, uh, which you can uh, see this uh, December for Roseanne Barr's new comedy special on Fox Nation. She has a new comedy special on Fox Nation. And uh, they play funny videos like a a police hog tying a 12-year-old autistic boy and then surprising him with a a taser. Uh, Officer Honus was fired. We're just finding out about this. But he is allowed to still work for other police departments Jackson County paid Officer Honus $23.55 an hour, but that included benefits like getting to take out all your frustrations on a 14-year-old, I'm sorry, a 12-year-old autistic child and hog-tying him and then uh, hitting him with a, a taser. Sweet story, isn't it? My apologies, it's a 12-year-old not a 14-year-old story. Jesus. Thomas Lane pleaded guilty to second-degree manslaughter after he admitted to holding down George Floyd's legs while Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin pressed his knee into Floyd's neck for nearly 10 minutes while Floyd shouted, I can't breathe. On Wednesday, the state of Minneapolis sentenced former police officer Lane to three years in prison Lane is currently serving a 30-month sentence inside a federal prison for violating George Floyd's civil rights. Officer Lane's attorney asked the judge for leniency because Officer Lane, I'm not making this up, has a newborn baby. Isn't that sweet? I wonder if Officer Lane was in the delivery room reminding his wife to breathe while he pressed her neck against the cement floor. He had a child. All that's been going on for the past two years, he decided to have a child. Another example of why everyone who's a man should be an absentee dad. We don't need fathers. Well, more good news. Taco Bell announced that they will test market for a limited time only in Dayton, Ohio, carne asada steak made with Beyond Meat. People who have tried it say they can't tell the difference between the fake and the real diarrhea. Beyond Meat has suspended their chief operating officer, Doug Ramsey, after he was arrested in a parking garage near Razorback Stadium at the University of Arkansas after he allegedly got into a fight with the driver of a Subaru who accidentally bumped into the tire of Ramsey's Bronco. Ramsey allegedly punched out the driver's back window. And then, as a fight ensued, Ramsey allegedly bit off a piece of the man's nose. Sounds like Ramsey needs to try Beyond Boogers. Obviously, the CFO of Beyond Meat has that rare condition where he eats other people's boogers instead of his own. That's why I always cook with Beyond Boogers. 
By the way, Ramsey had been with Beyond Meat for less than a year. He worked previously for 30 years for Tyson, which manufactures fake imitation chicken. You, uh, you should try a Tyson roaster. I swear it tastes like actual fake chicken. I'm surprised after 30 years at Tyson, this guy Ramsey didn't wring the guy's neck and smear avian flu all over him. The Death and uh, Custody Reporting Act of 2013 mandates that our Department of Justice gathers statistics from state and federal prisons to count the number of inmates who die in custody. Well, a new report from the General Accounting Office says our Justice Department is not keeping track and they forgot to count close to 1,000 deaths in prisons, jails, or police custody for 2021. So let me make this clear here. 1,000 people didn't die in our prisons, jails, or in police custody in 2021. 1,000 is the number the Department of Justice missed in the count. In other words, so many people are dying in our prison system, there are too many to count. You've heard of rounding errors. This is a rounding up era. The DOJ is rounding up the number of people getting rounded up and dying in police custody, in our jails and prisons here in America. Supreme Court Justices, uh, Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas's wife, Virginia Thomas, has agreed to meet with the January 6th Select Committee to discuss her involvement in trying to overturn the 2020 presidential election. The committee reportedly has texts between Virginia and John Eastman. He's a former clerk to Justice Thomas, who was implementing a plan to pressure Vice President Mike Pence into not certifying the election by bringing in separate sets of electors to Washington on January 6. Virginia Thomas, seen here dressed as Lady Liberty or a male moose during rutting season. I don't know. I'm going to go with male moose during rutting season. Uh, a lot of people are criticizing her because they say it's inappropriate for the wife of a sitting Supreme Court justice to be batshit crazy. The House passed the Presidential Election Reform Act this week, which stipulates that each state's electoral count reflects the popular vote, not the state legislature. The bill also says the vice president has only a ceremonial duty in certifying the elections, which, you know, suggests that John Eastman, that attorney who tried to hold up the certification process, may not have broken any laws. Seems like you have to, uh, if you have to fix the old laws, I don't know if anybody is breaking the old ones. I don't know. Only nine Republicans voted in favor of the electoral reform bill, all of whom are not returning to Congress in 2023. A similar bill is being worked on in the Senate with 10 Republicans reportedly on board. As to comment on this new electoral reform bill, Virginia Thomas said, can't talk, it's dinner time, and I'm about to make the chicken and NyQuil for my husband. 
Apparently that's a thing, cooking chicken with NyQuil. Yes, chicken and NyQuil. The kids are doing it. You still get bird flu, but none of the headache, fever, body aches, sinus pressure, sore throat, and runny nose. Runny pants, always, but uh, no runny nose. Speaking of runny pants, chipotle, chipotle, chipotle. Uh, after investigators in New Jersey discovered the fast food giant committed more than 30,000 labor violations against children, including long hours and no meal breaks for children, Chipotle has agreed to pay a $7.5 million fine. Two years ago, Massachusetts ordered Chipotle, Chipotle to cough up $1.4 million in fines for similar offenses against children, against children. Here in New York City, last year, Chipotle was ordered to pay 13,000 New York workers a total of $20 million after Chipotle was found guilty of violating local labor laws. Back in 2017, the New York City Council passed the Fair Workweek Law, which says fast food employees are entitled to know their schedules two weeks in advance. The railroad company should try that. So on Monday, the city reported, that's a local website that covers New York City, the city reports that hearings were held in New York City, revealing that despite paying these enormous fines, Chipotle is still violating the fair week the Fair Work Week law. Uh, this is the uh, head of Chipotle. Very good-looking guy, right? Very healthy-looking guy. Uh, yeah. Where am I? Hang on. Don't panic. Brian Nickel. That's, that's his name. He's chairman and CEO of Chipotle Mexican Grill. And according to the AFL-CIO's executive pay watch, in 2021, Brian Nickel earned $17,880,580. Or Mr. Nickel was paid 40,000. Right, I was going to make a nickel joke. I'm sorry. Uh, he earned seventeen million eight hundred eighty. $1,580. I'm sorry, I made a mistake. He stole $17,880,580 by withholding wages and working children long hours and denying them meal breaks. Children makes close to $18 million a year, but the children working for Chipotle don't get meal breaks and uh, work long hours like it's some novel by Charles Dickens. That's how he made $18 million. By the way, I looked up Chipotle's stock. I'm not, this is the God's honest truth. No dividends. Chipotle does not pay dividends. Zero. It screws the workers and the investors. There's your end stage capitalism, right? We've hired kids and pay them next to nothing. Literally nothing. 
but how do we trim costs even more so I can pay myself more than $18 million a year? I got it. Screw the investors, right? No dividends. That way we pump all the profits into me. Piece of shit, Brian Nickel, chairman and CEO of Chipotle, who earns $18 million a year working children overtime and not paying them for overtime and violating labor laws, not giving children meal breaks. He's probably helping those kids because those meal breaks probably would have meant they're eating something from Chipotle and they could come down with another case of Listeria, which Chipotle is famous for. So maybe maybe it's a good idea not to give those kids meal breaks over at Chipotle Brian Nickel, chairman and CEO. Look at his face. Know the name. That is Brian Nickel, chairman and CEO of Chipotle. That is uh, the CEO of Chipotle. You know, whenever I order from Chipotle, the first thing I always ask right after the food arrives is, why did I do this to myself? Why, why did I do this? I'm going to end up smelling like Megan McCain's car seat for a week. Then after I ask that question, the second question I ask is, how many ants can there be in one burrito? It's a good question. It's a great question. Many people have asked, how many ants can there possibly be in one Chipotle burrito? Well, it turns out, this is interesting, there are 2.5 million ants for every single human on the planet. The National Academy of Sciences published results from this year's ant census. Yes, there's an ant census. So if there are 2.5 million ants for every single human on the planet, how many ants are there? Want to figure it out? There are about 8 billion people on the planet Earth. There's 2.5 million ants for every human. Give up. The answer is 20 quadrillion. There are 20 quadrillion ants on the planet Earth. Now, in all fairness, because some parts of the American Constitution haven't been updated for centuries, when they take the ant census Black ants are only counted as three-fifths of an ant, so that's why your numbers were probably off. But if you count black ants as three-fifths of an ant, then the number of ants is 20 quadrillion. 20 quadrillion ants. How much is that? Uh, a lot. Uh, by the way, that's a rounding. It's, it's 20 quadrillion give or take three or four bajillion. And uh, a bajillion, by the way, is 100 Brazilian. And a Brazilian is very painful. Very, very painful. And uh, but, but we podcast hosts do to look beautiful for you. It's, it's uh, I don't know why I do it. It's horrible. 20 quadrillion ants according to the National Academy of Sciences, 20 quadrillion ants weigh 70 megatons, but that's with their shoes and belt on. America is fascinated 
by ants, especially worker ants. We study worker ants because they're mostly female and never form unions. Unlike the 274 workers at a Home Depot in Philadelphia who filed a petition this week with the National Labor Relations Board to form a union. A spokesman for Home Depot said that they are aware of Home Depot Workers United, but said, quote, we do not believe unionization is the best solution for our associates. Our associates. They are not your associates or your partners or your teammates or your colleagues. They are your employees. Calling someone a manager doesn't make them management. That's one of the ways these box stores get out of paying overtime. They make someone a manager and suddenly they're considered management so they don't get paid like ordinary employees. They're not entitled to overtime pay. Any, don't take any job where you're called a, a partner or an associate. Uh, workers are gaining leverage. They're quitting. Uh, and if they don't get paid what they deserve, they quit silently. They just do as little work as possible. And they're demanding unions like the workers at Home Depot or Amazon or Starbucks. And that's where the Federal Reserve comes in. Fed Chair Jerome Powell is getting serious about inflation, very serious about inflation, uh, but only wages, you know, wage inflation, because there's nothing he can do about the other inflation. That's the only thing he can only inflation he could fight <clears throat> is wage inflation. Now, this isn't complicated. They want you to think inflation is complicated, but it's not. The cause of inflation is the following. The war in Ukraine driving up the price of food. COVID and climate change creating supply chain issues. And corporations posting record profits by taking advantage of the inflation narrative and then raising prices, okay? Check out second quarter earnings for the S&P 500. I talked about this on the show last month. Corporate America did very well in the second quarter. And they don't call it price gouging. They call it pricing power. That's an actual term Wall Street uses pricing power. It's price gouging. And inflation is caused because our Justice Department doesn't enforce antitrust laws. So places like Home Depot have a monopoly. When you need wood, there's no place else to go. It's like, it's like marriage, you know? I need wood. She has the monopoly. That's what causes inflation. Pricing power. And rent. We've talked about this. Nobody believes me when I tell them. Look it up. One third of inflation is rent. One third is rent. And by the way, half of people who rent live at or below the poverty line. So you want to fight inflation? Pass a national rent control law. And one third of inflation is under control. But no, that's not what 
our Fed did this week. Jerome Powell, Jerome Powell could have said, look, I'm chairman of the Fed. We have to bring inflation down. But I'm also mandated to keep unemployment down. But I don't care about workers. I just care about the bankers. But he could have said, what he could have said is, look, we need to bring inflation down. I recommend we end the war in Ukraine. We do something about climate catastrophe, uh, you know, and COVID interrupting the supply chains. We should break up these monopolies so there's some competition when it comes to pricing and rent control. We should have national rent control because one third of inflation is in rent. Is That's what he could have done to tackle inflation. But instead, he decided to raise interest rates to 3.25%, the highest level since the Great Depression. This will have no effect on inflation whatsoever. What it will do is bring down wage inflation. When he made the announcement, Fed Chairman Jerome Powell said, this is a bitter pill and we need some tough medicine. This is what we have to do to tame inflation. And he specifically warned of, quote, steep job losses. See, he knows what he's doing and he knows who he's working for. He's creating job losses. That's all he's doing. More job losses, right? Then the labor market can't demand to go union or wage increases. That's how he's taming inflation by screwing the workers. Make no mistake. Oh, it's Jackie Martling. I wonder what he has to say. Uh, Let me, can't talk. Okay, it's Jackie Martling. My phone never rings. I get a call from Jackie Martling. Jackie the Joke Man Martling called me. I, I should turn my ringer off. London Lee might decide to call. Um, anyway, uh, so make no mistake about this. Uh, this country wants you working for little to no money. That is the plan. Well, the Dow responded yesterday by dropping 500 points. Like I said, one of the big drivers of inflation that nobody is talking about is climate catastrophe. Crops are dying in the American West as the American West suffers from the worst drought in 1,200 years. Farmers can't grow food. So what happens when there's a shortage of food, if there's limited supply, but there's a lot of demand, economics 101, the price of food goes up. Climate change catastrophe is causing the price of food to go up. In March, Sarah Bloom Raskin, she's the wife of Congressman Jamie Raskin, Sarah Bloom Raskin withdrew her nomination to sit on the seven-member Federal Reserve Board after Senator Joe Manchin said he would not vote for her. Why? Because Joe Manchin is the largest recipient of fossil fuel money in Washington, D.C., and Raskin said she believes the Fed 
should use its regulatory authority to forbid banks from lending to oil and gas companies. That's how you protect uh, the dollar. That's how you fight inflation, by telling banks not to lend money to oil and gas companies. Keep it in the ground. That was too much for the Republicans and, of course, Joe Manchin. Well, we're going to be talking about one of my favorite congresspeople, and that would be Michigan's Rashida Tlaib. I love Rashida Tlaib. She is the first Palestinian female to serve in Congress. She's a lawyer. And this week, the bankers came to Capitol Hill to testify, probably to get some money. They always like to get money. And uh, the bankers came to Capitol Hill to testify. And Congressman, Congresswoman Talib had some pointed questions for piece of shit. J.P. Morgan Chase CEO Jamie Dimon. She had some questions for this piece of shit about his company being the single largest investor in oil and gas. I think this is it. Please answer with a simple yes or no. Does your bank have a policy against funding new oil and gas products, Mr. Diamond? Absolutely not. And that would be the road to hell for America. Yeah, that's fine. That's fine, sir. You know what? Everybody that got relief from student loans has a bank account with your bank should probably re re take out their account and close their account. The fact that you're not even there to help relieve many of the folks that are in debt, extreme debt because of student loan debt, and you're out there criticizing it. Ms. Frazier, how about you? Uh, we will continue to invest in uh, and support clients who are investing in fossil fuels and in, uh, in helping them transition to cleaner energies. And Mr. Uh, Monahan? We are helping our clients make a transition, and that means we're, we're lending to both oil and gas companies and to new energy companies and helping monitor their course towards the standards you're talking about. Yeah, Mr. Sharp? Uh, excuse me, uh, the same thing as Mr. Monahan said. Yeah, I, I'm not going to ask you, Mr. Diamond, because you obviously don't care about working class people in frontline communities like ours that are facing huge amounts of high rates of asthma, respiratory issues, and so much more. Cancer rates are so high among my communities that I represent. So I'm not going to even ask you if you're committing to ending financing of new oil and gas projects. But Ms. Frazier, Mr. Monahan, Mr. Shade, we are living through a climate crisis today. And a commitment to net zero requires a commitment to ending fossil fuel financing. It is important because I want you all to know at the end, we're going to pay the cost of the public health impact. These are people that you're supposed to be serving. That is uh, Congresswoman Rashida Tlaib. Everybody should donate to her. We need more Congress people like Congresswoman Rashida Tlaib. Did that story get covered? You have a United States, a sitting United States Congresswoman telling people to boycott J.P. Morgan Chase because of the way they deal with student loans and because they are the largest investor in oil and gas. A United States congressperson just said to boycott J.P. Morgan Chase. That's a big story. 
I don't know. It's up to you to decide whether or not you're going to pull what little money you have uh, out of J.P. Morgan Chase. But why would you keep your money in J.P. Morgan Chase if they think the, the road to hell, that's what Jamie Dimon said, it's the road to hell to stop investing in fossil fuels. What a piece of shit. This is the guy, by the way, he still he was the he helped create the Great Recession back in 2008. He's still there. He's still in charge of J.P. Morgan Chase. Well, yeah, there's some good Congress people uh, that we should pay attention to. And there's some uh, some good uh, guys running for office. And I hope they make I hope they make it to Congress. My fingers are crossed. I usually vote for Democrats, but I'm a patriot and I like this guy, J.R. Majewski. J.R. Majewski. How can you not love a guy who's anti-Semitic but has the word Jew in his last name? J.R. Majewski is running for uh Marcy Kaptur's seat in Ohio. She's the Congresswoman Democrat. We had her on the show. And J.R. Majewski, God bless you, has been endorsed by Donald Trump because J.R. Majewski was there at the Capitol on January 6th, probably, you know, looking for, you know, measuring the drapes. I'm sure he wasn't an insurrectionist. He just showed he's running for office. He was probably measuring Marcy Kaptur's office for the drapes. Uh, he's a QAnon supporter. And more importantly, J.R. Majewski, and I'm not making this up, was a, as still is, a hip hop rapper who can turn a phrase like last Saturday night when he opened for Trump in Youngstown, Ohio. This is uh, J.R. Majewski. I'll be the working member of Congress that's going to be the tip of the spear. And I'm going to turn that Green New Deal brown like the turd it is. Yeah, that is the rapier wit of the battle-hardened rapier wit of J.R. Majewski. The man, did I mention he's a veteran? He has seen, J.R. Majewski has seen things no man should see, like himself naked coming out of the shower. J.R. Majewski fought in Afghanistan, and he doesn't like to talk about it. Here he is last year. He doesn't like to talk about his military service. You have to coax it out of him. Like all heroes, J.R. Majewski is very humble. Here he is talking on some podcast. Just doesn't want to talk about his military service. He, he saw things. Did you serve in Afghanistan? Yes, I did. How many tours? One. What what year were you there? What years? Uh, 2000, 2002, 2003. Wow. So you served right at, right at the beginning. Yeah. What was that experience like? Um, tough, tough. I don't like talking about my military experience. Not, not, not that, um, not that we've said too much. I just don't, I don't really like to, I really don't like to divulge a lot of things about the military because, you know, they're to me, you know, it was a, it was a tough time in life. Um, you know, the military wasn't easy, but in retrospect, it's one of the best decisions I've ever made. And, you know, I'd do it all over again. But, 
you know, out of respect of, you know, many things, you know, I, I, you know, my answer to most people when they ask about my military services, you know, I served, I served honorably and um, I fought for this country for a lot of months over in the Middle East. And uh, so did a lot of people that went with me. And, you know, when I see all these things that are going on today, I mean, if I could, if I could uh, put my BDUs back on, I wasn't so chubby. I'd, I'd probably, uh, I'd probably try to find a way to do it. What a guy! Wow. Thank you for your service, J.R. Majewski. Thank you. You're part of America's treasure, J.R. You know he, he has in the past described combat conditions in Afghanistan as quote unquote tough. He says he was forced to go 40 days without a shower, but he said it was worth it. He heard the call after 9-11, and he went to Afghanistan. Uh, and, you know, J.R. Majewski is reticent. You can tell he's reticent about his service. But occasionally he thinks of his fellow comrades and the sacrifices they all made. And, you know, last year when Joe Biden pulled out of Afghanistan J.R. Majewski, veteran, war combat veteran, felt Biden had bungled it. So J.R. Majewski broke a promise to himself and felt that he had to tweet about his military service. It was difficult for him. You see how humble he is. Uh, and he wasn't doing this for himself. He was doing it for his comrades in arms. And this is his tweet and it's from August 25th, 2021. I'm a veteran of OEF. I'm gladly, I'd gladly suit up and go back to Afghanistan tonight and give my best to save those Americans who were abandoned. Why isn't our president all in? And, and he puts, he puts president in, in quotation marks because he doesn't really think Joe Biden won the election because he's an election denier. But he has those right. You know, he's a veteran. He fought for this country in Afghanistan. He was there. He he he's tough. 40 days without a shower in Afghanistan. J.R. Majewski put it all on the line and he doesn't want to talk about his service. But, you know, he feels Joe Biden bungled it and he's compelled to speak out against the president, even though as a member of the military, he swore an oath to obey his commander in chief. And that must have been very difficult for combat veteran J.R. Majewski, who, you know, who swore an oath to obey his president. But then he had he had no choice but to criticize his quote unquote, his quote unquote president. S soldiers are not supposed to do that. And when they do criticize when war when combat veterans speak out against a president, it carries much weight. J.R. Majewski carries much weight. And when J.R. Majewski says he feels that Joe Biden wasn't all in the way J.R. Majewski was all in in Afghanistan, people need to criticize the commander in chief. We need to win we needed to win in Afghanistan. And J.R. Majewski knows that if you're running for office, you don't run with one arm tied behind our back. That's why we lost in Afghanistan. And he's running for office to win, which means that once again, 
combat veteran, J.R. Majewski, how to compromise his principles and be a bit of a braggart and remind voters that unlike his opponent, Congresswoman Marcy Kaptur, he, J.R. Majewski, heard the clarion call to defend freedom overseas right after 9-11. And here is his latest video. Here is his latest video. And this must be hard for him because he's reticent about his military service. And I'm willing to do whatever it takes to return this country back to its former glory. And if I got to kick down doors, well, that's just what patriots do. When I'm elected, I won't bow to establishment pawns or power-hungry radicals. I will hold my own and demand that once again, America stands independent and strong like the country that I fought for. Yes, like the country J.R. Majewski fought for. Speak softly, but carry a big AR-15. That was a big AR-15. That was like midlife crisis, I can't get it up sized AR-15. And the guy wants to win. And campaigning for office is a battle. It is. And campaigning for office, they come at you. They come at you. And J.R., he's battle-toughened, J.R. Majewski, because he served in Afghanistan. He's, he's a combat veteran. And, and he went 40 days without a shower. So unlike the other weak-willed milksops running for office, he's a candidate and he's prepared to take incoming like this, right? Duck and cover. Ohio GOP House candidate has misrepresented his military service. So the Associated Press looked into his military record. Apparently, J.R. Majewski uh, didn't serve in Afghanistan. He didn't serve in Iraq. J.R. Majewski never saw any combat, but he did go 40 days without a shower starting last August, and tomorrow will be day 41. So there's that. J.R. Majewski... 41 days without a shower because he's tough. And this is a hatchet job. You know, why, why is the Associated Press digging into J.R. Majewski's military records? Doesn't he respect our troops? I mean, that, that is so unpatriotic to look into J.R. Majewski's military records. Uh, first of all, he was in the military, uh, he served most of his time in Japan, which I believe America fought in World War II. So technically, J.R. Majewski did serve in an American military theater of operation. And he didn't serve in Iraq or Afghanistan. But right after 9-11, he served in Qatar, where he spent six months loading and unloading Air Force planes, that's kind of like, you know, you know, he's CIA. You know he was in Afghanistan, but he can't talk about it. He's CIA. 
he, he, you know, he can't. I mean, come on. The guy was at the Capitol on January 6th, big follower of QAnon. Uh, he says 2020 was rigged. So why all of a sudden would he lie about his military record? It just doesn't make any sense that a guy who would be at the Capitol on January 6th, a follower of QAnon, somebody who thinks Joe Biden isn't a legitimate president, why would he lie about his military record? It makes absolutely no sense. I'm still voting for J.R. Majewski. Uh, I don't live in Pennsylvania, but apparently you don't need to live in Pennsylvania to run for office there or vote. So I'm voting for J.R. Majewski. I think he's fabulous. I do. He didn't lie about his military record. And I think the Associated Press owes him and all, all the, the soldiers out there who didn't serve an apology. All the people who pretend, pretended to have seen combat, the Associated Press owes not just the, the men who pretend that they saw service, but their families. Because they don't know if their father or husband is going to come home. A lot of times these guys get punched for pretending to have been uh, in Afghanistan and they go to the hospital for a day. You know, uh, AP owes this guy an apology. Uh, by the way, he wouldn't lie about his service because it's against the law. I think it's against the law. Well, at least it was. It used to be against the law. The Stolen Valor Act was passed back in 2005. It was signed into law in 2006 by President George W. Bush, who pushed that through Congress. He made it a crime for anyone to falsely claim heroics on the battlefield. President Bush didn't want anyone lying about the war he lied about to get us into. He literally, George Bush, I don't know if you remember, but George W. Bush, piece of shit, lied us into Iraq and Afghanistan, right? He lied, people forget that he lied us into Afghanistan because the Taliban didn't attack us on 9-11. Uh, Al-Qaeda worked out of Saudi Arabia, Pakistan, and the hills of Afghanistan. So he lied. And then he introduced the Stolen Valor Act of 2005 to make sure nobody can lie about the war except him. Unfortunately, the Supreme Court overturned the Stolen Valor Act of 2005, claiming it violated the First Amendment. So it's now legal once again to claim you fought in Afghanistan and Iraq in case, you know, the weekend's coming up and you hit in the bars and you want to get laid. Uh, yes, J.R. Majewski, he's a rapper also. I, I hope he raps when he gets elected. I hope he's going to rap. Uh, he raps, his, I think he raps under the name, uh, what, what's it? Remember Biggie Smalls? I think uh, J.R. Majewski's rap name is Biggie Lies. Biggie Lies. I'll be the working member of Congress that's going to be the tip of the spear 
and I'm going to turn that Green New Deal brown like the turd it is. How can you not love J.R. Majewski? Huh? Magnus Carlsen has been world chess champion since 2013, but last month he lost a game to a much lower ranked player who has been accused of cheating by placing vibrating anal beads in his rectum, allowing his confederates watching the match to signal his best move. Vibrating anal beads to cheat at chess. Does anybody really believe that this guy is using vibrating anal beads to cheat at chess? It doesn't work. I mean, it works if you're hosting a podcast and Dan Frankenberger wants you to know someone raised their hand in the chat room and wants to talk. That would be two jolts, three jolts of the anal beads if uh, there's a written question in the Q&A and four long jolts of the anal beads if Dan is enjoying the show and thinks I deserve a treat. No jolts. Okay. All right. We're running out of time here. Uh, with Ukraine recapturing, we don't have time. Let me uh, let me get to... Uh, I want to talk about... Is Grace here? I don't want to keep Grace waiting. Yes, she's here. Dan. Grace, was, Grace has not arrived yet. Okay. Just one light, little light touch on the vibrating anal beads. Um... Let me scroll down here. Uh, okay. Okay. Uh, well, the UN General Assembly was Wednesday, and the leader of Jordan, there we go, King Jordan, uh, spoke to the UN General Assembly on Wednesday. Uh, King Jordan, King Abdullah II of Jordan, and he said he supports a two state solution. I don't know what country he was talking about. A two-state solution. I guess he I guess he still thinks it's 1996 and he's talking about Israel. Somebody should tell King Abdullah of Jordan that it's 2022 and the uh, King of Jordan is talking about a two-state solution that is more extraordinary than his rendition sites that he's still talking about a two-state solution. By the way, Jordan has extraordinary rendition sites. Before you get waterboarded, the CIA asks if you want flat or bubbly. So I want to talk about peace talks between Palestinians and Israel. They fell apart back in 2014. Now, I support a two-state solution, but this Israeli government, this Israeli government does not. This conservative Israeli Government prefers to harden the status quo, and that is not going to end well. Prime Minister of Israel, Yair Lapid, told the UN today that he too supports a two-state solution, and all the Palestinians have to do is put down their weapons and there will be peace. Now, there was a time when Israel was considered the underdog in all this, but for the time being, they've won. And the smartest thing for Israel to do is work towards some sort of two-state solution, because the alternative is a deepening nightmare in Gaza and the West Bank. I believe Jews need a country. 
I also know that anti-Semitism is on the rise around the world, and no matter what you do, it won't go away. So I support an Israeli state. But just like the, the way anti-Semitism isn't going to go away, the Palestinians aren't going to go away either. This can be fixed. But this Israeli government doesn't want to fix it. This Israeli government doesn't want to fix it. I don't like this Israeli government. I don't approve of this government. This Israeli government is expanding settlements in the West Bank, taking us further and further away from anything resembling peace. I do not approve of the Israeli government. Okay. Oh, look, it's Congresswoman Rashida Tlaib again. She's a Palestinian American and a lawyer. This week, she appeared via Zoom to address activists from Americans for Justice and Palestine Action, which includes American Jews. A couple of American Jews spoke and uh, they don't support the Israeli government. See, they, these are Jews who support Israel. They don't support this Israeli government. Also in the Zoom call were fellow Democratic Congress people Andre Carson, Judy Chu, Betty McCollum, and Marie Newman, who's been on this show, and her husband is Jewish. See, she supports Israel. She doesn't support its government. A majority of American Jews do not support the government of Israel because a majority of American Jews want a two-state solution, which right now is all but dead because of the government of Israel, not the state of Israel, the government of Israel. The King of Jordan and the Prime Minister of Israel say they support a two-state solution the same way Pete Buttigieg says he supports Medicare for all. They believe in saying they support it, but they don't. So Rashida Tlaib, who everybody should donate to, said this to Palestinian activists yesterday. I want you all to know that among progressives, it has become clear that you cannot claim to hold progressive values, yet back Israel's apartheid government, and we will continue to push back and not accept this idea that you are progressive, progressive except for Philistine any longer. Well, she called it Philistine. <laughs> she didn't have to call it Philistine. Well, she said you can't call yourself a progressive and still support the Israeli apartheid government the Israeli apartheid government. Uh, there aren't any progressives in this coalition that's been put together, this government. They're not progressives. Why would progressives support this Israeli government? They support Israel's right to exist. They don't support this Israeli government. Well, 
the former head of the Democratic National Committee and genius Democrat, Democrat uh, Debbie Wasserman Schultz, she's a congresswoman from Florida, she said this is anti-Semitism. And Representative Jerry Nadler, who fancies himself the leader of the Jew Jewish Democratic Caucus, said the notion that one cannot support Israel's right to exist as a Jewish and democratic state and be a progressive is uh, nothing short of anti-Semitic. She didn't say uh, anything about supporting Israel's right to exist as a Jewish state. She said she didn't support this apartheid Israeli government. Uh, that's what Debbie Schultz accused her of being, anti-Semitic. Congressman Jerry Nadler accused her of being anti-Semitic. The Anti-Defamation League accused her of being anti-Semitic. Uh, you're an anti-Semite if you say, in order to call yourself a progressive, uh, she's saying that... Uh, that you have to reject, they are accusing her of saying you have to reject Israel's fundamental right to exist. Otherwise, you can't be a progressive. That's not what she said. She was attacking the Israeli government, not the state of Israel, which I'm sure she's no fan of. But there's a difference between attacking a government and the right of a country to exist. It would be like blaming the Anglican Church for the British genocide in Kenya to, 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 to say that she's anti-Semitic because of the Israeli government would be like blaming Anglicans for British genocide in Kenya. There's the Anglican Church, which is the official religion of Great Britain, and then there's the government. Nobody's blaming Anglicans for the treatment of the Mau Maus. And yes, there is anti-Semitism in this world, and it's getting Worse, being against Israel's treatment of Palestinians doesn't make you anti-Semitic. It makes you pro-human rights, which is what progressives are. You can, like me, David Feldman, support Israel's right to exist and oppose the settlements in the West Bank. You can oppose the killing of Palestinian American journalists and still be a, uh, call yourself a, a Zionist. I got news for Jerry Nadler, the Anti-Defamation League, and Debbie Wasserman Schultz, and all the people who are calling Rashida Tlaib an anti-Semite. It's not a good idea to make this Israeli government synonymous with Judaism and the state of Israel. It's not a good idea to accuse anyone who doesn't support this Israeli government as anti-Semitic. It's not good. It's not good for the Jews in Israel or America. Rashida Tlaib is a great congresswoman who deserves our support. Anti-Semitism is on the rise. Jerry Nadler, the Anti-Defamation League, and Debbie Wasserman Schultz should be very, very careful throwing the term anti-Semitism around. 
if anyone who disagrees with the Israeli government is an anti-Semite, then everyone is an anti-Semite, including me. And I'm not anti-Semitic. And I recognize Israel's right to exist. The majority of American Jews would be deemed anti-Semitic by these standards because they do not support this Israeli government. American Jews and many, not the majority, but almost half of Jews in Israel do not like what they see going on in Gaza and the West Bank. This government in Israel barely got elected. So there are a lot of people, a lot of Jews in Israel who do not like the Israeli government. That doesn't make them anti-Semitic. Anti-Semitism is a powerful accusation. The Anti-Defamation League, Jerry Nadler and Debbie Wasserman Schultz are diluting its meaning and they should shut the fuck up. You're listening to The David Feldman Show, davidfeldmanshow.com. And by the way, anybody who disagrees with me is anti-Semitic. You're anti-Semitic if you don't agree with me. Uh, Don't forget uh, office hours this Friday starting at 8 p.m. And uh, is, is Grace here yet, Dan? Yep, she has arrived. Okay. Well, joining us, I don't see her. Were there any? There you are. Sorry, I got a little worked up. I didn't. Grace Jackson. Quite all right. Grace Jackson works our China desk in Great Britain, and she joins us today from Great Britain. Did you watch the U.N. General Assembly? Everybody, all the great leaders of the world gathered in New York City to Mm. address the General Assembly. This happens every September to to kick off a new season. And uh, did you watch it? And Um, I I read some things about it. I watched a little bit. I watched uh, a a snippet of Liz Truss, our new prime minister. She gave an interview with the BBC uh, on top of the Empire State Building in New York before going down to the UN or going up to the UN, rather. Um, and that was pretty cringe. Now you I think, mean, I think, you she, think she's very smart, don't you? You think Liz Truss is, right? Uh, I No, I think really? she's a few sandwiches short of a picnic. Um, <laughs> That's your leader. You, uh, you can't criticize your government. Don't criticize your government. You're anti-Anglican. No. You're, you hate Ang- Why do you hate Anglicans? <laughs> when you criticize the British government, you're, that's anti-Anglican. Mm, indeed, indeed. Sorry, um, I, just, I, don't, I don't mean to give you a rough time, but I just can't sit back and allow <laughs> Anglicans to be persecuted this way. Absolutely. Uh, so, so you did watch. Yeah. So what did Liz Truss, Prime Minister, uh, PM, say? PM Trust. She, I think she thought she was being very clever with her choice of location, by the way, you know, on top of the Empire State Building. I read that the last British prime minister to visit the Empire State Building was actually Churchill. So perhaps there's some some posturing going on there. But maybe she'll have the same luck crossing a New York City street (laughs) as Liz Trust did, as Winston did. Uh, Winston didn't look both ways. 
right? You don't right. like that, right? No. What are you talking about? He got hit by a bus. In New Did York. he? Yeah. Oh, my God. Because he, is... he, he was a conservative. He only looked to his right, and he didn't see the bus <laughs> coming to his left. This is true. I... He was hit by Winston Churchill was hit by a bus. That's well, your greatest that scene Britain. wasn't in the crown, so I, I have no <laughs> idea about that. So I'm sorry. So uh, I didn't mean to make fun of the greatest Briton, Winston Churchill. He is the greatest oh, Briton, you know. All right. That's the next one we'll have to deal with okay. after we've got you off your monarchism. Now I, now I can't like Winston now Churchill? Now we're going to have to cancel Churchill on you, all, <laughs> all right? right. Okay. But we're not going to do it today. That's All right, so tell me what do. Liz Truss said, please. Oh, she talked about trickle-down economics. She talked about tax cuts, <laughs> corporation tax cuts <laughs> at the top of the Empire State Building. She she said, what did she say? We We have to take difficult decisions to get our economy right. We have to look at our tax rates. Corporation tax needs to be competitive with other countries so that we can attract investment. Um, wow. And it's it's just, it's dreadful, really. Uh, and then she went to the UN and she did a kind of bait and switch where she framed this economic approach of hers to the defense of democracy in Ukraine, um, saying that, you know, we, we need to sort of build up our economic strength and our resilience so we can push back against authoritarianism uh, and win the new era of strategic competition. And it's just, it, it, it was an amazing kind of uh, moment because it seems like she's, when she says democracy, what she means is actually oligarchy. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, this is political economy at its finest. Um, and just to, to note a few of the policies that she's pushing. So she is very anti-union. She's told striking workers, of whom there are many at the moment in the UK, to get back to work and she's pledged to bring in legislation to basically limit industrial action, action um, very soon. Tomorrow, she her government is going to deliver an emergency budget and the new chancellor, who's called Kwasi Kwarteng, he is going to scrap the limits on bankers' bonuses that were instituted in 2008 after the financial crash. Um, so in 2008, bankers' bonuses were capped at twice the amount of the employee's salary. Um, but as part of what this man calls Big Bang 2.0, he is going to lift this uh, rule and and kind of push for this drive of, of deregulation to basically make London more competitive. Unleash the animal Kind of spirit. funny because, like, the, the same party that pushed for Brexit, which I've heard made the city less competitive, there was a lot of kind of outflow um, from the city of London after Brexit. So now they're saying we're going to kind of supercharge London um, and start by removing these caps on bonuses. He is also going to announce these um, low tax, like low regulation investment zones. There are going to be 12 of them around the country, apparently, where planning regulations are going to be relaxed. And one has to assume that also um, labor laws are probably going to be quite quite lax there too. 
Um, and all of this, you know, the tax cuts and so on, it's it's going to cost a lot of money um, and they're going to borrow and they're going to hope that it all trickles down or not as, you know, I don't think they're really hoping that. I don't think they really care. Does she know she's a liar? I don't know. That's the thing. I feel like she might believe what she's saying. Even though there's no economic science to back up trickle down and that lowering... Well, even though as she was giving that interview in New York, Biden tweeted, I'm sick and tired of trickle down economics. He totally showed her up. And then she went to the UN and, and doubled down. So... Yeah, I I think the the UK is entering into this kind of weird throwback where it feels like we're just, it's it's like the UK version of MAGA or something. What is the UN, with all that's going on with climate change and Ukraine, why are they discussing, why why, why would she think there'd be receptive ears to trickle down economics? (laughs) Um, I mean, I think it was quite a tone deaf move. Yeah. But I also think she's trying to kind of brand herself at this early stage of her prime ministership. Um, she's trying to build her brand, you know, which is uh, probably sensible to an extent because next year, or not next year, 2024, there's probably going to be an election that she'll have to fight. Um, and she wants to kind of put herself out there early. I think she's also, you know, um, very much continuing Boris Johnson's policy on Ukraine, his kind of unwavering support, um, funneling huge amounts of money into Ukraine as well. And I think that she wants to be seen as a as a someone who's really leading on that. Do the British believe this crap? <sighs> I don't know. We'll we'll have to ask our friend. Um, Sir Arthur Grebe Streebling oh, to I don't, weigh yes. in on, on whether the British, because I can't represent the British, you know, right. I'm, I have no idea what people are thinking, but right. so um, let, let's talk- I do know, I do know people are hurting economically and financially right. at the moment. And I think that I imagine they're sick and tired of hearing about, about trickle down economics, just like Joe Biden. Right. China. Taiwan, China, yes, Russia. What what did you get from the UN this week? Um, not much came out of the UN today. I think either today or maybe tomorrow, the foreign minister of China is meeting Lavrov, Russia's foreign minister, who I believe walked out of a session at the UN today in protest. Um, but something, a couple of interesting things happened this week with China. Uh, in terms of Taiwan and also Russia. So the Chinese foreign ministry actually called for a ceasefire um, and a ceasefire through dialogue in particular and for an end to the war earlier this week. And just like I said last time on the show, when they released the official statement of this um when they kind of put this in writing for the media afterwards, the word ceasefire disappeared. Really? So it seems like there's a bit of a game going on, a kind of um, testing of the line on this, 
but they still released a statement that said they call on relevant parties to resolve their differences through dialogue. It just didn't have the word ceasefire in it, which, you know, is kind of an important word. Yeah, um, I think but so. Yeah. <laughs> it seems like after India also kind of slapped Putin on the on the wrist last week, um, you know, China probably doesn't want to be seen as necessarily siding with India too quickly on that. They don't want to put too much pressure on Russia publicly. But it does seem like, you know, China is concerned that Putin doubling down is only going to create a more united, much more militarized West, like you said last week. And that is that's a big headache for China. Um so it's still playing this kind of delicate game with its language, but it does seem to be losing patience mm -hmm. um, with Russia. And so the I think the day after that, there was a statement on Taiwan that came out of, out of um, the Chinese government that was a little bit softer than ones we've had before. Um, and it obviously came after, I think, Joe Biden went on 60 Minutes and said that the US would defend Taiwan if China invaded. He's got a habit of saying this now. And then, you know, the State Department immediately kind of roll it, dial it back. But you've say, said that's intentional. I mean, I think it's... I mean, I quoted you on Monday's show saying oh. that <laughs> where you, you taught us about strategic ambiguity and that, yes. it, I mean, what is more ambiguous than Biden saying we'll defend Taiwan and then before the words even come out of his mouth, the State Department is walking it back. It's it's like a dance. Yeah, it's actually, you're right. It's a perfect um, demonstration of strategic ambiguity, except what he said on 60 Minutes was not that ambiguous. I mean, I think it's just we've entered a phase where this is the definition of strategic ambiguity now. And it's, you know, I don't I don't take it that seriously, I suppose, um, because I've never really believed that strategic ambiguity is that ambiguous. I think that the US has always had basically a, a commitment to Taiwan, um, despite what it says in its in its one China policy. Um, anyway, China has this week uh, released a statement that said that, well, it didn't use the word force. So in the past few years, whenever this has come up, questions of whether, you know, if Taiwan declares independence, the mainland have always said we would use, we would countenance the use of force. In this statement, he said that China would take resolute me measures against provocative moves by Taiwan. But he emphasized that China would introduce policies to help Taiwan and to highlight the benefits of integration and encourage people-to-people -people exchanges. He said the motherland must be unified and will certainly be unified. And this is a historical trend that no one can stop. Um, and this is interesting because I think this is where the kind of, uh, where the cross-strait relationship is heading. It's into this, this idea that you know, China's going to have to use much more carrot than stick if they want to actually persuade Taiwanese people that they would govern in a way that doesn't, you know, completely undermine their way of life. 
Whether that is the case, I'm really not sure. And I don't think that many people in Taiwan are going to be convinced by that. Um, but it's interesting to see that the rhetoric is softening a little bit this week. And I think it's significant that it comes in the context of, of this, this escalation in Ukraine um, by Putin. Fantastic. Grace Jackson is the co-host of Literary Hangover. How do we follow you on Twitter? Oh, it's uh, just Grace Jackson on Twitter. Fantastic. Now we just, because I'm going to get complaints. We, we, because we have Sir Arthur Grebe Striebling about to join us. And people are going to say, why did you cut off Grace? But oh. I did not cut for the record because you have fans and people <laughs> say you cut, right? We, we scheduled 20 minutes, right? Yes. No, I, I'm dying to hear from Sir, yes. Sir Arthur as well. Grieb Striebling, yes. And so I guess you're familiar with his, his uh, legacy. His estate. And yeah. his estate. You've been to Ribbington Hall? Um, I mean, I, I may have driven past it. I'm certainly not permitted on the premises. You know, okay. I think he's got some quite tight security yes. up at yes. Ribbington. Yes. Well, Grace Jackson is the co-host of Literary Hangover. Thank you so much for doing this. And people can Thank follow you. you on Twitter at Grace Jackson next week. I hope to see you. Thank you. Great job. Thank you. Good night. Good night. Sleep tight. It's uh, probably midnight by now or even later in, in, in yeah, the United it's, Kingdom. It's getting on to midnight. Yes. The sun is setting over the United Kingdom. Good night. Well, this is very exciting. We have with us a friend of King Charles. He is the same age as King Charles. He grew up with King Charles. Uh, his estate abuts, I believe your estate abutted or still abuts Sandringham. Is that, is that correct? Please welcome uh, Sir Arthur Grebe Striebling. Welcome, sir. Hello, sports fans. And uh, once again, I say... It's a unique honor for you to have me on your show. It, so thank it, you. <laughs> thank you. It, it is, Sir 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 Griebling. So you're coming to us once again from Ribbington Hall. That's correct. I I, I very rarely venture from these uh, from these grounds. Yes. And not how, much me. How would you say King Charles is doing his first week? Well, I, I, I saw him approximately uh, 12 hours ago, uh, wandering aimlessly around his backfield. Uh, I don't know what was going on there. Seemed to be all alone. Uh, I have no clue what's going on. Uh, he seemed a good fettle. I'll just put it like that. Good fettle. Mm -hmm. Had a lovely shotgun over his, uh, over his shoulder, and he was probably looking for... Uh, to bag a few peasants. He hunts peasants. Yes, yes. Did you say pheasants or peasants? No peasants. He has a waif, strays, anybody who seems to the need to venture onto his land. Yes. When you say when you say hunt peasants, like for the sport, not not for for eating the peasants, right? Oh no, eat oh, they're very disgusting. Uh, they're not right. edible at all. But uh, he has a number of dogs and a number of uh, 
people who round up local peasants and uh, stick them in the woods and then bat them out. Right. And scare them out into the fields. Now, is this done on horseback? Occasionally, occasionally so. That's a bit of a late autumn sport. Uh, this this time of year tends to be mainly the chasing uh, out of the woods into the fields and pop 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 with the old shooter. Right? Is that fair yeah. though? I know that they banned fox hunting, and then the next step they said it was a slippery slope. But we ban fox hunting next. They're going to ban the hunting of peasants. The the criticism about the the hunting of peasants is that. It's unfair to the horses and unfair to the dogs. The peasants will often yes. kick uh, the dogs, kick the horses. Uh, N- not if one is a good enough, sh- good enough shot. Uh, the 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 agility of the peasants really does depend upon uh, whether they are able-bodied or not. Uh, mm-hmm. We, you know, they're, they're they're the easiest to get, so we, we let the children. Uh, have a go at the disabled. Uh, uh, the disabled peasants. Yes, yes, yes. So you have children uh, hunt the disabled peasants, or the, and then yes, the, yeah, the, yeah. the the mobile, the mobile, the ambulatory peasants are hunted by the gentry. The the, the gentry uh, originally upon horses, uh, as with the old fox, but uh, occasionally on a BMX bike mm-hmm. and uh, quads. Now, you grew up next door to Sandringham. Did you go on a peasant hunt ever? No, I found it quite abhorrent. Yeah, I, I, uh, yes. I, I, don't, I, I, I don't get it. And they say yeah. that some of the peasants are, they, they, they like to uh, feed a lot of fat into the, yeah. the peasants to make them, to plump them up for yes, hunting season. Yes. That seems awfully cruel. It's it's di- it's a direct lard implant. Okay. No food as such. No no nutrition. Just a funnel of lard into the gullet and, and, and people off into the field. Right. There, I think this started during the Elizabethan times, and they would f- they would be allowed to feast uh, to plump up. Yes. But now they're just shooting lard into the peasants yeah. before the yeah yes yes that seems back awfully- in the Elizabethan age the original let's say. Elizabethan age, uh, peasants were very much a delicacy. Uh, and also there were um, superstitions around the eating of peasants, uh, which some peasants were uh, known to uh, fend off scurvy. Yes. Right. They yes. would bring, I, I think, on the Mayflower, they had three peasants to eat for vitamin C. Yes, each room in the Mayflower had a barrel of peasants. A barrel of peasants. Yes. Yeah. And yeah. they were a lot of fun, right? That's where the term more fun than a barrel of peasants comes from. Yes, yes. Right. And it's also where the invention of the Pez, uh, the Pez dispenser. confectionery dispenser came about with the, the hinging head. Mm-hmm. Originally, that's how you would access the the juiciest parts of the peasant computer. Right. Slip the head from the neck, tip right. it back, and uh, dip in. Yeah, that I knew. I, I, yes, I still have a Pez dispenser, even though yes. I, I, I've never eaten. I, well, I tried peasant once, and it 
it didn't agree with me. The I should, I should, have, I should think it was quite upset, yes. Yeah. Now, have they made changes? Because there was a time where the peasants could only be Catholic, and a lot of people felt that was discriminatory and non-inclusive. Are they adding new groups of people to the, pe the peasant hunt? Well, you, you may be aware we have a, a rife problem with uh, uh, illegal immigration. In, uh, mm. Need I say more? This is one way of uh, dispensing with... Uh, that's why it won't be tackled on any short-term basis, and that's uh, why we keep promising the earth to stop it and uh, allow it to carry on. Yes. Right. Taxidermists... Uh, a lot of taxidermists refuse to work with peasants. Uh, but yes. do you, are there laws going to force the taxidermists? Because there was a time when taxidermists had no problem working with peasants. But now, because of, you know, the woke culture taking over, a lot of taxidermists are saying, no, I, I, I won't touch this. So, well, now, now you're getting into the realms of my expertise, uh, because uh, as I mentioned earlier, I, I wasn't akin to uh, killing peasants in any way, shape, or form. But I've stuffed a few peasants in my time, from arsehole to beak. And uh, <laughs> it's, been, it's been a passion of mine. Been a, you're laughing. I'm sorry. I, well, I no. I was. I'm sorry. It's a very serious thing. I apologize. I apologize. These are human beings, after all. They are human beings. Yes, they are, aren't they? Yes, they okay, are human yes. beings, sort of. Yeah. Not exactly the same types of human beings as we aristocracy. However, right. they are human beings. They they bleed some form of blood. Right. It's not blue like ours. Right. And, and 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 do they talk? Many of them cluck. They cluck. Depends how long we've been rearing them for. Right. Yes. In the woods. Now, what about yeah. I, the, the the rearing of peasants? There was a time when they were allowed. They were cage free and roamed the countryside. Now that the common when, once again the the rearing of peasants. Again, you're in my expertise. Uh, I've reared a number of peasants uh, from Arsenal to Beak as well. <laughs> <laughs> and what, what is the secret to rearing uh, to rearing a, a peasant from asshole to Beak? How do you? What's your advice on rearing a uh, a peasant? One must take a very long run <laughs> and a small jump. <laughs> So, yes. yeah. Well, back to to the king and the queen. We do have to wrap it up. And we are so honored to to have uh, Sir Arthur Grebe Striebling with us. He's currently on his estate, Ribbington Hall in yes. Norfolk? Yes. Next yes. door to Sandringham. Yeah, Sandringham, Norfolk. Yeah. Yeah, it's lovely. In the East Anglia, the what we would call the rump of the United Kingdom. The rump. The ass. The ass. The, the curvy, round, 
slightly arousing buttock <laughs> of the the aisles. Yes. Really? Is that what it looks like? Yes. In fact, if you if you squint at a picture of the United Kingdom, it very much looks like a a aristocrat with a top hat <laughs> running with a peasant under his arm. Mm-hmm. Yes. But before yes. you go, there are reports. Yeah. That Prince Andrew, who I believe you're the godfather, Prince Andrew's godfather, is that? I wish to admonish any responsibility I have in the area of Prince Andrew for the purposes of public relations. And did you date date Princess Anne? This is the the Kitty Kelly book that came out almost 30 years ago. I was encouraged to date Princess Anne. But at the time, I was at boarding school studying horticulture. And uh, I misread the whole incident and crept into her bedroom one night and crept under her nightie and started sawing her leg off (laughs) to count the rings. But one could only date a trunk of such magnitude by sawing the leg off and counting the rings. And mm-hmm. I didn't get that far, to be honest. Yeah. So you did You did share a bed with her? I did, yes, yes. And I had no option, to be honest. Uh, right. She and wanted her leg back, to be honest. What was she like in bed? Uh, did she scream when you, saw, when you tried to saw her legs? Was she a screamer? She was definitely a screamer at that point, yes. Yeah. As so, was I. But, uh... Where she was screaming with uh, fear and pain, trepidation, pain. The pain yes, was she a virgin? Anger. Was it? Is that why it was, it was pain for her when you were sawing no, well, her leg? Me, I think one can assume it's not often one one gets a leg sawn off. Right. How myself, however, I was screaming with elation. Two different screams. Right. Right. Well, thank you, uh, Sir Arthur Grebe Striebling. Would you would you come back uh, on Monday to continue this? Because we're we're on royal watch here. We we are obs- yeah. we're obsessed with the monarchy. We, we yeah, get- I like to see this as an opportunity to shine a light on the uh, British aristocracy, the yes. foundation of the entire human race. And by the way, what did the Queen die of? Do we know? Syphilis. <laughs> oh, okay. Not not only that, genetic syphilis. Yeah. It runs in the family. It runs a in bit the- like diarrhea. <laughs> I'm sorry, I didn't hear what you said. I my, I laughed so hard. My it runs in the family, what? A bit like diarrhea. Yes. It runs yes. She she got syphilis. Well, Prince Andrew was her favorite. So yes. that explains yes. How she got yeah. it. Uh, well, thank you, Sir Arthur Grebe Striebling, who's been coming to us from Ribbington Hall. Uh, my, my pleasure, David. My pleasure. My, my, it is my pleasure. Thank you. That is uh, Sir Arthur Grebe Striebling. Well, Dan, uh, I think he'll come back. I think he had, it's, it sounded like he had a good time. Yeah, he did very well. Yeah, it's uh, he doesn't. He's never seen the show before. So do we have Professor Ben Burgess? Uh, Professor, Professor Burgess has not showed up yet. 
It might be time for a song. It might be time for a song. You want to sing or should I? Oh, go for it. Can't wait. All right. What, what, what should well, we... let, me push, let me push this button on the 5-bead uh, gizmo here. Oh, you're going to do we'll, the, we'll see how the beads? <laughs> uh, I, I had so much fun talking to Sir Griebling. He is... I'm, I'm such a an angler file. At is least. that what he used for her leg? <laughs> to file it down? Yeah. Yes. Let's listen to some music from Professor Mike Steinell. You're listening to The David Feldman Show, davidfeldmanshow.com. Please friend me on Facebook. Thank you to the mods who do a great job each week or each episode. And we have a YouTube channel. Sign up for my newsletter. Office hours, Friday at 8. Please come. You're all welcome. And Sir Arthur Griebling will be with us next Monday. Here's some new music. Not new music. Some old music from Professor Mike Steinell. I'm on my way to be a billionaire. Now you can make fun of me. But I don't really care I have a plan To get there By and by As long as I stay healthy And I never die Fifteen bucks an hour Five days a week Fifty-two weeks a year And thirty-two thousand years I know it's a long time, honey To thirty-four thousand and twenty but when I get there, babe, I'm gonna be in the money. I'm on my way to be a billionaire. Now you can make fun of me, but I don't really care. I have a plan to get there by and by. As long as I stay healthy and I never die. All I really need. It's a second job or a third Lift myself up my boots And join that elite herd Of the 600 billionaires In the USA Who make more in a second Than I do in a day I'm on my way Yes, I am I'm on my way I'm on my way Oh, yes, I am To get there, yes, I do, by and by. As long as I stay healthy and I never die. As long as I stay healthy and I never die. As long as I stay healthy and I never die. Welcome back. You're listening to The David Feldman Show. DavidFeldmanShow.com. 
And coming up, as soon as he arrives, Professor Ben Burgess, author of this book. Where is it? It just came. Christopher Hitchens. Huh? How about that? Christopher Hitchens, what he got right and how he went wrong and why he still matters. I don't know if he's going to be there today. Some people, you know, don't always show up. But uh, can you blame them? Let's see. What else is uh, going on in the news? Uh, Mark Zuckerberg, who runs Meta, 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 and Facebook, has lost $70 billion worth of wealth in the past year. He's lost $70 billion. Wow. I know the feeling. There are uh, two people. One, the 1.337 billion Mega Millions prize jackpot. They're keeping it anonymous. It's the largest jackpot ever in American history. Two people won. Uh, they're going to have to split $1.337 billion. That sucks. So, yeah. See, that's why I don't play the, the lottery. So you, what, you get like $600 million instead of $1.337 billion. It's not worth it. The number of people worth $50 million has spiked to a record high. How many people around the world do you think are worth $50 million or more? 40,000. There are 40,000 people on this planet who need to be punched in the face. If you live in Alaska today, or no, Tuesday, you got $3,000 dropped into your bank account. If you live in Alaska, they give you $3,000 a year. There's a universal basic income. It's from uh, oil, you know, but still you get 3,000 bucks uh, to live in Alaska. Uh, I get paid $6,000 not to live in Alaska. I don't want to explain why, but Trump support among Republicans has slipped five points in the past month. That's according to a new survey. Meanwhile, Joe Biden's approval rating is the highest it's been since last December. That's according to USA Today. If Ron DeSantis and Donald Trump competed face-to-face -face in a douchebag off in Florida, who do you think would win? DeSantis. Ron DeSantis tops Trump by eight points. Is it eight points? I think it's eight points. Is that what it says? Yeah, eight points. He would win a douchebag off in Florida. So DeSantis is more popular than, uh, than Donald Trump right now. DeSantis is being sued by civil rights groups because of his taking illegal, they're not illegals, undocumented migrants and flying them to places like Martha's Vineyard. Some of the migrants who were flown to Martha's Vineyard are now filing a class action suit against Ron DeSantis. But Ron DeSantis dismisses these lawsuits, calling them, quote unquote, political theater. And if there's one thing Ron DeSantis doesn't approve of its political theater. Mitch McConnell 
says it's a good idea to ship migrants to blue states. He says he has no problem with Ron DeSantis doing this. Meanwhile, his super PAC is no longer pumping money into the Senate race in Arizona, where Blake Master is running. But uh, McConnell is all in on Herschel Walker. He's hosting a fundraiser this week, I think tonight, for Georgia Senate candidate Herschel Walker, who is not too bright. And he's running against a really great guy, right? Senator Warnock, Raphael Warnock. But uh, you would think Raphael Warnock would have no problem defeating Herschel Walker. Herschel Walker is doing well in the polls in Georgia. Some of the polls show him leading Raphael Warnock. I will not play any video of Herschel Walker. I, I get all these clips of him uh, suffering from CTE. I just think it's cruel to, to play anything of Herschel Walker. Mike Franken, no relation to Al Franken, is running for Senate in Iowa. No relation to Al Franken. Mike Franken was accused of forcibly kissing a staffer, and it was looked into. The police say there's nothing there. Ron Johnson is the senator from Wisconsin. He's running against Mandela Barnes. He's the Democrat, the lieutenant governor of Wisconsin. And Mandela Barnes, in the latest USA Today poll, is leading Ron Johnson by one point. That looks good. And in Texas, the Dallas Morning News has a poll out showing Beto O'Rourke trailing uh, Governor Greg Abbott by nine points. Not good. And a new poll shows that a majority of Republican voters want to make Christianity the official religion here in the United States. They want... They want to get rid of the First Amendment's Establishment Clause, and they want to declare, this is the majority of Republicans, they want to make Christianity the official religion. I wonder where these Republicans would get this idea from, other than listening to every single Republican in Congress and in the Senate. That is a pretty fright. That is frightening. That is absolutely frightening. Bill Maher gave an interview with Variety, and he says, woke baggage is Democrats' biggest problem. He says the biggest problem facing Democrats going into the midterms is woke baggage, and he says Democrats need to stop talking about pregnant men. Wow, Bill Maher just gets smarter and smarter. He has his finger on the pulse of America because all I... All I talk about, I'm a Democrat, is pregnant men. And all my Democratic friends, all we talk about is pregnant men. And Bill Maher is so smart. He's so right. That's all Bernie Sanders talks about. That Joe Biden, if he talks, if Joe Biden talks about pregnant men one more time, I'm going to leave this country. You know, he could, there are all these things that Joe Biden could talk about. Right. You know, uh, 
Ukraine. He could talk about inflation. Joe Biden could be talking about the environment. He could be talking about protecting the right to an abortion. But now all Joe Biden talks about is pregnant men. Who is Bill Maher hanging out with? What, what Democrats is he hanging out with who are talking about pregnant men? And as I mentioned earlier, Roseanne Barr uh, has joined Fox Nation and will be doing a comedy special for Fox Nation because comedians are so smart. We should listen to comedians like Bill Maher and Rose, Roseanne Barr because they're the canaries in the coal mine. And by that, I mean they have brains the size of canaries. Uh, we should listen to comedians. Is Ben Burgess there? No. Okay. Uh, we have 11 minutes to kill, Dan. Um, I have a five-question quiz if we want to grab a contestant or we can continue the news. Uh, why don't we quiz uh, Sir Anthony, Sir Arthur Grebe Striebling? What, what's the quiz on? I'll tell you if we're going to do it. Well, let me see if Sir Arthur Grebe Striebling would like to compete. Sir Arthur, are you there? I was tucking into a lovely, lovely corgi. Oh, you, you're eating corgi? Yes. Yeah. Fine. Let's go. Let's do how this did, How did you prepare the corgi? Nettle soup, as always. Lovely nettle soup, boiled, trimmed, and shaved. Creamed and shaved. That's me. Uh, I, I eat the, uh, I eat oh. the uh, corgi full of fur. Oh, you're creamed and shaved. Very much so. You, you eat, you sit down. It's like a formal dinner where you're creamed and shaved. Uh, I'd say more ritualistic than formal. Okay. Now, are you competitive? Uh, it depends, really. But, uh, yeah, yeah, I'd say yes. Okay. I'm going to put some money in the kitty here. Now, you said earlier you're destitute. Is that correct? Yeah, well, in manner, yeah, cash-wise, yes, but one has reached a level in society where cash is not really a necessity. Okay. Dan, Quizmaster Dan? Here we go. What's, what, what's the quiz on? In mid-September 1835, the HMS Beagle of the Royal Navy reaches the Galapagos Islands. On board for a trip around the world was a man who would end up being a very accomplished scientist, Today's quiz is on Charles Darwin. Well, that's not fair <clears throat> because I've evolved. Sir yeah. Striebling? For Striebling? Do you know who I, Charles I, Darwin I, is? I'm aware of the man's work. I have no truck in it. I believe in the Lord you believe uh, in, Jesus Christ. But you do believe in uh, Spencer's survival of the fittest, correct? Well, actually, it's a misnomer. It's the survival of the adaptable. Which, again, ah. I don't believe in. Nice. I believe in the survival of the posh. The survival of the posh. Yes. Okay. Let us. He is competitive. He is. He corrected you immediately. <laughs> he, yes, he I is. I don't need to compete. I'm posh. <laughs> yes, he's posh. Let, well, let, uh, let's. We start. have five questions, and uh, Sir Striebling is going to go first. So here's the first question: What was the purpose of Darwin's presence on the HMS Beagle? Was it Darwin was to complete research for the Queen. 
Darwin was to be a scholarly companion to the ship's captain. There was no real purpose. Darwin was a young man who simply wanted to see the world. Or the other option was Dar Loss. Hmm. Sir Arthur. Ah, I think it's B. God, he can play. That's amazing. Are you hunting peasant as we speak? Oh, that's the neighbors. Oh, okay. At this it's what's called It's what's called lamping. It's the middle of the night here, so they corner a peasant. And get out the floodlight, startle the peasant, and then take the shot. How do you sleep with all that going on? It's much like living next to the railway line. It's, it becomes habit. It becomes part of the furniture. Okay. Yes. You, get, you get very tired after sewing their leg back on. Yes, well, that's unfortunate. Very unfortunate. Indeed. What, repeat the question, please. What was the purpose of Dar- Darwin's to presence? To see the world. The what did HMS? I say so to the, see. It was to uh, complete research for the queen, to be a scholarly companion to the captain, which is what uh, <laughs> Sir Sreebling chose. Yeah, I, I agree uh, with that. You agree with that? Yes. Uh, the answer is B. Darwin was to be a scholarly companion to the ship's captain. Yes. Okay, it's tied up. One to one. A little aside for that, a little info. It was customary for that time period for a British captain to never interact socially with his crew. So the voyage would be a lonely one with no one to talk to. So he was invited to be a stimulating conversation. And the pe- and the peasants in the barrel. The barrel of peasants. Yes, yes. It's the main reason Darwin actually went along. Just to eat heard rumors. To eat peasants. Uh, heard rumors and wanted a clarifying for himself. And uh, he became addicted to uh, children of a certain age. Uh, in the edible form, that is. Yes, I get it. He wrote uh, Origin of the Species, not Peter Pan. Yes, the more succulent. Yeah. Question number two. David is first. What was the acknowledged short title of Darwin's groundbreaking book in which he presented his theory of evolution? On the origin of species, the evolution of life, natural selection, or Lady Chatterley's lover? I'm going to go with A. Sir Arthur. I'm also going to go with A. And you are both correct. That hour of the night and they're still hunting peasants. It's tied two to two. Question number three. Question number three. Uh, Sir Striebling, you are first. Darwin collected various specimens of birds while on Galapagos. While he thought he had several different species of birds, a specialist examined the evidence and concluded that all the birds were different species of finches, and each species was isolated on its own island. What was it about the finches that became intriguing to Darwin? The, it, the, oh, here's, oh, here's a marvelous I was going to make some stupid up there, sorry. Calm down, sir. Well, hang on. I, I do bird calls. But I know that Sir Arthur Greeb Striebling also does bird calls. 
This is a a finch that do a finch. <laughs> That's a finch, right? Yes. Great job. I did that with my armpit. Do do a sparrow. <laughs> yep. Same again. With your armpit. Yep. Okay. Do a a blue jay. Are you doing that with your armpit? Oh, no. (laughs) (laughs) Let's not venture into the realm of that noise. This is a lot of people are eating right now. Uh, Okay, next question, please. Uh, The question is still there. I got to give you the options. Who's Uh, up, though? Who has to answer? um, Sir Striebling has to answer. Mm Mm-hmm. And uh, the options for this question, which, which was uh, what was intriguing to Darwin about the differences in these uh, finches, uh, was that each finch species had a specialized beak that allowed it to uh, feed on the food source available. Was it each finch species evolved with a distinct uh, coloration that allowed it to camouflage itself in its environment? Were the finches interbred with other bird types of each island, making it unique. Or one particular species of finch kept stealing fistmas. <laughs> wow. The finch who stole fistmas. Wow. That's so bad. I can't believe I didn't come up with it. I he very much very believed in sanded claws. <laughs> oh. Did he drop out immediately? Hmm. Uh, A. Yes. Uh, Sir Striebling is going with a specialized beak. Uh, what were the choices again? Anything with wings? A specialized beak? Um, distinctive coloration for camouflage? Or they interbred with other birds, making them unique? Uh, I'm going to go uh, A. The correct answer is A. It is B. We've added a new sound effect. Did you notice that? <laughs> that was wonderful. Yeah. Question number four. I got to start the sound effect machine. All right. All right. It's working now. You're pedaling? Yeah, I'm pedaling and, and some diesel. We use a little diesel. All right. Here we go. All right. The sound effects are ready. Two Who's, more questions. This is number four. David is first. What it's, was the name it, of the tied three to three? Correct. Uh, you're the scorekeeper, but that that sounds like what a normal person would think. Tied three to three. What was the name of the scientist doing similar work to Darwin in uh, Papua New Guinea? Was it Joseph Banks, John Henslow, Alfred Wallace, or Doctor Handall Uppenturtles? Doctor, I, I'm tempted to say Dr. Handall up in turtles. Get, give me them again, please. Uh, Joseph Banks, John Henslow, Alfred Wallace, or Dr. Handall up in turtles? I'm going to say Banks. Sir Arthur? Correct. I'd say Banks too, yes. Well, the correct answer, you're both wrong on this one. It's Alfred Wallace. Long live the king. I'm sorry, what? 
Long live the king. Yes. Last question. Uh, and we're tied. Arthur, you are tied. Sir Arthur Griebstriebling, uh, you are to answer first. Charles Darwin. Charles Darwin. That's married, what his wife called him. Hey, Darwin. He married Emma Wedgwood in 1839, a very religious woman. She feared her husband's salvation was in jeopardy due to the ideas he had begun to theorize. How did Charles and Emma meet? Were uh, they were childhood sweethearts? They were first cousins. They were introduced by Emma's brother, a deckhand on the HMS Beagle. Or in a late night cram session, they conceived a child after studying wild turkey. Hmm. Is there the option all of the above? <laughs> <laughs> Well, that, that's a possibility now that I'm looking at it, but that is not, that's not like the me, answer. You sound like me reading the menu at the Mustang Ranch. <laughs> <laughs> so childhood sweethearts, first cousins, uh, introduced by Emma's brother, or a cram session after wild turkey? <laughs> Meeting on the HMS Beagle. Oh, we're going to have a winner here tonight, because I'm going to oh. disagree. I'm going to say uh, brother and sister or cousins. They were the correct answer is they were first cousins. But they are the aristocracy. I won. Robert. Charles Darwin married his sister. Yes. They, they say cousin, but they were brother and sister. <laughs> You slowly evolved into the winner tonight. <laughs> Thank you. I crawled out of the primordial ooze that is the show to defeat Sir Arthur Grebe Striebling. Well, this is, thank you, Sir Arthur Grebe Striebling. You, uh, it is an honor to have you on the show. Thank you. I know it is. Yeah. Well, um, <laughs> uh, now, did you, were you ever married to uh, one of your cousins or did you marry any of your No, I actually was married to my sister. Ah, and how did, point. I'm sorry? Moot point. How long did it last? Uh, approximately 13 hours. 13 hours. Yes, and, yes. And I had her killed. I'm sorry? I had her killed. You had her killed? Yes. Uh, let me ask you a question. That's still, it's legal to marry your sister, but not your brother in Great Britain, as I understand it. Only for aristocracy, yes. Right. Where you, you yeah, get a number of different rules. A, a brother can marry a sister, but a sister can't marry a brother. The, the sister gets beheaded. And that's is that why you killed your sister because yes. she broke the law? I forced her to marry me only so I could kill her. I see. It's interesting yes. laws that uh, yes that you have where the the it's legal for the brother to marry the sister, but not legal for the sister to marry the brother. And that's yes. how so you married your sister and then. You shot her for breaking the law. Yes, but she tried to stop me from marrying my cousin. <laughs> I see. Thank you, Sir Arthur Griebstriebling. And thank you, Quizmaster Dan Frankenberger. Great job. Thank you. Let's thank you. The Hershen Files have arrived. So let's here we go, go to Cape Cod, where Dr. Philip Hershenfeld is standing by with the author of Today Is Now. 
written by Dr. Samuel Benjamin. Yes. Everybody should go buy this book. I did something Please. horrible. I, oh. I had somebody go to Amazon for me. I won't oh, say look who. at that. You have it. I, I right. bought the book. It's not and a floating it, meme anymore. It's uh, an actual book. Thank you. Yes. Wow. Well, no, thank you. It's hysterical. And everybody should pick this book up. Who is the dog? That is Fafner. Fafner is the Chihuahua Shih Tzu, the 12-year-old. She's currently in New York with Gornemont's, the puppy, and with my partner in the dungaree business. Mm -hmm. And Loki is, is here with, with us. But I think I might be bringing Loki to New York, unbeknownst to the rest of the pack, because I have to be there for several days next week. And I, I just feel like time is short with him. I don't want to leave him for a few days with a dog sitter. I would hate for him to expire while with a sitter. Right. That's too much pressure, isn't it? And yet, and yet, he feels free to leave me alone. <laughs> Go figure. Oh, because you have the, the, the capacity uh, of language. You can express yourself. You can oh. say things like, I think I'm going. Get, get him on the phone. If Loki was going, he would just sit there and look. It's this, I mean, that's a terrible thought. Okay. But you Guilt. can say, hey, uh, text. Text my son. Guilt. Yeah. Is it wrong to make a child or someone you love feel guilty? When did it, you know, when did it stop well, being okay to do that? Guilt actually derives from the German word Geld, which is gold. Guilt is a golden gift that we can give. <laughs> guilt is a golden gift that we give to those we love. And wasn't it's the dollar at one time on the guilt standard? Wasn't that how? Well, wasn't, Nixon, I think, undid that. Yeah. Nixon undid. We, it used to be the dollar was strong if Americans were feeling guilty. And if we and it was weak when we were, you know, we had a laissez-faire attitude. To right. it. And there's Latin. If you turn over your dollar bill, it says e pluribus unum, which means call your mother. <laughs> and there's an I looking at you <laughs> saying call your mother. Mm -hmm. So tell me about this idyllic setting. You're, you're in Cape Cod. Tell me it's, what you did uh, today. There was a torrential situation here today. There's a, there was a, the remnants of a hurricane, I guess. And right behind you, this, see the, the, behind us, this white wall, this is brand new because there was a, there was a fireplace there. The, the, the mason, I'm putting solar on here. The mason said, sorry, the, the solar people said, you need a new roof if we're going to do solar. And the roof people said, you need a new chimney if we're going to do a new roof. <laughs> Yeah, you said you need a new house. <laughs> I am a, I am what's known in the in the trades as a sucker. <laughs> so the chimney guy started repairing. He was just going to repair six feet. He said, "No, we got to take the whole thing down. It's not. It's uh, wow. it's dangerous." Wow. So we took the whole thing down, and then he said, "Do you want to put a new one up?" We had a hole in the house. I said, "No, just just close it up." So now there's no. There's no chimney. There's no wood burning stove, which I feel better about as a uh, a bleeding heart environmentalist. Right. There will be no more burning of carbon. Although a friend of mine said, you know, those logs sitting in the woods, they also release carbon into the atmosphere, which is true. But it takes 100 years as opposed to taking 10 minutes. Right. When you burn and the there logs. is an argument that 
trees, if uh, it, it cancels it out because trees do such a great job as the earth's lungs that they're entitled after a lifetime of breathing in carbon dioxide and breathing out oxygen to be set on fire and really just kick it all out. That, that, yeah, I don't think it holds water. Also, we learned, I think we talked about this four weeks ago. It turned out a lot of those wood pellets in Europe are coming from clear cut forests in Romania. So people, it's, 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 it's classified as green and renewable energy, but not the way it's being done. There's wasn't a whole it, black market. Wasn't it Sarah Palin who said forests cause air pollution? No, that was Reagan. It was oh, Reagan. Reagan. Yeah. 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 Maybe it was Bush. No, it was, it was, it was, it was Reagan. Mm. Describe yeah. the weather in Cape Cod because. It's humid. But, it's but you had a storm. Is it fun or scary now? No, it was was nice. I enjoyed the storm a lot, especially since there was a big drought here. Things were extremely dry, and now we had over an inch of rain today, and we had two-tenths of an inch of rain on Monday or Tuesday. But I think think what David asked was... uh, it was scary. Do you enjoy it? And now you're intellectualizing. You're deflecting the question. You're talking about meteorological statistics. But I think he wanted you to open up a little bit. <laughs> Thank you, Doctor Benjamin. What were your What were your feelings about the weather? Not statistics. You know, should we interpret this? I come into Ethan's very nice living room here, and the first thing he shows me on his television set is a therapist being shackled in a dungeon treating a A psychopathic serial killer. It's, 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 yeah. Is that Carell's new thing? Carell. It's Carell. It's called the the killer or the therapist. It's called the therapist. So should we look into this any deeper as to why this was was grieving to me? He... He's in a prison. Shack. He feels he's shackled to you in a prison that, okay. he, that he can't get out of. Okay, that's what I. I that's no, what I, I, was, well, I was watching it. It's good enough. The series. It's a little bit hokey, but it's it's fun. Is it hard, Doctor Hershenfeld? I would assume in this day and age, where everybody is accusing everybody of gaslighting them, that. Everybody would accuse you in your personal life, not to get too personal, but like I'm accused of being manipulative and gaslighting people. I would assume if you're a Freudian psychiatrist, that's the first thing everybody says to you. It's the first thing that certain people say to me. And my stock answer is, I'm sorry I don't work for free. (laughs) There are no free samples. (laughs) Nothing's going on except what's going on on the surface. Half this country, the the National uh, Health Service uh, earlier this week said anybody under the age of 65 should be tested for anxiety. And there are studies that half this country is suffering from anxiety. 
That's bullshit. That's total bullshit. A hundred percent of this country is <laughs> anxiety. Um, it's part of the human condition, as is depression. Um, all of these. I think emotions. they mean. I think they mean. I think what David was getting at was. Oh, you're now his interpreter. <laughs> <laughs> I think what he meant. What, what no. he meant. What did no. I mean, Doctor? No, we're Explain. talking about about whether it rises to the level of needing some sort of therapy or some some attention, not just the base. There's, of course, a, a background level of anxiety and moodiness in, in the world. That's that. Like you said, that's the human condition. But do, do tens of millions of people need to be treated for it now? I would say they do. And I would say the best treatment for it is a, a technique called eclectic modality therapy, as developed and practiced by Dr. Samuel Benjamin. You can read all about it in Today Is Now. The beautiful thing about eclectic modality therapy is it only takes three sessions. It doesn't take three decades or three years. It takes three sessions. The results are what's known as, in the business, guaranteed. Mm. Guaranteed. So uh, he's batting a 1,000 if you, if you, uh, if you like uh, baseball metaphors. If you don't, well, he just he, he never fails. Now, what is is it EMDR where they wave a finger in front of your eye and they cure you? Have you heard of this, Doctor Benjamin? Yeah, it's that rapid. Uh, it resets uh, something in in the noggin. It's called, and it's called and, EMDR. Um, EM ESMR. That's where people whisper to you into a microphone. But EMDR is where you wag a finger. And I honestly don't know. That's not part of the EMT smorgasbord of therapeutic options. I see. Okay. But I did hear about that one. That's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. You know that one? Uh, it, it's one of the many bullshit. Um... Mm. No, 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 no. It works. I know people who've done it and who, who practice it. Everything works through the, through, through the expectation that it's going to work. I, you know what? I, it works for me if, if somebody goes, no, 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 no. Don't be depressed. No, 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 no. Now, not to be indelicate here, but yeah. I read the New York Post. Okay. And we have jumpers. Not to be rude, but there, there seems to be a rash of people jumping out the windows of some of these uh, apartments. Is there a statistical, is there an uptick? Or is this just run well, of the mill? It was more of a downtick, actually. But uh, no, there was, it's, it seems to be young. I've noticed, this is anecdotal, mm -hmm. young women. Mm. Are, are we don't pay attention to anecdotal in science. I know we, that, but, but it's the New York Post. Oh, um, There's, they seem to be young women jumping yeah. out of windows and not to make light of it. I haven't read about that. I have not. I have not seen that. And I look at the post also. Right. With one eye closed. It's grotesque. And then if you go into the comments, it's just a racist cesspool. I can't believe it's legal. What goes on in the comments of that rag? Sorry. Go ahead. So why do you read because he can't take his eyes off. He can't take his eye off it. Yeah, yeah. I'm worried 
that I'm going to be killed by a jumper. That I'm going to be walking to pick up my New York Stay under scaffolding. Get, Stay under an scaffolding. Umbrella. Get a big umbrella. But, but, okay. Head, headless body in topless bar. Yes. Yeah. That best. was the best thing that Rag ever wrote. Yes. And New York oh. City, for to New York City, drop dead. Right. I would say walk in the street instead of on the sidewalk, if you're really worried about that. Yeah. And get hit by a bus. <laughs> Did you know that Winston Churchill was hit by a bus here in New York? Yeah. I thought it was a taxi. Hmm. Well, they call it in Britain, they call buses taxis and they oh, call taxis okay. buses here. In, uh, yeah, he, he, he looked the wrong way and we could have lost the Second World War. Wow. You know, you were talking earlier about a two-state solution. Um, you know, uh, a two-state solution is ice water. Go on. We have a, we have a physicist liquid. coming on the show, but go ahead. Explain. It has both liquid and solid. It's two states. And yes. it's a solution. Ice water, the two-state solution. And <laughs> if you boil the water and create steam, you have a three-state solution. <laughs> That's like a wreck. So I heard the prime minister of Israel, King Abdullah of Jordan at the UN, talking about a two-state solution. Hmm. And I thought, what do they they think? It's 1996? What what are they? There's there's no... There's no talk anymore of a, of a two-state solution. Yeah, and then they were playing the song Hammer Time. <laughs> to me, that sounds like a convenient way for people to wash their hands of the situation. Absolutely. I agree completely. I agree completely. And, and a lot of people in Israel now want to kill the Israeli prime minister for making that speech. For saying that he's for a two-state solution. Yeah. Is Israel, because there there was a time when you had a sense there was an opposition to the Likud mindset. Is, is that disappearing? Is the country becoming more conservative? I, uh, yeah, there's still a lot of liberals. But it turns out that even, even Netanyahu, once upon a time, spoke for a two-state solution. So the people who are going nuts over there seem to have forgotten that. Well, listen, I haven't been there in almost 20 years, and I, I can't think about the subject too much. It's, it's too bleak. But right. I would say Netanyahu, when, if and when he talked about that, he was doing what David's saying now that this Lapid is doing, which is just uh, it's convenient to talk about it and then not do anything. How much influence would the United States, could the United States have in pushing Israel to come up with something? Because the the Israelis and the Palestinians haven't talked in almost nine years. It seems to me that after Clinton, George W. Bush was too preoccupied and just said to Israel, do whatever you want. Obama washed his hands of Israel. He didn't want to he didn't. He obviously didn't approve of the settlements, but he didn't find it politically expedient to go after uh, Israel. And certainly, Trump 
made things worse for the Palestinians, moving the embassy to Jerusalem. Uh, if, if America were more hands-on like it had been before, could it influence? Is I don't think so. They, they, they will not be pushed around, influenced in a direction that they think is inimical to their own survival. Right. It's the solution. Right. I thought of this all by myself. And it is not, as I said earlier, anti-Semitic for somebody to be upset with the situation. Right. That's an important point. I agree. And that's an important point, what you said. A- absolutely. Uh, you, you, we were about to have a real scoop here. You were going to you have a solution, you said? I do. OK, let's hear it. Um, the United States gives the Technion University in Haifa $10 billion. Okay, I'm writing this down. (laughs) Okay, step one. Step one. Uh So that they can develop um, solar collectors that are... 10 times as efficient as the current ones we have now, thereby solving the pollution problem in the world and the... um, Dependence on OPEC. Dependence on OPEC, on Saudi Arabia, on Russia... And I think if this is done, and then everybody will have abundant free energy, and I think the world will be a much better place. Solar powered, solar powered car bombs is what you're saying. This is the future. Solar powered <laughs> tanks. So this I, is. I like the idea. I just feel like they're already working on that. That's of what scientists they're do. They're always yes. doing that. They don't need ten billion dollars. Yes, to do they that. do. The more money they have, the quicker they're going to do it. What if we the, make? What if? What if Israel becomes the fifty-first state? Mm-hmm. They won't do that either. And they all become Americans. <laughs> they become Americans. Okay. Why don't you propose that? They are very stubborn people. Thick-necked is, I believe God said you're a thick-necked stiff, people. Stiff-necked. See, God called them a stiff-necked people. I don't mean to, to, I don't mean to correct you. Go, go right okay. ahead. He, in the Bible, he said, uh, you're a thick-necked people. Maybe you were reading the King James You're, version. You keep interrupting me. But ah, let him do the joke. F- he's, <laughs> it's not a joke. This is, he said, you're a stiff-necked people, except for David's Aunt Bessie, who's a thick-necked person, is what. Who what was it? Who wrestled I think with? What he said was, "They're a great neck people <laughs> from Long Island." Yeah. Who who wrestled with God? Was it? Uh, Jacob. Jacob, Jacob wrestled with an angel. Yes. Yeah. And and the angel said, "You're a thick, stiff-necked people." Is that what? No. That's that's not where it happened. There's something when the when the people of Israel in the desert, led by Moses. 
didn't do something correctly that God wanted them to do or Moses wanted them to do. And I think that's when they were declared a stiff-necked people, meaning a stubborn people. And by the way, don't you two guys... <laughs> I like where this is going already. Don't Every you two Jew guys. I know has a stiff neck, come to think of it. I, my neck is killing me. Don't you think I missed it when Dr. Benjamin over here called you Dave? I didn't say Dave. You said Dave. You said Dave. Run the tapes. No, I said David. We'll listen to it later. Let me play um, it back. Hang on. I can play things back now. Watch. Hang on. We I have a new David. We have a new thing. Hang on. I wouldn't Watch I wouldn't this. that would be presumptuous. It was to, five right. minutes ago. <laughs> <laughs> Dave. Oh, I just <laughs> see we played it back. Hey, I've been waiting for hey, that for I, for five years. I've had that sitting. For those of you listening, I, we had old film filter going over that. So, well, it, it leads me to suspect that the two of you have a conspiracy brewing against me. Okay, paranoia. Just, I like wow. the just, way you're thinking. Paranoia is. Thank you. It's not just for the patients. <laughs> I find my parent. I have found if I don't return calls and I stay indoors and I limit my exposure to other human beings through texting, my paranoia is at a base level. It's it's manageable. Hmm. So it's through more contact with other people. Other people make me paranoid. <laughs> All right. What are you um, reading? Oh, I'm reading 4321. Thanks to Dr. Benjamin over here. I was in a thrift shop in Wellfleet, and I see this big, thick book. I didn't know a thing about it, but it was for four bucks. So and I then figured, three, and then two, and then one. I figured there's a bargain, so I bought it for him. Yeah, and I, it turned out I had already read it, but then I recommended what it. What is it? Paul it's Paul Oster. It's from about four years ago. It's a good book. It's very, I started reading it. It's a novel. I would re highly recommend it. It's and, thick. So for, it's per page. It was very cheap for four bucks. No, yeah. it's stiff. It's not thick. It's <laughs> stiff. It's a stiff book, not a thick book. Now, are you able, like, you're on vacation, you're in Cape Cod, are you able to... How many hours are you able to lose yourself in a book? Two more days I'm on vacation, just so, how, so you know. How many hours um, can you go? When I was a kid, I could read for 10 hours straight without getting up. And it's, it's been gradually going down. It's uh, a diminishing line. And I think now it's 20 minutes, if I'm lucky. And Ethan, have you ever been yeah. able to read for 10 hours? I was never that good a, a reader. Uh, I could force myself to do it back when I was an English major in college and you had to read a lot. of. Uh, so I could do it. But no, my natural setting is like that also. I can't and, I don't find myself lately able to just sink into it and get lost in it. And if somebody forces you to read a book, see, I can read for t if I have the time, I can lay on the couch and read for 10 hours 
until somebody says to me, you know, you should clean up the, the puddle <laughs> on the couch. Oh, I didn't notice it. I, uh, but as long as I'm reading what I want to read, but the minute somebody says, no, you have to read Tale of Two Cities by Wednesday, then yeah. I, I can't, I lose interest. I can't do it. I, I'm, were you able in college to, to go for 10 hours? Could you read books that were assigned to you? Here's, yeah. Here, here's, yeah. Here's my example of that. I was assigned to read Great Expectations for a college course. I love Dickens. Couldn't get myself to do it. You had heard the, such great things about the book, though. Right. The night it after had, the exam, I stayed up the entire night and polished off the entire book. Hmm. That's called neurosis. Is that the pill you took, neuroses? I, I used to take uh, speed, but... Uh, and how'd you do on the test? I'm pretty good at making up answers. So. As you've learned on the show. <laughs> What's for dinner tonight? It was disappointing. We both separately, it turned out, made terrible dishes. Yeah. He had tofu with a can of pumpkin puree on top of it. I don't recommend And it. I had a butternut squash that didn't come out sweet. It was just, it was like chewing on a... <laughs> on a shoe, but the dog liked the bits I gave to him. And that was it. And then just punishment. And are the leaves changing? I'm actually driving uh, on Saturday. Are the leaves changing? A little bit. Yeah. All right. Well, we've been talking with Dr. Philip Hershenfeld and Ethan Hershenfeld, whose alter ego, Dr. Samuel Benjamin, has written this amazing book, Today, Today is, is Now. now. To go um, by Today is Now, and you get a cup of coffee with the book, yeah. I believe. Yeah, I will sign it for you, and I will meet you. I will buy your coffee. I will sign your book, and I will solve whatever problems you have. Yeah, I will be in character, and I will solve your problems, be they relationship problems, mood problems, financial problems. It's it's He's very uh, eclectic. Also, let me say this. The um, I did get an answer finally from a lawyer on whether I could be Dr. Benjamin on TikTok because I was concerned, as opposed to a book or a movie that's clearly satirical, if I'm on TikTok as Dr. Benjamin, could I get in trouble if one of those women you describe uh, watches my TikTok and then leaps from a penthouse? Mm -hmm. So the answer from the lawyer was as long as I, I state in the comments that I'm not a real doctor. So it can't be hidden in a bio, but it just has to be front and center. Not a real doctor. So the Dr. Benjamin, Dr. S. Benjamin on TikTok, um, please sign up. Dr. Okay. S. Benjamin. Very good. Hey, I have some bragging to do. Please, yes. please. Did you see the article about Renan in the New York Times? Uh, amazing. Wow. I got to look at it. His new special. A rave review. It's Renan Hirschberg, right? Yeah, Renan Hirschberg, of course. Yeah. This, this is, so I wrote him a note. So I was about a year and a half ago, just on my phone looking at com, you know, comics on YouTube, and I see Renan. And I'm going, oh, this, like, this guy's amazing. And yeah. out of the blue, and I, I just, I said, I have this silly little podcast will you come on uh and he said yes and 
he got a review for his new special in the New York Times, like rave review. That is great. That's great. And I thought, if somebody's really talented, it jumps at you. It just jumps off the screen, which is why I am where I am <laughs> in this business. But you're a kingmaker, it turns out. It tur- I, I have good taste. Yes. I, that, Not yes. everybody has that. I have good taste. I just, I personally don't taste so good, but my taste is when it comes to comedy. Is That's not nothing. That's not That's nothing. Right. Thank you both. Thank you, David. Thank you, Thank you Dave. Thank you. <laughs> Bye. Bye. You're listening to the Dave Feldman Show. DaveFeldman.com. Go to my website, DavidFeldmanShow.com. And while you're over there, sign up for my newsletter. Thank you uh, to uh, the Hershenfelds. And office hours every Friday night at 8 p.m. Sign up for my newsletter. My newsletter comes out every Friday at 6, two hours before office hours. It's a great newsletter. It really is. And we have a YouTube channel, so subscribe to it. Emil Guillermo is the host of the PETA podcast, and he's also a columnist for ALDEF, the Asian American Legal Defense and Education Fund. Before I bring you in, I have a request. Your microphone sometimes comes in a little too hot. So can we just try turning your microphone down just a, a little bit? Okay, okay, here. Let me, I got to rub yeah, it. Oh, yeah, it's hot. It's definitely hot. Right now, no, no, no. Better? Is it better? Well, I, you know, I don't know why people do this. They say better and they don't keep talking. Yeah, can, okay. can, you can Is count it. At, at this level, am I, uh, uh, am I in a deferential position? Yeah, maybe, uh, uh <clears throat> I think Dan, how does it? It's good now. Okay, thank you. Good. Okay, all right, sorry. I, I don't. I don't mean to come. You know in what too it is? Long. The microphone is a little too close to your lips. I think that's what does it. Uh, well, I, I know it's it's intended to be that. I mean, this is one of those you use it in the stadium so that you, you, they hear you instead of the fifty thousand people cheering for the touchdown. And where are we now? Uh, I'm in my closet. Mm-hmm. And how many people in the closet with you? There's like uh, a bunch of empty suits yeah, and uh, and just me. And they're all quiet. They're all quiet. So that way I can like uh, okay. speak softly like this. D- D- David, so good to see you. Okay. Now is he, is he still hot? Let me ask the, hot? let me ask the our, other things. How's okay. he coming in? Better, it's better than normal. Better than normal. That's, that's, that's yes. Good. Okay. Very oh, thank good. You. Thank you, Professor Ann. You are friendly with Henry Furman, who died last week at the age of 65. He, he was, was the head copy editor uh, in the for the L.A. Times. And I cannot believe you want to talk about AP Style because I just purchased the AP Style book. 
You did? Yes, they have it. Why? Why would you want to purchase AP? Because the only one, the only ones who care about AP style are people who are under the tyranny of AP style. And and those would be the ink-stained wretches who worked in newspapers, which when we met, I was a broadcaster. We were on, I was in television, and then I worked in the radio. And AP style is not an issue for people who are verbal, but for people who write, you know, and now I guess things are multiple platform. Things are uh, both uh, spoken as well as written. However, everyone has their own style book, Washington Post, New York Times, but AP style for newspapers. If you're a newspaper guy and, and Henry, when I say he was head copywriter, he was assistant managing editor for copy the library and standards. And then he retired a few years ago and he was teaching at USC Annenberg school and he died um, last week. He had uh, esophageal cancer. His and last I, words I, were stet, I believe. Or 30. I don't know. Or 30, but 30 like, is better. 30 is better. 30 is that, better. But you know, I like when I first met you, like I said, I was a broadcaster. I ended up doing stuff in newspapers and that's why I had to get AP style. I don't even think I have the update. I mean, I got one of my original ones. But why are you reading AP style? I write and yeah. I find it fascinating. I wanted to be a print journalist Yeah. when I was a kid. I thought that would be the key to happiness. I was a... Poverty. Key to poverty. Well, yeah. And I would... During... Uh, two summers, I was a police reporter for the Hudson Dispatch in ah. Jersey City, New Jersey. It was like something out of, you know, that Clark Gable, Doris Day movie. It was everything was in black and white. You walk. I would walk into the newsroom and I thought this was the center of the universe. Clackety, clackety, clickety, clack. Yeah. No, no computers, typewriters. And then when I went to work for KRON and met you... I walked into the newsroom and it was like a library. Everybody was on computers. And I went, this is, this isn't electric. How, I, I honestly thought, how do you have a newsroom without typewriters? Yeah. Clacking? Do you remember, do you remember the day that we took all the typewriters and we put it in a closet and we locked up the closet? Do you remember that day? No, no, yeah. I was there. I was there. Uh, after the, the, the typewriters were put in the closet. Oh, well, and by the way, it was San there, Francisco. There were a lot of empty closets in San Francisco. Yeah. yeah. Were, but were you there? There was a big, uh, power outage and we had to find the, we had to find the typewriters. So we had to go back to the closets and bring out the typewriters. Were you there on that day? That was a really no. strange, because no. it was still a kind of transition period. What, what I'm what I'm saying though is that when you're in print, AP style is everything. When you and and the and the you're right about that that there's a romance to uh, to newspapers and journalists. You really feel like you're doing something important when you were in when you're in television. You feel like you know where's my makeup? Uh, what camera do I look at? It's showbiz. It really is showbiz. Yeah. Right. I mean it's showbiz. So, all right, so you got AP style. Do you know that I have a sense memory? I shared this with a friend of mine. Yeah. In, in Coitsville, New Jersey, 
There's a 7-Eleven in Coitsville, New Jersey, a 9W. And whenever I had a, a byline, I would go to the Coitsville 7-Eleven to pick up the Hudson Dispatch. And th there was the smell of the 7-Eleven. It just had the smell back then of coffee and donuts and plastic and newsprint. And I walked into that 7-Eleven about a month ago and my knees buckled and I felt like I was 20. I, I smelled that that moment where, you know, I was reaching for the Hudson Dispatched to see my article. And it was it was I, I it, it was, so, you know, I wish I could relive. I, I want to get back to that time. It, it was a, a very special time and newspapers were so important. I bet you. If you went back to that, was there any newspaper available to buy? Yeah. yeah. It was? Not the Hudson Dispatch, though. It's, it's gone out of business. Well, now everything is digital. Uh, the, the story I wrote, actually some of the best. It was the cool, the Hudson Dispatch was like a dream. I mean, yeah. it was a, this big building in, in Jersey City. It was like five stories high. They had the printing press, the delivery trucks. They had a newsroom. It had been in, when I joined to intern there, it, there was like they had been in business 70 years, not 50 years. They had the, the idea that it was ever going to go out of business was beyond. It, I actually. Well, it, did you ever look out the window and, and, and look at Manhattan and say someday Times Square? going there did you ever dream that from the hudson Dispatch? someday i'm going to go to one of those strip joints and get a freebie <laughs> because i work for the hudson dispatch yeah say you're reviewing it for yeah. the for the for the lifestyle section. we went up yahoo took over the old new york times building oh they didn't yeah and katie kirk right. was doing a show for yahoo and we went up there to to do something for her and it was the old new york times building and it was depressing it, it didn't, it just felt Look, right. newspaper uh, newsrooms were depressing. The The first time I saw a newspaper newsroom was in All the President's Men. And it's like just lights, fluorescent lights. It's like, and you can, it, it's like the size, it looks like, it looked like a size of a football field and you can see everybody. There were no, you know, the cubicles were like everyone was down. And if you popped your head up, you can see across like 30 yards and you can see everybody. That's the beauty of the newsroom. I kind of miss those kind of places. And like, you know, newsrooms are all different now. A lot of people are working bureaus. Uh, I loved my first uh, newspaper news. I worked in the, at the Stockton Record. And you can look up my name in Stockton Record. One of my, my best stories, I won a prize, uh, state level, on the uh, eugenics and sterilization sterilization and you were uh, pro i believe you were pro i was pro i was a professional not professional sterile i would always use gloves though whatever yeah. i would always use gloves. but the, the that story um i mean i i used to cover um diversity people of color and and imbeciles which would include white people and so that was my beat i i loved it imbecile I, I, is a category of intelligence Based, well, uh, that, I mean, Oliver Wendell Holmes 
Yeah, that, that's wrote the, one generation the, of imbeciles is enough. And he was talking about my family when he wrote that, <laughs> where he supported, wrote in favor of eugenics, of sterilizing. Yeah, yeah. This was before Hitler. People yeah, embraced, well, yeah. embraced and, this. Uh, this is the thing about, uh, you know, California with all its mental institutions. They, they all had eugenics and eugenics from Sacramento, that was sort of like a, a hotbed of eugenics. This guy named uh, Gosney, uh, and he was big with the McClatchy's who owned the newspaper chain, right? right that still own the newspaper chain. And uh, they, they really wanted to spread eugenics, and they got it as a policy at the mental institutions in California. And so there was one in Stockton, um, and I, I did this big story. Anyway, um, Newspapers. Help I, me out. I, Remind me why eugenics is wrong. I always forget. You, why why <laughs> eugenics is wrong? Yeah, I always forget. I have a block on why that's immoral. Well, uh, <laughs> you know, it's just that uh, eugenics is is like the you you want to. It's breeding, right? It's it's like a super kind of breeding where you. Oh uh, right, that's right. right that's right. And that's wrong. The weak. Right? Yeah, that's weed wrong. Weed out, uh, and of course, you know, they were mostly all whites. Because uh, you can weed out immigrants by just not letting them in. So you're really trying to weed out feeble-mindedness, weed out people who could not end up supporting themselves. So you you sterilize them, and you're trying to create this this ideal society where you didn't have to deal with these people. And they're right. all in mental institutions anyway. Right. Any, anyway. But so, it was all, and it was also race-based. It was horrible. Uh, well, it ultimately became race-based once you, you know, if you've said, oh, well, we shouldn't do this to whites. We should also do it to blacks. And so if you go to the places in the South, uh, uh, South Carolina, North Carolina, you know, big on eugenics and big on And, and Hitler studied the California <laughs> eugenics program. And he studied the South. If you were watching U.S. in the Holocaust, the Ken Burns television uh series i don't watch anything by ken burns anymore because he's best friends with war profiteer david rubenstein from the Carlisle. i saw his name i saw his name on the title and i said you know this is a great show but if i mention it to david tomorrow he's going to mention david rubenstein's name he was just at Ken you Burns. You're predictable you're 100 predictable david rubenstein has a new book out yeah. He, I got. I was asked, "Do you want David Rubenstein on the show from the publicist?" And I thought, I wrote back, "I don't want to get you into trouble." No, no. but uh, he has a new right, book please. on it. And 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 so Ken Burns showed up to David Rubenstein's book launch party in Washington D.C. And I'm thinking, why is Ken Burns going to a war profiteer's book launch? Oh, that's right, because David Rubenstein has given about $10, $12 million to Ken Burns and the PBS. Ken Burns hey, individually and more to, it's blood right. money. That's blood hey, but, money. Uh, look, I mean, but Ken Burns, uh, is he any different from any U.S. congressman or any U.S. politician, really? I mean. I'm just saying you get. You, I, I, you well, I'm just saying I, I saw one and a half. Uh, uh, part I, I was I'm halfway through the second part, but the the first part is really 
you know, astonishing. You know, you, you, you don't really know this history. It's in your face now. You, you get it in the documentary. So it's about, so it's about turning a blind eye yeah. to mass killing, which is horrible. And Ken Burns gets his money from war profiteer David Rubenstein from the Carlisle Group. They make their money turning a blind eye to mass slaughter around the world. David, everyone needs a little penance. You know, everyone has to do a little penance. Yeah. And so, look, uh, anyway, I, I saw part one, Ken Burns. There's a lot of Asian-American references because xenophobia runs deep. It usually began before it turned to the Jews. They started excluding the Chinese and the Japanese were there. Of course, they're mentioned. But and there are a lot of Chinese people named Jew, right? Yeah, oh, yeah. There are some Jew, J-U and J-E-Ws. I know some J-E-W Chinese. Uh, and then, you know. Is, is that but, why? Didn't, didn't, wasn't, didn't Shanghai take in a lot of refugees, Jewish refugees? There, you know, there were a lot. You know, when I was in NPR. One of and the you know why? That, they, they, because they said, will you take in the Jews? And they, they, they thought it was. Like. One of theirs. Yeah, right? they didn't know. Now, actually, actually, look, this is true. I did a story uh, when I was in NPR on, uh, it was on rabbi cards. Rabbi what? Rabbi cards. You know, like trading cards for rabbis, Jewish kids. I had a Jewish producer who said, oh, do the story on rabbi cards. It was fascinating, though, because the rabbis went into Asia. And there were some very famous rabbis who went to Japan and China and... You know, that's why, uh, you know, there's an affinity, the Jews and, and the Asians. Not necessarily the Filipinos, but Chinese. I have a feeling it's one way. No, 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 no. Well, I've been, you know, I've been to enough Jews Chinese stole... restaurants. I have a feeling the affinity goes one way. No, no, no. no. The Jews <laughs> stole the crap lock. The Jews stole the crap lock, which are really pot stick. We know they're pot stickers, but you call them crap lock. Yes. Right? That's an appropriation. But that's right, because you Asians and Jews love each other. Yes. And Chinese I, I, food. I had, I, or I, I, there are vegan Chinese restaurants yeah. that, uh, in New York City, we went to one last week, kosher vegan Chinese food. Um, they I make get, a, they, they have a, a vegan general sow. So, no sow. <laughs> oh, sow. Well, sow wouldn't be wouldn't be Jewish enough. Sow, no, it's sow General be, Sow. Uh, he was a pig. General the great yeah, General Sow. That. He's a pig. Just, Is it pronounced General So? I think it's So. T S O. We're, I don't see any A's in there. Sow, but Sow. But I like saying Sow because be it feels like I'm eating pork. I know it would be great. Uh, it's not halal, but it's great to say Sow. I get. I get. I get the. By the way, do you know like, that halal? is the entry word to impersonate Charles Nelson Riley. <laughs> that if you want to get your Charles Nelson Riley impersonation going, you say the word halal. 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 Halal, yeah. <laughs> halal. And so then you can, that, that, that's okay. how you get going. And then you're okay. talking like Charles Nelson Riley. All right. There's it's always okay, a word man. that gets you into an impersonation. So if, see, if you yeah. want, to, if, if somebody says do Charles Nelson Riley, just say hello. And here is the word hello? that gets me. And and here is the word that gets me into talking about my friend Andrew Furman. 
The word is hyphen. Hyphen, David. Hyphen. Hyphen. This is why Henry Furman, who died last week, is important. He killed the hyphen. Now, was he the detective from O.J. No, Simpson? No, he's not that guy. I, I knew you might have, you know, you were going to bring that up. That Because that's kind of like, that's not a hyphenate. It's a homonymal kind of reference. Uh, Furman, Mark Furman, the O.J. detective. No. He You're was gay? Talk- Mark Furman was gay? No, he, he was the O.J., the you, OJ you, said he, you just said he's homonymal? Homin, you know, like a homonym sounds the same kind of sound. Oh, I thought you were saying he's, he's gay. He's okay. not ho, he's not homonymal, homonymal. I see. Anyway, for what Henry did was he killed the hyphen. Now you know why it's important. Henry was a unique hyphen himself. He was German, Dutch, um, born to a German Dutch Navy guy. On a boat out in uh, out out in the Pacific Ocean to a Japanese mother. Hang on, this, so hang on for one second. Yeah, part Dutch, part Dutch, part German, part German, right? Part Japanese, which means every December seventh, he declares. I don't. I don't have it. <laughs> Anybody? Know, I don't. I, I see where you're where you're going. I'm trying to get there. But no, I don't have it. I think we better part German, up. part Japanese, and part Dutch. What can you do with those wooden shoes? I don't know. I just keep the wooden every shoe December seventh. He declares war on Anne Frank. I, I, he could do that. It's a little far. It's a little far because he's in the Pacific, but she's in in Europe. But but from Holland. Wasn't Holland. Anne Frank yeah. from, she was Anne, Anne oh, Frank? She was from Holland, yeah. All right, look, Henry was uh, born uh, in uh, born on that ship, raised in L.A., smart guy, went to Caltech, could have been an engineer, right? Because Caltech is this premier type of, um, you know, math, science place. But he fell in love, just like you, at the Jersey Gazette or whatever that paper was. The Hudson Dispatch. The Hudson Dispatch in Jersey City. He fell in love with newspapering. He edited the school newspaper, and and from there he got he got onto the L.A. Times. He became he got on the masthead, and you know he was an also I would see him look. I I have fathered num, a number of Hapa children, half white, half Asian children. When I first met Henry, I knew instantly Henry was. I don't know. I saw the Asian in him, and I said, and we met at, of course, at an Asian American Journalist Association uh, convention and subsequent meetings, and we were good friends over over social media. But his thing was the hyphen, because he saw in the hyphen, when you say Asian slash American, when you see hyphen, it kind of others you, right? I mean, it looks like a connector. Right. But Henry wanted to take the hyphen, grab the hyphen and like rip it out and like. Off with it, dash with the hyphen. And and because, as he pointed out in an essay that he wrote 2015, he said, when you're an Asian American. You know, you're a kind of American. Asian is the adjective modifying the noun American. But when you're Asian hyphen American, 
you're almost like two equal things. And are you Asian? Are you American? As I put it, the dash, the hyphen is like a minus sign. It makes you less than. It makes you, it really is an othering tool. And Now, what about if you call somebody a hyphenate? A hyphenate. Well, in in Hollywood, I've been called a hyphenate. Because you're like a a good slash or good hyphen writer or a bad hyphen writer. No, or he's a comedian. Oh, writer. Ah, pain in the ass. Yeah, and yeah, and pain in the ass would be pain hyphen in hyphen ass right. hyphen. And so what about commander? Be, like Joe Biden is com- a commander. commander he's an hyphen. in. In he's an any his belly button. And he's a chief. I believe and he's yeah. a Sioux. Isn't he a Sioux? It was a- there are some phrases, some uh, words, you know, collections of words where a hyphen is not an issue, like commander in chief or like in your case, uh, writer, performer, comedy, not so good. That would right. be not hyphen, so hyphen, good. Right. Uh, but... In the case of people of color, in cases of people, there, Henry was sensitive to this. And he said to AP Style, he wrote his essay, and, and the people, the, the guard, the gatekeepers at AP Style saw it, and they said, if, you know, if we're making people feel bad, if people see this as a negative... They took it upon themselves to change it. And they, cha- L.A. Times did it on, on Henry's word. He was, uh, he prevailed there. And then ultimately A.P. Style did in 20, I think it was in, tw- he wrote that essay in 2018. By 2019, they said that when it comes to race, the hyphen is eliminated. So Filipino-American, get rid of the hyphen. You're just an American and Filipino is the adjective modifying American. You're an American. Because the idea is if, if you are two separate things, Asian and American or Filipino and American, it's, it's almost like uh, they, they say, you, what are you? I, I, I just feel like it was an important message that people would overlook necessarily. But because of Henry's sensitivities, he made people pay attention to the language. He made people pay attention to what the hyphen did. And the hyphen wasn't this connector. It was this othering tool. And so AP Style went along with that. And they said when it comes to describing people's origin, people of color, ditch the hyphen. And then the New York Times later did the same thing. And so, anyway, that, that's why I think, yeah, look, Henry was a nerdy word guy. So when he died, the hyphens said he had it coming. The hyphens probably cheered. The, but the hyphens. The, there, there were probably people like you who said, well, we still say commander hyphen in hyphen chief. I mean, those people weren't, you know, weren't affected. But I think every person of color, Mexican-American, Filipino-American, any ethnic American, I think, and anyone who read his obit in the LA Times, 
Newhouse especially was, because you know the power of these words, the power of these words in journalism and how we see them, right? It's, it's everything, especially AP style. You write a story at the Hudson Dispatch and say it gets picked up by AP. You got to know AP style, so it gets picked up by every everyone. And it's like I wrote a story in the Stockton Record if it got picked up in the AP, uh, by uh, AP. Or I did a story for when I worked in television in, in Washington, D.C. If it got picked up by AP... It was written. It was written by AP Style. They loved it because they didn't have to like mess around with it. And out it went to all these, all these outlets, all these media outlets. And that's the power of this kind of, you know, a sense of standards that someone like Henry imposed on AP Style when it comes to how you look at people of color. Get rid of the hyphen. And now you can see other because not everyone you know, uh, is, you know, adopts AP style. In fact, in fact, they're, you know, every organization can have their own sense of style, Washington Post, New York Times, everyone. But AP is the dominant one, but you might still on the internet see a hyphen. And next time you see the hyphen, think of Henry, rip the hyphen off, rip it away. It doesn't belong there. And you can see how words matter. You know, and and I in my in my column on the ALDEF blog, Asian American Legal Defense and Education Fund, you know, this is one of the problems with journalism. This is one of the problems with calling Trump a liar, right? In terms of usage, right? Look how long it took for mainstream journalists to call Trump a liar, or to call Trump a racist, or to call uh, Ron DeSantis for what he did with this uh, Martha's Vineyard stunt, right? To to even mention the idea or the notion of human trafficking, which I did on the very first day, that this, this has to be some kind of form of that. Uh, but journalists are, they're beholden to standards. They're beholden to, that's what makes journalism folks pull their punches. And uh, Henry, Henry, Henry was, look, he was a, he was a standard bearer, but he knew, you know, and ordinarily I don't like those guys. I don't like editors. But I liked Henry. He was my, my buddy. And I liked him because when it came to important issues like, you know, the hyphen, he fought, he fought for people of color. He said, lose yes. your hyphens. Yes. Well, Emil Guillermo, great job, as always. You are the host of the PETA podcast, People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals, New episodes every Wednesday. Before you go, the Beef Eaters. Yeah, I know. That's the name. If you talk to a Brit, they will never say, they will say Beef Eater. Americans say Beef Eater. They call them the Queen's Guards. And what are they wearing on their heads? They're wearing, I call them cone heads, but apparently those aren't cones. I know. I, they look like cone heads. And if you saw the funeral... I, I'm sure you saw the funeral, right? Of course. They were all over those those bearskin. They're bearskin. It's bearskin? Bearskin. Bearskin. I know. Hard to believe. They're made of bearskin. You would think the queen was sophisticated enough to graduate to a nice polyester synthetic. But no. No. Bearskin. Bearskin. Honest to God, PETA has been working on this. You know, I, I host the PETA podcast, and we got a podcast coming up on this. 
they, I, I think people wanted to be respectful of the queen because, you know, at least the bear, the, the caps weren't, were made of corgi skin or something like that. You know, it was, right. it was we, bear skin. And Sir Arthur Grebe Striebling tells us corgis are delicious. Well, with a fettle is, soup in a fettle soup. Sir Arthur, Sir Arthur part Asian? Arthur Grebe Striebling, sir, are you part Asian? Oh, no, 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 no. no. Okay, all no, right. No such um, tarnishing of my bloodline. But your grandfather, I, I thought your grandfather was part of the opium trade. Very much so, but it's sort of, uh, he was in the export business. Rather than oh, import. export, okay. I yeah. see. Ex that means he sent it out. He, he sent it out. Okay. All right, so he means. Thank you. Well, anyway, yeah, bear, yeah, guess how much those bearskin caps cost, David? I know that I I have one. You have you have a bear? I, yeah, uh, it's fake bear. It's fake bear hair. Oh, fake bear. Uh, that's good. Fake bear. I'm wearing well, it right now. Oh, of course, of course. Sorry, David. I I I didn't mean to be so insensitive. Right. I did. Like, you don't know I'm a beef eater. Well, I thought you were vegan. Did Did you know? I, like, I'm, I'm a vegan, but I'm not. I don't go overboard with it. I still eat I, beef. Did, did, you know, this is here. Now, here's a fun fact. Fun fact. We have to wrap it up. Okay. okay let me just finish up on, on the bearskin caps. One bearskin cap equals one bear. The bears are from Canada. And this is a good reason why the Canadians should say, heck with this Commonwealth thing, right? I I think. Or at least it, the bear, cost, the Canadian bears. Should, it costs should. more than a million dollars to um, all those hats you saw, all the hats. And then, you know, I don't know if all the hats they had in existence were out there at the funeral. Uh, but a million dollars is the cost. And, and actually, this is true. PETA has been out there trying to come up with a synthetic. Synthetic replica. bears. That's what we need. Synthetic bears. I think it would be sort of like uh, going to, what is that place? You know, the Chucky, uh, Chuck E. Cheese? Mm -hmm. Animatronics, uh, that kind of thing. Yes. I'm, I'm just saying, no animals were harmed. You could say that, honestly. Except the people eating the, the pizza. Emil well, Guillermo is the host of the PETA podcast, People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals. Anybody who has ever had children knows what it's like to have a panic attack at Chuck E. Cheese's the, the, where the, this, I have never felt more trapped. Like I'm looking like you think it's going to last forever. Not, not just this birthday party, but this, this life that I'm, you know, counting kids. I, I you know, I have 10 kids. I yeah, must yeah. return. Like nobody gives you credit that you return nine now, what about the nine I brought back from the, the party? But, That's 90% of the kids who came to my daughter's party, I returned. Well, Nobody goodness, brings that up. Thank goodness they don't have bowling at Chuck E. Cheese, because then you'd have to have the return of the shoes, too. And that yes. would be, that would add to the whole thing. Okay. Uh, I love you. Great job, as always. Uh, you know what? Every episode you come loaded for bear. You really are. You you just you, you. What did I say? Something wrong? Oh, you're. Uh, I I didn't mean that. Hey, I 
And I love you too. Like we didn't even get to the anti-Semitism parts from the the Ken Burns thing. Yeah, you'll be you know, anti-Semitic next week. That's a, that's the, a perennial Rubenstein thing. Your anti-Semitism is like a is like seersucker. It, it's, <laughs> it it never goes out of style. It could hold till next week. Okay. Trust me. Okay. <laughs> All right. And, and I I love you too, David. Emila Muck uh, on Twitter, and he live streams every day. On Twitter and on YouTube, what's the name of your your channel? Uh, Emil Guillermo. Great, thank you. <laughs> well, this is exciting. Sorry to keep the Reverend. Thank you, Emil. Thank the you. Reverend thank Barry you. W. Here, Lynn is uh, joining us today from Massachusetts, and he has a very special guest. And I'm very excited about this because when this show first started. Robin Roberts in L.A. used to come on and sing union songs. And I would, I'd listen to these union songs uh, and I said, these are about something. Like the lyrics, it's not words just, you know, it's not just some silly song to justify the melody. The words are more important than the melody. And uh, please, Reverend Barry W. Lynn, take it away. I'm very excited about our next guest. Right. Well, thank you. And I want to introduce uh, Duncan Phillips in just a minute. But what you just said is very interesting. I did not come from a musical family. The only records my parents had were wordless records by a, a group called 101 Strings and maybe occasionally a Broadway show. But back in 1960... But your parents hated unions, too. Uh, they didn't like them. Really? I was I, making a joke. No, they didn't, they didn't like them because uh, my father was obsessed with a guy who ran the Teamsters, I think out of Philadelphia, named... Uh, Quinn was his last name. And so he he had no interest in, in unions. But so the music, 1968, I'm listening to the radio one Sunday night. And I hear this show from 50 miles away in Philadelphia run by a guy who became really an iconic figure in the folk music business, Gene Shea. And Gene was talking about folk music. And I thought, what in the hell is folk music? And then I heard a song called Draft Dodger Rag. I didn't quite catch because it was difficult to hear anything. I didn't quite catch who wrote it, but I later found out it was Phil Oaks. And that was the, one of the first records I ever bought. And I became literally obsessed with folk music. And I became really obsessed with it when I had a chance to hear the golden voice of the great Southwest, you, Utah Phillips. And I was absolutely amazed to find that his son, Duncan, who's with us now, um, had started a nonprofit, has a wonderful website, and I wanted a chance to talk about uh, his dad. Duncan, welcome to the show. Reverend Barry, hi. Can you hear me all right? I can. Great. Thanks for having me. Thanks for the invitation. Happy to do so. I had a lot of fun talking to your dad, particularly when I was on uh, the briefly constructed United Auto Workers Radio Network 
and then it had me on and it had Jim Hightower, of course, who um, famously said he he was only he didn't want to be a middle of the roader because the only things in the middle of the road are dead skunks. And (laughs) but your dad was uh, super. I always enjoyed talking to him. So the website's called The Long Memory, and because we have a lot of uh, obsessed cinephiles, we're not talking about The Long Memory, the 1950s black and white movie. Right. Remind us what The Long Memory is and was, particularly in the labor movement. Well, you know, Dad was always, he talked about The Long Memory because he's always worried that people wouldn't remember and talk about the lessons particularly in the union movement of the past. You know, people would always tend to say, well, that's always in the past, Utah. It's time to move on. Uh, unions have changed. The worker movement has changed. And he would be quick to point out that the most radical, he would say the most radical idea in America is the long memory. You know, to be able to talk about the events of the past and be able to learn about the events of the past, not necessarily teach people that give people the opportunity to learn themselves. Well, he was a marvelous teacher. And I think I said last week when I mentioned that you were joining us that I learned virtually everything I knew about labor history from your father. I mean, we, my wife, uh, who's occasionally a guest on here, talk about medical issues, but uh, she and I once when we moved to Boston, spent three nights, Friday, Saturday, Sunday night at three different colleges just to hear your dad. And he never, with a lot of singers, there's enormous overlap. If you go six months later, they play on the same songs. Your dad had so many stories and so many songs that you never got tired of listening to him. Right. And, you know, he, there's a a trick that he used that he would, he'd write a set list before every show and he would save those set lists. I have a stack of them in my desk. And when he would go back to the town, the next time he'd pull the set list out to make sure he had fresh material, (laughs) you know, and people would always comment that his, his show seems so spontaneous, just so off the cuff, but they, he was, you know, he's an interesting person that he was a genius. He had common sense. He had curiosity. He had a remarkable memory. And all of those, those things combined, plus he was likable. A lot of people out there call it charisma. But, you know, my his grandma, my grandma Kitty always told me, you know, remember Utah, remember Bruce when he was a little kid, being likable will take you farther than talent. And, he, you know, he was likable. So with all of those things that he had in his life as his toolbox to pull from he was you know he was more than you know some people think of as a teacher a union organizer a songwriter a philosopher he was so many different things and one of the little known facts about him that hardly anybody knows is he was a scholar on ethiopia really His his big dream was to take a steamship and get to ethiopia he he was totally fascinated with ethiopia and he could have conversations with anybody on any level about Ethiopia. It was really remarkable. What what other specific thing? He was interested in 
Egypt also, right? Yeah, well, yeah, he was he was interested in Egypt, anything in Africa. One time we went on a trip up to at, to Portland, Oregon for a benefit show, stopped in Ashland, and one of his friends, Nancy Spencer, had insomnia all the time. And he asked her what she would do to go to sleep at night, and he said she told him that she would go through all the countries in Africa, all the capitals in Africa, and he said, well, let's see how you do. So she went through and got most of them, and then he went back and told her how each capital became a capital and when, and the history of the capital and the history of every part of Africa that she could talk about. Wow. <laughs> it, let's talk a little bit about his, his parents and his, his stepfather, because it seems to me that his, his mother, as I understand it, was an organizer, a labor organizer. His uh, stepfather after they divorced, was a, a kind of a vaudeville promoter. And both of those things seem to be terribly important in the way your dad conducted his life. Oh, yeah, definitely. When uh, Sid Cohen moved to Salt Lake City and brought dad and everybody with him, he worked for Paramount as a film distributor. And But in those days, Paramount Pictures made the movies and they owned the film houses. And there was an owner of the Utah Theater here in Utah that actually sued um, for the monopoly thing, and he won. He won in. They won in court, so Paramount had to diversify themselves from all the movie theaters. So Sid bought three of the movie theaters, the Capitol Theater, the really nice one in Salt Lake City, and went into the movie business, into the film business of all new film houses. And the Capitol Theater was a vaudeville house, and Dad would go down there and hang out with Sid. And as he got older, he had to work as an usher, and he'd watch people come in. And Marion Anderson included would perform there. And it really, it really shaped his understanding of performance. You know, that was the key. That was part of developing his craft was the art performance, from sure. writing on stage to what somebody wore on stage to how they carried themselves. You know, he he would even study on how to make himself look bigger when he was younger. All you know, all the little tricks of the trade to be on stage and really be an, a top-notch master of his craft. You Utah Phillips, of course, you mentioned at least as a child he he was known as Bruce. So right. what what's the moniker you Utah? What's that about? It was really, as he told me, it was a simple as being in the army and was mail came, hey, Utah, here's your mail. <laughs> that's, that's as simple as it was. And then he picked up the U Utah Phillips because he liked the sound of T Texas Tyler. So he thought <laughs> it gave him more cachet. So he put the U Utah in there for a while. And then of course, picked up the golden voice of the great, great Southwest. Before we play a couple of his songs, but um, he was, uh, when he was in Utah, he, he did run for the United States Senate, and he did get 0.5% of the vote, as I recall. So 5,000 votes, right. 5,000 votts. Okay. Well, that that's means he was getting votes from more than his immediate family. What did he really... And he also ran for president, I think, back in sometime in the 80s uh, on the Peace and Freedom Party ticket. Yeah, I mean, he, he 
it was a serious run for the U.S. Senate. He was he wasn't even a folk singer then. No. There was a professor up the university that recruited him. He was working at the archives up at the at the state capitol, and they recruited him to. They they knew the charisma that he had, the knowledge that he had, and they recruited him to to run on the peace and freedom ticket for the U.S. Senate. Okay. And he took it seriously, you know, yeah. and he campaigned a lot. They did really well. And that was part of the reason he did so well was part of the reason that when he did eventually lose that he was blacklisted and he had to quit his job at the Capitol, Capitol to run. Mm-hmm. So he couldn't find work anywhere else. And that's, you know, at the point him and my mom had separated probably about three years earlier. And he really didn't, as he put it, he had run out of moves in Utah. And so <laughs> Rosalie Sorrells had already set up shop at Cafe Leans in Saratoga Springs. So he lo- loaded up a bunch of his friends in his old VW microbus and it played his way across the country. And when he finally got to Cafe Lena and they started performing on stage and hanging out, they said, hey, Utah, you know, you're a folk singer. He's like, what? I'm a what? <laughs> You know, his, his very first show at Cafe Lena is pretty much all train stories because yep. he was a train hobo. He was a Grand Duke of the Hobos for a period of time as a hobo moniker was bow tie. And so, you know, it's interesting to me how the shows developed from those early train shows. And then it's a good lesson on life for people because he constantly evolved and he constantly changed who he was a little bit. He got he, he brought in the union part of it. He brought in the civil rights part of it. And then for the rest of his life, he would tailor his shows to whatever was going on socially around the country and around the world. But using those old labor songs and those sure. old tunes and those old folk songs. Let's uh, let's play an old labor song if we can. Uh, this would be the preacher and the slave. It was an old wobbly song. We'll talk about the wobblies in a minute. But uh, David. Can you get the file up? Yes, I can, sir. Can you hear me? Thank you. You can hear me, right? Yes, I can. Your profile picture is remarkably similar to the father's. It's amazing. Oh, thank you. You know what? I'm the the master of disguise. I can hardly bear it. I'm the master of... I have uh, four songs. So... Uh, I have Mountain Valley Home, What is a Pacifist, Starlight on the Rails, and Enola Gay. Oh, you should have Preacher and a Slave on there, too. I think they send it along. Okay, so why don't we do this? Can we play a different song? And I'll sure, let, Let's play Starlight on the Rails, because that is a quintessential and frequently covered Utah Phillips song, Starlight on the Rails. We walk down the little roads in Cumberland, and stooped because the sky hung down so low. And no place that we went was far. And the earth and the sky hung close and near. And the old hunger returned. The obscure and terrible hunger that haunts and hurts Americans makes us exiles in our own land, strangers wherever we go. Oh, I will go up and down the country and back and forth across the country. I will go out west for the states or square. I will go to Boise and Helena, Albuquerque, the two Dakotas, all the unknown places. Say, brother, have you heard the thunder of the fast express? Have you seen starlight on the rails? 
I could hear a whistle blowing High lonesome as can be Outside the rain is softly falling Tonight it's falling just for me Looking back along the road I traveled All the miles could tell a million tales Each year is like some rolling freight train And cold as starlight on the rails I think about a wife and family A home and all the things it means the black smoke trailing out behind me Is like a string of broken dreams Looking back along the road I traveled All the miles could tell a million tales Each year is like some rolling freight train And cold as starlight on the rails now a man who lives out on the highway He's like a clock that can't tell time A man who spends his life just rambling Is like a song without a rhyme Looking back along the road I travel All the miles could tell a million tales each year is like some rolling freight train And cold as starlight on the rain That's so great. That's so great. And you have to unmute yourself, Reverend? Yeah. So great. You know, he loved the railroad so much. And I do remember him saying to me once when we were talking on the radio that the worst thing that happened to the to America was the disinterest in maintaining the railroads. And I certainly have come to believe that. I mean, it's it's as horrifying that you can't get anywhere unless you fly airplanes or take buses. The, the rail system is is frankly a disgrace in most parts of this country. Yeah. And it's, it's one of the most economical ways to move freight. I mean, it still could be. So, you know, in the early part of the 1900s, 500,000 workers went as the job seasons changed and traveled by the rails and hop. It was, it was expected that they'd hop trains to get from town to town to, to pick the fruit or go out to California or the middle of the country or wherever they needed, wherever there was work that was needed. You know, and nowadays that dad would always say, you know, why don't we ship more things by rail instead of OTR trucking, you know, intermodal yeah. trucking or something and, and use the rail system and develop the rail system to move freight instead. Yeah. It's, um, by the way, I found the song. I, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but I have the okay. song you wanted to play. Anytime. Okay, we'll, we'll, yeah, we'll get to that in just a minute. Uh, your dad lived in a railroad car for a while while he was making his first couple of records for a, a label that unfortunately is no longer with us, Philo, an independent record company. Right. Yeah. In the early 70s, he, he, 
He bought a flat, it was a flanger car. It looks very similar to a caboose, but technically a flanger car is a box car that's converted and given a cupola, and then it's used to clear the snow in between the rails and the tracks during the winter time. And I, you know, I'd never seen the car. It was my father and I, we were separated for 40 years, you know, very seldom even a phone call or a letter between each other. And we did reconnect in 2000. I started road managing him. And a few years later, um, after he had passed away, I was on a anniversary trip with my wife and I got an email. I pulled over at a rest stop and was going through my things. And somebody had sent me an email and said, Hey, Duncan, I think your father's flanger car is for sale. Hmm. So I, you know, I really was skeptical. And he sent me the website of the place trying to sell it. And sure enough, his dad's old flanger car was there and it's for sale in Vermont. And they wanted a lot of money, not a lot, but a lot of money to me. I think they wanted like $10,000 for it. Jeez. And I tried to get a hold of the company and have let them let me talk to the owner of it, but they wouldn't. And Finally, I posted a picture of the flanger car on Facebook, and I said, if anybody knows anything about the owner of this, you know, send me their information. About five minutes later, somebody sent me Stephen Pilcher's phone number and said he's expecting to hear from me tomorrow. So I called up Stephen Pilcher, who bought the old Philo recording barn and remodeled it into his house. The flanger car had been there all those years, and he wanted to get rid of it. And he said, Duncan, I'll sell it. I'll give you the flanger car if you'll raise the money to move it. So that's when I started the 501c3 part of the long memory. And over the next year, now this railroad car is in Vermont. And we were going to move it. We did move it to BBRC in Weed, California, Northern California. So it took us a year to raise all the money to finally move that car. And it took two truckloads, one for the wheels and one for the truck. Went for the car itself and trucked it across the country, put a big banner on it. And um, I went out to BBCRC, is Black Butte Center for Railroad Culture. It's run and operated by train people, legitimate train people and hobos. It's a remarkable place. And I think dad would have really loved having the car out there. So we went out there, put the road base down, put the railroad ties down bunch of hobos and friends of mine helped me spike the rails and then we moved the car out there and have steadily been working on it. We put it there in October of 2017 and so we've been working on it steadily with uh, anybody can go visit it. It's decorated pretty close to the way when dad lived in and he lived in it so there was a lot more clutter in there. But anybody can go stay in there. We're going to slowly develop it as an artist and residence place. And just a place to have song gatherings, social gatherings, and just, you know, people can go and just remember my father and his work. Absolutely. It's um, the, the, um, the significance of hoboing is let's just let's talk a little bit more about that because he, he obviously had an enormous respect for what hobos were doing they weren't bad people they weren't tramps they were people who needed a little bit of help along the way he loved oh yeah them. oh yeah and you know and as he would quote ben reitman a 
uh, hobo works and wanders, a tramp dreams and wanders, and a bum drinks and wanders. Dad, did con- Dad considered himself a tramp. He always said tramps were the traveling intelligentsia of the wandering world. You know, just dreamers and wanders. Absolutely. So, and and he's he, you met the most remarkable people on the rails. Some were destitute and out there, but a lot of people that he traveled with chose that lifestyle. Yeah, it was their it was their form of freedom. You know, it was the ultimate freedom. You 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 go into a a place where you're totally free, but you're isolated from the rest of society. And they, there's still kids that travel all over the country. There's still a lot of people to ride. If you're ever in a town and you see someone you're pretty sure you think is homeless, if they're wearing all black and they got a really nice, well put together backpack and good boots on, and usually traveling with the dog, those are going to usually be trained people. And they yeah. probably just traveled there to stay and busk or panhandle for a little while, and they're going to be on to the next town. But if you know how to look for them and pick them out and look for them on the trains when they go by, there are a lot of people that still ride. You no, know, he, he once said to me that uh, one of the problems with riding the rails now is that so many of the boxcars are locked and that a young person today who thinks this is something I want to do is going to be in a lot more trouble even finding a way into the boxcar because they're they're just not open like they were in the 20s and 30s. Right, and then, you know, they switched the boxcars around to more of that grainer style where they have platforms on each end. Yeah. And they've had to come up with more ingenious ways to ride. But part of that, too, is knowing when a train is leaving and where the train is going. You know, for the young, inexperienced person out there, they really need to ask around or go to, you know, travel with somebody that knows because you can get stuck in somewhere that you're just not going to get out of for a long period of time or you're going to be on the train a lot longer than you think and you're not going to have the provisions along with you to sustain yourself. Yeah. He he also, in a lot of his songs, and I do want to mention that there's a wonderful four uh, CD set uh, which I think is called Starlight on the Rails, as I remember. And uh, it's got this marvelous collection of stories and songs. And he often told stories about Ammon Hennessy, who's kind of an unknown figure, <coughs> an unknown, particularly if the only labor history you know is, uh, you know, the five paragraphs that are in some history book in a high school. Hammond Hennessy worked with the Catholic Workers Movement. Just can you tell us just a little bit about that and how that helped to kind of shape your dad's interest in making sure that not only was he a songwriter, but he, he made a genuine difference in the lives of so many people? Well, you know, Ammon Hennessy, he started the Joe Hill House here in Salt Lake. And I don't know. I don't know how exactly Ammon got hooked up with Dad, but Dad would start to go and hang out and help at the Joe Hill house, and he would sing songs there occasionally. And Ammon was a pacifist, and Dad was still back back from Korea. He was still kind of penned up with everything he'd been through and everything that he'd seen, and dealt a lot with alcohol abuse, dealt a lot with anger management. And Ammon really, by talking to Dad, and not just walking the walk, but talk, 
not talking the talk or walking the walk, you know, he would generally peel those layers away from dad and talk to him about being a pacifist and talk to him about what these people go through. And, you know, Ammon would go with a shopping cart up and down the streets and push and get all the used cans and take them every day. And they'd make a big stew for all the people. And it, and the whole Catholic worker movement just really, it really stuck with that, you know, cause it, him being on the road for a while. And, you know, it's odd when you talk about your father, that he was really homeless for a certain period of time when he got back from the Korean war. So what I talked about earlier is that curiosity is genius mentality and common sense. And you could put all these things together to know the injustice that was happening. But he's also be able to learn about it and write songs about it and be able to sing about it. And through performing, he's able to teach people about it. You know, as you know, sure. from seeing his shows. And Ammon was instrumental in that. He hung out with Ammon, Enola Gay, Ammon had taken him up to Sugar House Park for the dedication of the Peace Gardens. When they got up there, the news people were there. Everybody was there. And Ammon says, I'm going to go up and I'm going to talk anti-war. And when I'm done, you're going to come up and you're going to sing a song. And Dad said, well, you know, Ammon, I really don't know anything about any of this. And Ammon said, well, you know more than you think you do. You're going to sing a song. So Dad walked around Sugar House Park, same place that Joe Hill was executed, Sugar House Park is the site of the old Utah State Prison. And sure enough, when Dad walked around the park and came back, he wrote Enola Gay on that walk around the park. Okay, let's hear that. Then he came back and he sang that song. Terrific. Let's let's play Enola Gay. Uh, David, you there? Yes, 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 yes. Yes, play play <laughs> Enola Gay, please. Okay. Coming up, I'm going to mute you guys. This is great. Okay. Look out, look out from your schoolroom window. Look up, young children, from your play. Oh, wave your hand at the shining airplane. Such a beautiful sight is Enola Gay. It's many miles from the Utah desert to Tinian Island far away. A standing guard by the barbed wire fences that hide the secret of Enola Gay. High above the clouds in the sunlit silence, so peaceful here I'd like to stay. There's many a pilot who would swap his pension for a chance to fly Enola Gay. What is that sound? High above my city, I rush outside and search the sky. Now we are running to find the shelters. The air ain't sirens start to cry. What will I say when the children ask me, where was I flying upon that day? With trembling voice, I gave the order to the bombardier of Enola Gay. Look out, look out from your schoolroom window. 
Look up, young children, from your place. Your bright young eyes will turn to ashes in the blinding light of Enola Gay. I turn to see the fireball rising. My God, my God, all I can say. I hear a voice within me crying. My mother's name was Nola Gay. Look out, look out from your schoolroom window. Look up, young children, from your place. Oh, when you see the warplanes flying, each one is named Enola Gay. Great. Um, there, there are three songs that uh, almost always make me tear up. That's one. There's another one oh, called yeah. Grand Central Station, which Mary Chapin Carpenter wrote. And my friend Tom Pacheco uh, has a song called Juan Romero about the kitchen worker who cradled Bobby Kennedy's head uh, there after he had, had been shot. And uh, these are such powerful songs. They're such powerful songs because they tell a story and they have a meaning. They they change people's minds. And this constantly comes up when people talk to me. I'm retired now. They say, well, what, you know, what do you do? You've been an activist your whole life. But what what difference does it make? And how can I communicate that with other people? And I think your dad did an astonishing job. I want to ask about pacifism, though. Uh, Pete Seeger is generally assumed to be a pacifist, but he wasn't. And he he did say uh, in one of his songs, uh, Bring Him Home, it was based, basically a Vietnam protest song. But at one point he says, um, you know, if uh, if they attacked my country... I'd be on the front lines. Did your dad have that kind of thought or was he a complete pacifist? I'm not going to war for any reason ever. He had become a complete pacifist. He would used to say, you find out you're a pacifist sometime along on the way to the floor after somebody hits you. (laughs) That's how we would describe it. And him and jo- Joanna, his wife, would have conversations, you know, she was a pacifist similar to Pete. There was a line, you know, when it came to family or things like that, there's a line that dad was a complete pacifist. Yeah. He was the guy that would have been hit and fallen to the floor and not caught up. <laughs> right. You know, and that's a, a lot. That's a long way from a guy that was at the end of the Korean War was volunteering to clear minefields with the bayonet. Yeah. Absolutely. You know, a long road to hoe. And talking about M and Hennessy, his his widow, Joan, lives here in Salt Lake City still. Really? Which is hard to part is mind blowing. My friend <laughs> yeah. Jeremy Harmon introduced me to her that worked for the Tribune. She had a little bit of M and Hennessy's ashes left that she gave Jeremy and I. Really? And we took them to the sign where you walk drive into Sugar House Park, the side of the Utah State Prison. We mixed up a little concoction of concrete and Ammon Hennessy's ashes and mixed them in with the mortar on the bricks there at Sugar House Park. <laughs> so that's one theory for Dad. I think Dad would have really appreciated that 
you know, Ammon Hennessy's ashes are forever a part of the old site of the Utah State Prison. Wow, absolutely. Uh, the union organizing that he was promoting, and so- someone in the in the chat I noticed uh, was familiar with your your father's uh, time in uh, Northern California. Um, he he didn't necessarily. He wasn't a member of a specific union. Maybe he was, but he was always promoting the IWW, the International Workers of the World, the so-called Wobblies. Just give me a little uh, idea of what the Wobblies were and what they were trying to achieve and why your dad was so interested in promoting the value of the Wobblies up until his death. Well, it, it was the, he was a he was a member of the IWW, a card carrying member, and it was the idea of the one big union, and not a craft union. It's a union that anybody could join as long as technically you're not a boss. And I think it was the part of the folklore of it too, and the and the idea of one big union where the 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 wealth that the workers generate in the world is the wealth that they create. And the idea that all those workers at whatever skill level des- deserve a bigger piece of the pie than the person that's hiring them. And that went beyond the trade unions. It went to the people in the service industry. It went to musicians. That he would, he would always go out of his way to try to explain to his fellow traveling musicians that they were part of the working class. That was where the meat of my father's belief was, was within the working class. And the working class that built everything around the not just the united states but around the world and there's workers still exploited you know from the textile workers when dorothy day you know when mother jones used to organize against all the child labor i mean it's been going on forever and i think between that and the the simplicity of soapboxing traveling from town to town people like bill haywood soapboxing and organizing and getting the workers involved in their own destiny and own part of their own pie and then taking the old hymn songs and as he would say rewriting them giving them lyrics so they made more sense <laughs> you know and i think it's it probably all tied in with the vaudeville part of his upbringing too and you know when you you go out and you see somebody soapboxing and ranting and, and getting the crowd together and then you have somebody come out and play some music and you get the crowd involved it's really, really a powerful thing. And that's why the IWW, they were so powerful in the early part of the 1900s. Sure. It, was, it was only when they came out against, they were against war. Yeah. You know, they didn't, they didn't feel like any of the, of the working class people should support the war of the corporations. So it's when they came out against the World War I that there was really the, the crackdown to try and bring down the IWW. Right, right. Let's uh, let's play the preacher and the slave because this was an old Bobbly song that your dad kind of played around with and maybe improved. I never heard the original, but uh, David, if you've got that one up now, let's uh, give it a shot. Okay, I am. I I loaded it. I just can't find it. Oh. Oh, let me try it one. More. Let me reload <laughs> okay. it. Sorry about that. Uh, I thought I loaded it. Here we go. Okay. Sorry about that. The Preacher and the Slave. 
Long-haired preachers come out every night Try to tell you what's wrong and what's right But when asked about something to eat uh, They will answer in voices so sweet Hey, we'll eat, we'll eat by and by In that glorious land in the sky Way up high, work and pray Live on hay uh, You'll get pie in the sky When you die, that's a lie Of course, now, Joe Hill was shot by the state of Utah November 19th, 1915 for writing songs like this. A fairly dire assault on free speech, I would think. But he did leave these songs to us. They are his legacy, and they belong to us now, so he probably ought to learn how to sing it, don't you think? It's done Baptist style. Any Baptist here? Oh, well, then you know how it works, don't you? You know, I sing a line out, and then you sing one back. Okay. Um, you, will eat you will eat by and by. And then together, in that glorious land in the sky. You got it. Work and pray. Live on hay. You'll get pie in the sky when you die. Yeah, good, good. Vociferous. And the starvation army they play And they shout and they clap and they pray uh, When they've got all your coins on the drum uh, They will tell you when you're on the bomb By and by In that glorious land in the sky I work and pray, live on hay. You'll get pie in the sky when you die, that's a lie. Holy rollers and jumpers come out. And they roll and they jump and they shout. Give your money to Jesus, they say. And you'll eat on that glorious day. You will eat by and by in that glorious land in the sky. Work and pray, live on hay. You'll get pie in the sky when you die, that's a lie. Working folks of all countries unite. Uh, side by side, we for freedom shall fight. Uh, when this world and its wealth we have gained, uh, to the grafters we'll sing this refrain. Uh, you will eat, eat by and by. Uh, when you've learned how to cook and how to fry, chop some wood, do you good. And you'll eat in that sweet by and by. That's no lie. Hey, I'm gone. I'm gone. Great, just great. <laughs> I love hearing all that old that stuff. You know, thanks for doing this. It's. And let me just say, you know, my dad and I, we did, I mentioned, spent so many years apart. Yep. And part of the joy for me in doing this and getting back together is filling in all those gaps of all those years, making some sense of it. And I really like connecting with people that knew my father that I haven't met 
and people that were influenced and admired my father that I haven't met. So I always like to hear from people and collect stories and just, like I said, help fill in the blanks, connect all the dots on that missing time between my father and I. And, you know, being able to travel with him and road management the last few years of his life was the first trip we went to Spokane. It was really kind of surreal and odd. And in the end, it was more like two friends getting to know each other again. Yeah. And so I just, you know, I really appreciate the time to talk about my father and share stories, but also meet the other, the people that were in my father's life that I had no idea. Mm. It's, um, when your dad died, I, uh, I was doing a little radio show and I called Rosalie Sorrells and I asked her because although Utah certainly, as we know from that song, thought the traditional religion was pretty much useless. But um, I said, did, did he, did Utah go gently into the night or did he fight to keep alive? And she said, I I'm trying to see if you can verify this, that, that he, um, he just calmly died. He, he didn't fight it. He didn't, he wasn't spending time in hospitals. Well, you know, yeah. 2007, we spent a whole month of February. He was up for a heart transplant. We went down right. to San Francisco. He was number one on the list. He was in the hospital, number one on the list for the next heart. And originally he was going to get the transplant and then he thought about it some more and he, you know, he came to the conclusion that his heart has served him well. And he's mm. just going to see out whatever time he had left with his own heart. Sure. So they spent the next month getting him ready. And he had a, he had a do not resuscitate order in place, mm. but he had a defibrillator pacemaker in his chest, which he forgot to tell. So he did pass away in the middle of the night, but his defibrillator did try to restart his heart, but it wouldn't. Mm. So he did, you know, I was the luckiest person in the world in that I spent that month with him in San Francisco, came back, got him back to Nevada City with Joanna. My work season was starting up again, and I had to go home. And it's really interesting to get up in the morning and, no, you're going to have to go back to a life in another state and say goodbye to your father, and it's going to be the last time you're going to see him. You have to get in the car and drive away. So when I got ready to leave, I said, you know, Dad, do you have anything you want to talk about? And he said, no, I think we've covered it all. What about you? And I said, no, I'm fine. You know, and I'm, we had the time we had was great. And he said, I just want to tell you, though, that the greatest joy in my life is the son that I thought was lost to me was the son that took care of me and saw me through to the end. And then I got in my car and I drove home. Yep. You know, and I, I can't think of a, a more perfect way to end that part of a chapter of a story. Absolutely. You know, you mentioned that he was... Um, he, he, did, he gave an enormous amount of help to songwriters of his era that he that he loved, like Kate Wolf. And Kate Wolf is an extraordinary person. I, I had a, a chance to meet her a couple times before she uh, she died, I think of leukemia. But and then also with Ani DeFranco, they did two records together, I think. And I remember asking him once, do you feel badly that now 
you're finally getting famous and you've been doing all this work and singing all these great songs and telling these wonderful stories. And then you have to hook up with somebody from another generation in order for people to know who you are. And he said, it doesn't bother me at all. He said, he used a bubble analogy. He said, you know, if you have a small bubble of influence, you have a certain responsibility. When your bubble starts to expand, all of a sudden, more people know you and you have a greater responsibility. Oh, yeah. I mean, his friendship with it, he used to say Ani had the most, the fiercest intellect of anybody he knew. Hmm. He loved collaborating with Ani, and it was an IWW person that um, convinced Dad to work with Ani. Dad had called up Mike Garcia, my friend of ours, and said, "You know, this woman Ani DeFranco has called me up. I don't know much about her. What do you think? Is she legitimate?" And Michael's like, "Yeah, he should work with her for sure." <laughs> and so they started their collaboration, and and it was to go back a little bit. It was Kate Wolf that actually got Dad out touring again. She had booked a whole series of concerts. Hmm she couldn't fulfill and dad wasn't playing anymore and she said utah you've got to go fulfill these sure. obligations and so doing those records with annie ani dad was really really proud of because when we'd go on the road and he would do his shows every time he was out in the lobby for intermission or after show and he'd see young people he goes those are ani's people those are ani's people and he was he it was it bridged that gap you know it's a lot hard for folk musicians to cross over into yeah. whatever other part of society they need to reach out to it's really it's really hard for folk musicians to cross over genres and that and and different styles of music and ani really bridged that gap for dad and really gave him a voice in doing the shows he was really really proud of their friendship yeah that and it was certainly. give and take, you know, they helped each other. Sure, sure. She, uh, she always spoke very, very highly of him also. Let me ask you about one or two other things. One of the things that when people think of the, the great folk revival of the 1960s, and they think about people, including your dad and Dave Van Rock and a lot of uh, singers like that. But there's a line, I think it's on one of his records, where he talks about the significance of the words of a song. And he specifically mentioned uh, Bob Dylan's uh, line about... Uh, <laughs> How many seas must a white dove sail before she sleeps in the sand? And that, that that's just a, that's impenetrable to most people. He wanted to tell the stories. And, oh, well, yeah. And he was upset I mean, with Joan Baez, too, because of the way she kind of took on the Joe Hill story as if it was entirely hers. Yeah, you know. I guess so. I, Dad always, his view of folk music was different than other people's. You know, a lot of people thought he didn't think it was his job. He didn't think it was necessarily his job to bang that drum and go out there and and be that part of the activist. He he didn't think it was a folk. People always thought it was a folk singer's job or doing. And they need to write the songs about this and tell these stories. Dad looked at it differently. He just would go collect the stories and talk to the people and write the songs about it and leave it up for the people to do do things for themselves. Yeah. You know, and I think there's part of that. He had no ego about that. 
<laughs> you know, he like when Johnny Cash wanted to record a whole album of his songs and he wouldn't let Johnny do it. And Johnny respected it and never did because he didn't like the music industry. He didn't like where Johnny made his money from and he wasn't going to make money off an industry that he hated. That, yeah. that's, and that endeared my father to people. Because, you know, whatever dad talked about on stage, homelessness, union organizing, whatever he talked about off stage, you can be damn sure when he got off stage, he was volunteering at home and starting a peace center or starting yeah. Utah's place, and he was working on those problems. That's the yeah. difference between my father and those other people you mentioned. And yeah. there's plenty of musicians that influence people in their lives. You can sing like Bob Dylan or anybody else, and you can be influenced by people. There's very few musicians that are going to influence the way you live your life. Not, all, not only how you perform, but how you go live your life. My father was one of those people. And that's the difference. Yeah. We, uh, David, if um, you have a final question, maybe, or if not, let's do one more song, like The Telling Takes Me Home. Okay. Uh, Did I mail you that one? The- <laughs> I mean... <laughs> I mailed you a, what was it? Mountain Home. Mountain Home? Let's do that. Let's do that. Hey, thanks, David, too. Thank you. (laughs) I know the sun is shining on my mountain valley home As it does every night in all my dreams And yet when I awaken to the white Pacific dawn No one knows just how far away it seems And though my heart is aching for a single friendly smile And all the pretty geisha girls may turn my head a while The good times I remember are the best I've ever known Way back in my mountain valley home The sights are always new May dull my heart to loved ones far away Though my friends may all forsake me And my sweetheart prove untrue I know that I'll be going home someday And when my heart is burdened By the many miles between I'll think about the mountains And their mantle of bright green And I'll hear the forest singing Away up there alone where the sun shines on my mountain valley home. Perfect. Thank you. Somebody, by the way, just found one of the other things about your dad. He had these great aphorisms, great sayings, and someone just posted one. The earth is not dying. It is being killed. And the people who are killing it have names and addresses. Spoken like a true true but, <laughs> and 
Wow. That, I, I think wow. about that almost every That's I think amazing. About that almost every day lately though because the left the right has taken that to another level. You know, there it's true that those people do have names and they do have addresses. But, you know, there's a part of society that's equally on the other side that has latched onto that and actually follows through with that. So it's interesting when I see a lot of these old quotes from my father's pop up and their calls to action for typically social justice movements. But there's another segment of society that has learned to use those tools and sometimes better than we do on the left. And they're yeah. becoming better at organizing. And we need to kick ourselves in the butt and remember that and actually start to not just talk the talk, but walk the walk, as my dad would say. Absolutely. Duncan, thank you so much for doing this. Before you go. Thank you. Can you read, Duncan, can you, uh, and the Reverend Barry W. Lind, and I want to start the next segment by playing you a clip based on that aphorism. Can you tell me what it is again, please? The earth is not dying. It is being killed. And the people who are killing it have names and addresses. Let me play you some testimony. Uh, uh, Congresswoman Rashida Tlaib grilling the heads of the major banks yesterday. This is Congresswoman Rashida Tlaib, who everybody should be donating to. Please answer with a simple yes or no. Does your bank have a policy against funding new oil and gas products, Mr. Diamond? Absolutely not. And that would be the road to hell for America. Yeah, that's fine. That's fine, sir. You know what? Everybody that got relief from student loans has a bank account with your bank should probably take out their account and close their account. The fact that you're not even there to help relieve many of the folks that are in debt, extreme debt because of student loan debt, and you're out there criticizing it. Ms. Frazier, how about you? Uh, we will continue to invest in uh, and support clients who are investing in fossil fuels and in uh, in helping them transition to cleaner energies. And Mr. Uh, Monahan? We are helping our clients make a transition, and that means we're, we're lending to both oil and gas companies and to new energy companies and helping monitor their course towards the standards you're talking about. Yeah, Mr. Sharp. Uh, Excuse me, uh, the same thing as Mr. Moynihan said. Yeah, I'm not going to ask you, Mr. Diamond, because you obviously don't care about working class people in frontline communities like ours that are facing huge amounts of high rates of asthma, respiratory issues, and so much more. Cancer rates are so high among my communities that I represent. So I'm not going to even ask you if you're committing to ending financing of new oil and gas projects. But Ms. Frazier, Mr. Monahan, Mr. Shea, we are living through a climate crisis today. And a commitment to net zero requires a commitment to ending fossil fuel financing. It is important because I want you all to know at the end, we're going to pay the cost of the public health impact. These are people that you're supposed to be serving. Those names are Moynihan, Shafe, Diamond, Frazier, and that's Rashida Tlaib, our, our wow. congresswoman. What's that aphor- aphorism? <laughs> What's the aphorism again? Please. The aphorism again. Yeah, what is it? Uh, let me let me get back to the aphorism. The earth is not dying; it is being killed, and the people who are killing it have names and addresses. And the biggest investor in fossil fuels is J.P. Morgan Chase, Jamie Dimon, and yep. Congresswoman Rashida Tlaib is telling people to boycott 
J.P. Morgan Chase. Pull your money out of J.P. Morgan Chase. It is suicide. Your body is your ballot. Vote with it every day. Yep. It is suicide, literally suicide, to support these bankers. Thank you, Duncan Phillips. Please come, please come back. The Reverend Barry W. Lynn, fantastic job as always. I'll see you. Thank you. Next week, I hope. Thank you. It's almost time for the professors and Marianne, (laughs) but it's time for Joe in Norway, in Belgium. No, are you? Where? Huh? I've I've made it to Falco's in Belgium. You're at Falco's. Is Falco there? He's uh, sleeping softly, so I have uh, to be a little quiet. Okay, so <laughs> Joe has been meeting up with everybody from office hours. You you, who have you 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 who have you met so far? Well, I was uh, planning to meet James in France, but I missed out on him. And I just came from Switzerland meeting Anna in Basel. And now I'm in uh, outside of Brussels, sitting in Falco. Right. Slowly making my way home, crawling, dragging my feet. You, you live the <laughs> life. You really do. And so, so you and Falco... Went rummaging through the countryside yesterday for herbs and vegetables to prepare tonight's meal. What did you gather? Now, did you, is it true that you had snails? We did that. We did have snails, but they've been removed. <laughs> did you eat them? No, there were more slugs than. Uh, but you don't eat. The, uh, are you a vegetarian? No, nah, nah, I'm mostly a vegetarian. Okay. 95%. So what are you going to be torturing us with tonight? Well, this this is a late harvest from Falco and its friend's garden. So everything you see here is from his garden. And I'm not exactly sure what I'm going to make, but we have cabbage, an extremely uh, overgrown zucchini. We have amaranth leaves. Let me we see the amaranth. Sorrel. What is amaranth leaves? Uh, amaranth is a grain, kind of like quinoa. It's more a fine grain than quinoa, but kind of similar. And you can mm-hmm. use the little leaves. Uh, they're very healthy. I've also got, uh, I forget what it is in English, uh, shard. Shard. White shard. And, and, and Sir Arthur Grebe Striebling, do you grow any of this at Ribbington Hall in North? Up in uh, dear, he must have shard. I'm sure, I, I, shard. I think he said he and hates possibly vegetables. some sorrel. Yeah, very sour. He grows chuds. <laughs> We've got sun I won't here. Tell you who said that? You'd be appalled if I told you who said that. <laughs> he grows chuds. We've also got four little four little fingerling potatoes. <laughs> sorry. I'm sorry. There are certain people who uh 
are part of the show and mm. their, their sense of humor sometimes uh, <laughs> surprises me. <laughs> All right, so you don't know what you're going to be preparing. Uh, no, actually, I got a bit of a challenge because uh, Falco's stovetop, he just moved in here and the stovetop hasn't appeared. So I'll be cooking for the first time in my life with a microwave. Oh, oven. This, so is... this is going to be a, a real experiment. So it might go off the rails. Are you you're going to cook this entire meal with a microwave oven? A microwave. And in the end, with an oven, so I can figure out the technology. So it's a microwave slash oven. So we'll see. We'll see what we got going on here. Fantastic. But I'm really, really curious to see how the sun chokes turn out. And the green tomato, maybe salsa with horseradish, really spicy horseradish. And what do we have for office hours coming up? Uh, I have been traveling, so I've got no clue at the moment. Okay. I would assume we have some openings if people want to sign up. Yeah, they can sign up. I'll post it in the chat here afterwards. Okay. And by the way, if you're enjoying this show, please go to rahima.org. R-A-H-I-M-A dot org, Rahima dot org. It is the best way to donate money to uh, help people. R-H, R-A, I'm sorry, R-A-H-I-M-A dot org. It is a food pantry set up by Professor Adnan Hussein's parents in the San Francisco Bay Area, and it feeds refugees Vegetables, yogurt, good food, not garbage. And that's important. So uh, it's a, give to Rahima.org. Uh, please give to Rahima.org. Professor Ann Lee, what would you like to talk about? Let's talk about Ukraine. Professor Ann, oh, let me introduce everybody. Joining us is Professor Adnan Hussein who is the host of the Mudgeless podcast and Guerrilla History. We have Professor Mary Ann Cummings, who is Parks Commissioner for Aurora, Illinois, as well as a particle physicist. Uh, <laughs> and just incredible. And uh, Professor Jonathan Bick, who will be at office hours teaching the Twilight Zone and Star Trek. And Professor Ann Lee Everybody, read her over at the Daily Coes. We'll put it in the chat room. Her handle is Annie Lee. Every midnight, seven days a week, she gives us an update on Ukraine. How is it going? Well, we're on uh, uh, tomorrow will be uh, 212 days of invasion and uh it's uh, it's a labor of uh, love or hate or something. It's uh, been very interesting. I mean, the the UN speeches were uh, interesting, provoked a lot of people. Uh, some Russians got annoyed. Um, it uh, the war continues. Let's just put it that way. the The big story, of course, is the um, waving of uh, sabers yesterday um, by. Uh, Putin um, claiming that uh, I'm not bluffing, which 
is in itself a tell, which is quite amusing. But uh, what, what do you mean? Th- what do you mean? Well, it's it's like uh, somebody who tells you that they're not bluffing is more likely to be bluffing. Ah, uh, one okay. could say, and uh, in terms of intention, so it, that that's quite amusing to me. But uh, uh, of course, I I wrote a little bit about the the tactical uh, yesterday's uh, when I sort of went through the uh, the disposition of tactical nuclear weapons on. Uh, NATO and the U.S. side versus uh, the Russians. Russians have a lot more tactical nuclear weapons. Uh, speaking of that, and, and tell but everybody it, it, it also it, please, has to do with the tactical. Tell strategy. everybody the difference between a strategic nuclear weapon and a tactical. Most people. Well, it's a fuzzy. It's a fuzzy line now that there are uh, better delivery systems for. Uh, and also that uh, nuclear weapons are much more. Um, Die, their dial-in kind of uh, uh, nuclear weapons, and uh, uh, you can dial them up from a fairly small uh, uh, payload to a very large payload. Uh, the U.S. Uh, tactical nuclear weapons can, I think it's, uh, you can dial them up. The The ones that we use that are placed in uh, Europe are the tactical ones. You can dial them up, I think, to 15 kilotons. Uh, but you can dial them down to 0.6 or something kilotons. So, and that would uh, be for tactical use. Yes, for uh, or but, hobbyists. Uh, <laughs> 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 um, for shorter distances, let's yeah. put it that way. Uh, message sending, which is kind of where the, the Russian tactical nukes are. They're um, they're a slightly lower yield, but they're they're obviously designed to take out incredibly uh, uh, important targets. And you don't, you know, it, it is. When you uh, say message sending, it means we're willing to use nuclear weapons, and we're willing to radiate how many square miles for? I mean, is that the well, idea? The lower yield ones, uh, it would take out. You know, uh, a significant portion of uh, Ukraine cities, for example, uh, if they wanted to. But that's the second they do that, uh, retaliation is going to be pretty huge. Uh, the American doctrine, the current American doctrine is to threaten with strategic weapons with um, it's not going to be tit for tat uh, tactical weapons. So They're, our policy is to. The second you do it, we are going to overwhelm all your major cities and screw you up pretty bad. With other um, nuclear weapons. With other nuclear weapons. So the, the, there is uh, still the, the and of course, there's a lot more nuance in this because it has evolved. But in general, the policy has remained the same. It's a kind of NATO position on this that uh, you just better not start it because we're going to finish it. And it's, you know, it has that kind of posture to it. So Putin's threat, you know, is, uh, with all due respect, an, an empty one. In fact, it probably reveals that he's going to use uh, other kinds of field weapons, that uh, he, he has a uh, uh, a fuel air bomb weapon that uh, is in- incredibly horrible. And he used them a couple times at the beginning of the war. And he's uh, stopped using them Um partially because people were sort of figuring out 
well, this is a huge escalation. And also a lot incredible number of people were killed and maimed. Um, we, th- these are the data is so unclear about what they're, you know, these, uh, what's it, uh, thermobaric weapons, uh, and Russia has more of them than the U.S. The U.S. has them in, in, their, in its arsenal, too, uh, as, as well as cluster bombs and a whole bunch of other. So there's a thermobaric things. weapons gap that we have to worry about. Well, in terms of using them, I mean, uh, the United States has used them to affect in uh, the Middle East in our prior wars. So but that's not Moab. Not, that's not the mother of all bombs. No, no, no. Uh, and in fact, it, it would be unclear whether they would ever use the Moab in this uh, in, in this conflict. Although if for some reason, um, if it got to it, I suppose they would use it on the mines in uh, Donbass um, because they're, the, the Moab is a weapon that uh, kind of designed to create a small earthquake. Uh, it, it uh, it's a really big weapon, <laughs> it, but it's a conventional weapon. And um, the the thing is, of course, the Russians uh, once uh, have actually made a version of it called the father of all bombs. Uh, mm. So which is slight, slightly bigger. Um, anyway, enough of uh, weaponry. But the most interesting thing to me is, is the sort of sort of side stories. I mean, it's, it's going to be problematic and, People are going to parse out not only um, this. Actually, it's really interesting when Putin makes these national speeches, what he's going to do. And the big problem is, is this so-called par- partial mobilization where uh, he, he claims that uh, uh, he's going to uh, they're going to increase uh, recruitment or conscription to 300,000 uh, troops. But the problem, of course, is that. You know, there's actually a whole bunch of people who are eligible to be conscripted, but it's being used in an incredibly punitive way, punitive way, so that uh, people who have been in demonstrations, they say, have been instantly recruited, uh, put into the the military. Uh, this is uh, more. There's a lot of disinformation here, but this does continue the the issue of. Um, uh, offering uh, clemency for uh, prisoners, convicts, to um, either join the um, the private military corporation uh, uh, Wagner or to fight uh, for the with the Russian army. But the the question still is of, of whether he has enough skilled skilled troops. And the real number is essentially to offset the number of Russians. And we still don't know what that number is uh, killed uh, since the, the war began. So that's sort of interesting. And, and the side issue that's, that at least I wanted to end on a lighter note. So Newsweek writes about a, uh, a bar in Tbilisi, Georgia, uh, because uh, uh, Russians are starting to flee the country. There's been a, a you can't get an airline ticket out of Russia uh, to save your life, as it were. Uh, because of conscription, and this is clear, clearly shows us kind of a class difference. If you can't afford to get out of Russia at a thousand or two thousand dollars a ticket, you're really screwed. Um, and so there's uh, backups of uh, traffic, of auto traffic, uh, vehicular traffic to either places like Finland or, in this case, to Georgia, which is going 
you know, you take a route and if you can manage to drive that far to uh, north uh, uh, Assetia or south Assetia, whatever. But so anyway, in Georgia itself, capital Tbilisi, there's a bar. It's called uh, Dedena. And, um, uh, you know, uh, uh, bars in some ways are a measure of the real political situation um, because this particular bar is uh, forcing Russian citizens desiring to enter the establishment to fill out a visa. Um, you have to fill out, you know, those little Sounds like Rick's place you, in Casablanca. Uh, yes, exactly. Uh, so they, they tell you that uh, citizens of Russia need a visa to enter today in a bar because not all Russians are welcome. We stand for equality and uh, and unity, but we need to make sure that brainwashed Russian imperialists do not end up in our bar. Please support us by filling up a visa application so nobody has to hang out alongside a-holes. Thanks for understanding. <laughs> and so there's a, a, a checkbox, a, a series of checklists. You know, like if you do enter a foreign country, they, the customs folks do make you fill out these forms. So you got to sign your name and surnames acknowledging that they're Russian citizens visiting Georgia and that they plan to show, quote unquote, respect for their host country. And then you got to check off a series of boxes. Um, so you have to, to uh, check off whether I didn't vote for Putin. He is a dictator. I condemned Russian aggression to Ukraine. Yes or no. Crimea is Ukraine, so are other disputed territories, very important relative to Georgia and uh, North and South Ossetia. Uh, <clears throat> Abkhazia and uh, Tishin Valley, uh, I, I, I know Adnan will correct me on these matters, uh, regions are Georgia. 20% of Georgia are occupied by Russia. Uh, agree or disagree, every 12th Georgian turned into a refugee due to Russian invasion. And the last two are kind of interesting, and I'm going to butcher this because I know no Georgian. I like the phrase, uh, Ruski Mene Karabli Idi Na Shui, which is uh, 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 Russian worship, go uh, screw yourself, uh, which is the phrase that uh, uh, from Snake Island um, uh, and and is you know has that image of the Moskva sending sent to the bottom of the uh, the Black Sea, and finally uh, uh, agree or disagree, Slava Ukraini Gloria to uh, Ukraine, and so um, he you know the Russian patrons have to use either English or Georgian to communicate with staff, and they're not supposed to pay in rubles and not to discuss politics while being drunk. Oh, we should have more bars like this in the United States. <laughs> Well, anyway, any that's, uh, any that's hope of Ukrainian a, report? No negotiations, no possibility of sitting down. No, Zelensky, Zelensky made fun of uh, uh, the Russians, although they, there was a prisoner swap where one mm -hmm. of the oligarchs who was in line to take over, uh, he was one of those couple of folks who would have been the new puppet ruler of Ukraine. And they tracked him down and caught him about a month after the invasion started. Uh, so, and he's a big deal. He's, he's a, a, you know, an oligarch on the same level as uh, Poroshenko. Uh, they did uh, to the Russians for a bunch of uh, folks, uh, some with, very, with one on the political level, some uh, members of the Azov 
uh, battalion who uh, who were in Mariupol uh, defending the steel plant. Um, but the, what more interesting was who negotiated this uh, this prisoner swaps about 215 prisoners because uh, they're high priority, high value prisoners. Um, uh, MBS uh, uh, and uh, uh, Erdogan were both involved in the negotiations, and these prisoners are not going to be uh, sent back to Ukraine, the ones uh, from the Oswald Battalion, but they're going to uh, be um, interned, I suppose, uh, with knives, houses, or whatever in uh, Turkey hmm. um, until the war is ended. So anyway, that's kind of where yeah. we are. Uh, Zelensky met with Larry Fink, aptly named, since he's the head of BlackRock, which manages close to $10 trillion worth of assets around the world. And Larry Fink, the head of BlackRock, very generously, pro bono, met with Zelensky to offer uh, advice on how to rebuild Ukraine's infrastructure. Uh <laughs> How to get people to uh, invest in Ukraine? There's going to be so many land deals and construction projects. It's if you have money in concrete and steel, uh, you're going to make a lot of money if, uh, if you invest in Ukraine. It's unfortunate that this is what it is, but you know, and I don't think it was intentional because just the Russians couldn't had didn't have. But it was uh, for Halliburton in Iraq. I mean, Halliburton. Oh, yeah, it is. I mean, Halliburton made money off the invasion, servicing the troops. And then they were supposed to make money on the oil drilling and the building of, you know, homes. And so when they're sitting at the top of BlackRock, these investment houses, they're thinking about the whole menu, right? From soup to nuts. The invasion, investing in the the missiles, the bombs, and the reconstruction, right? They they have that all planned ahead. It's uh you know, it's a frontier. People are gonna it's good for corporations. There's gonna be a lot of building in uh, Ukraine. And I they're mean, not you know, I mean, the, war, the war isn't even close to ending and already BlackRock is planning the future. Oh, yeah, they, they haven't stopped. This this happened at the beginning of the war. It, and a lot of it is just sort of identifying where the money is. I, I think that's uh, that's going to be an interesting problem. Is this a new thing? Or was has well, this, was this did, you know, were they doing this during World War One? Well, I don't think that they were thinking about property necessarily, but... Uh, I think most wars uh, always project what's going to be, you know, the post-war situation, even even the apocalyptic, right? Who will envy the dead? Great. Let's turn to Professor Bick, unless anybody has any follow-up questions. Well, I wasn't sure if I heard... Uh, Professor Anley, correctly, uh, but I, I, it sounded like you were saying that uh, Putin was his threats of using nuclear weapons for empty. Um, I wouldn't be so sure. I mean, if 
he's backed into a corner rather than face a humiliating defeat, um, he might well resort to using nuclear weapons. I mean, you know, could he withstand, uh, let's say, you know, what the, uh, the West is hoping that Ukraine is able to push Russia out of Ukraine entirely and maybe out of uh, uh, Crimea as well. Um, I mean, do you think Putin would accept that and not use uh, nuclear weapons? Well, we'll see what the state of the, uh, the Russian military is. It may not know. be his to accept. Yeah, uh, this, this is the issue that at some moment... Uh, the Russian military will not put up with uh, a really losing proposition. Um, much of their assets are being used up. And, uh, and then of course, uh, a lot of, uh, <laughs> a lot of generals are getting fired. Um, so, or are dying or are getting captured or whatever. So th- this is, uh, you know, and, and also uh, from a, an analysis point of view, the tone, it really actually is no different. It's the same threat he's made before. It isn't any more radical than other threats when you look at it from a linguistic point of view. He uses the same lexicon uh, and a veiled threat that we have, you know, we have more terrible weapons and we're ready to sort of use them is sort of what the, the interpretation he's trying to go for. But the reality, of course, is that, you know, it, it's he's in no position to do that. There's a lot of disinformation, of course, where people are saying, well, you know, they're not in good shape and blah, blah, blah. You know, it, it really only takes one. And, and this is the issue that one nuclear weapon, this goes back to failsafe, right? One nuclear weapon can ruin your whole day. It, 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 it will be, you know, the first actual military nuclear device since World War II, if it happens. And if that's the, you know, I, I agree with you that he, he could be threatening to do that, but I don't know if that's the mark he wants to make on history. Well, let's hope not. But I mean, I, I think we should be, you know, I think we should consider it as a possibility. Um, and, you know, the pressure should be resolved as, uh, as quickly as possible through diplomatic means. Oh, I, but that I agree. Doesn't, that doesn't seem to be the... Uh, what the playbook is uh, from the United States part, uh, particularly. Well, I actually, I would assume that the Russians actually probably have greater control over their nuclear weapons than the United States, but that's only because. No, I'm talking about. I'm talking about resolving it through diplomacy. Oh yeah, well that, you know it it the, I, I published a thing that estimated why hadn't the Kursk, uh bridge between uh, Crimea and Russia been hit by any kind of missiles yet. Well, it's because actually both sides perceive that they have more, le- well, the Ukrainians think they have a lot more leverage by not not destroying it as opposed to, and, and you've got to leave the Russians a, a, a means by which they can flee Crimea. So you're, you're not going to attack it, even though from a, a total war point of view, you'd probably, I mean, with all due respect, I thought it was going to be targeted the first couple of weeks of the war, but it, it, it isn't and it, and it won't be. It's a huge bridge. I mean, it's it's two bridges. It's a railway bridge and a, a, a vehicle bridge. And and of course, the Ukrainians in their little uh, sense of trolling the Russians made lots of fun about, you know, 
they make fun about uh, too much smoking near weapons and stuff like that when sabotage occurs. But yeah, they made a few jokes about the Kirsch Bridge, which actually they haven't talked about it that much. Okay. Great job. And everybody should subscribe to Professor Ann Lee at the Daily Co's. She writes under the handle Annie Lee, and we'll put the link in both chat rooms. Professor Bick, what would you like to talk about tonight? Well, David, I, uh, by the way, uh, how are you doing, David? Good. Oh, good. I, I'm not doing so hot tonight. I don't know. I think you're aware that I'm a vegetarian and I tried to adapt a, a new recipe that I saw online uh, for vegetarian cooking. And I tried uh, soaking tofu in NyQuil mm. and cooking that up and uh, not feeling great right now. Ah, I hear the kids I don't are know doing if that's that. related or not. Or, uh, uh, I did like the minty taste, though. <laughs> Um, what I really wanted to talk about was, um, <laughs> is this phenomenon that's called, uh, quiet quitting. Yes. And I think it's called that because of the alliteration. Now people really go nuts for alliteration, you know, having that, uh, they're absolutely elit. <laughs> The, the alacrity about quiet. Qu okay, sorry. Yeah. Yeah, I, it's a little confusing. Um, so they call it quiet quitting, which, uh, which came to prominence this summer as a term. And it was uh, promoted uh, particularly via TikTok videos. But the name is really misleading because there is no quitting involved. Uh, rather, employees reduce the level of their engagement in their work and reduce their discretionary effort in their work. But more importantly, uh, there is nothing new to these actions. Uh, workers have been resisting their employers in this way for hundreds of years. However, uh, so-called quit, uh, quiet quitting appears to be having at least a partial effect on the real world. Uh, labor productivity uh, has been falling during the second quarter of this year and showing the largest year-over-year -year decline since the U.S. Labor Department began tracking it in 1948. And unit labor costs are experiencing their largest four-quarter increase since 1982, uh, due in part to an undersupply of workers. Now, one reason there's an undersupply of workers, and I don't think this is being covered a lot in the news. I was thinking the same thing yesterday. Go, I think I know where you're going on this. Go ahead. All right. Uh, according to a study by Catherine Bach, who's a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution, as many as 4 million people are out of work because of symptoms of long COVID. Oh, okay. I wasn't going there. Go ahead. Okay. All right. Um, and, and again, this is only a partial explanation for this, but 8% um, of working age Americans fall into this long COVID category. 
so that's about 16.3 million potential workers. And the annual cost of just lost wages, so not including lower productivity, uh, not healthcare costs, not the costs of caregivers who had to give up work uh, to, to care for people with COVID, et cetera, uh, just the lost wages would be about $170 billion a year. And uh, this is not getting a lot of reporting because uh, you know it's not easy to diagnose long COVID in many cases. And uh, people are not going to their doctor and saying, oh, I have long COVID. And they may say, I have these symptoms. And you know, physicians, when you're seeing them for a 15-minute appointment, may not have the time to put uh, all of this together and to really do a workup that's necessary to come to this conclusion. But anyway, uh, definitions associated with quiet quitting vary. Uh, most focus on whether... Um, uh, uh, realistic boundaries that prevent burnout uh, are, are being set by the employee and, and not going that extra mile at work. So these um, definitions contain uh, uh, important differences. So on the one hand, you can have employees and employers working together to kind of come up with boundaries, you know, uh, limiting the number of hours of work or uh, being allowed to work from home or whatever. Uh, on the other hand, you have sort of foot dragging uh, or, or not uh, uh, going the extra mile for your, uh, for your workplace. And uh, that's seen as a, as a negative. So I was reading a, an article in uh, Forbes by John M. Bremen, who describes himself as, quote, chief innovation and acceleration officer for WTW. I'm a global business leader, C-suite and board advisor and thought leader. I'm frequently uh, asked to speak at global and industry industry conferences, uh, and he's quoted often in the business presses around the world. Okay. And so he has a, a few suggestions on how to address this quiet quitting phenomenon. Does it involve so quietly firing people? <laughs> no. No, uh, I think he's trying to address this in a constructive way uh, as far as he's able to perceive things with, you know, given him, where he is in the uh, economic structure. Um, so number one, he says, do not pin quiet quitting on Generation Z. He says employee engagement challenges began long before there was such a thing as Generation Z or TikTok which is true. Uh, effective leaders do not, do not subscribe to generational or other stereotypes. Instead, they consider each employee as a unique individual with their own set of needs and priorities, and they consider the impact of quiet quitting across the entire organization. Okay, that's fair, right? We're not going to pin this on right. a particular generation, and I don't think that holds up. 
then he says, number two, double down on the employee experience, which is the sum of moments that matter in an employee's daily life in an organization. Employee experience is being inspired by the purpose of the organization, making connections with colleagues and leaders, doing meaningful work, feeling valued and fairly rewarded. Effective leaders use these key elements to re-energize workers, especially as their organizations undergo change. Okay, now here, I think we need to be very specific, right? So given that about 90% of American workers who work in the private sector uh, uh, work for for-profit companies, it's about 10, 11% that work in nonprofits, right? So the purpose of a for-profit corporation is to make a profit. Um, it is the overriding purpose of a for-profit organization to maximize profit. That is why they exist. So my question is, how many workers can be re-energized by the purpose of maximizing profits for the owners of the corporation? So not for themselves, but for the people who own the company. Um, and this is closely related to the idea of uh, doing meaningful work. How do you define meaningful in the context of a business that values profit over everything else? And if, if the company is a public company that is traded on the stock market, uh, they are punished for looking after anything other than the bottom line. So when, when he says that uh, employees should, be, should feel valued and fairly rewarded, well, how should we define fairly rewarded in the context of a business that derives at least part of its profits from underpaying employees? Right. You know, whenever possible, businesses pay their workers less than the value of their labor. That's how they make a profit, part of how they make a profit, right? Now, this brings us to what the Federal Reserve did yesterday and what it's continuing to do in raising interest rates in an attempt to reduce demand in the economy. By raising interest rates, that makes money more expensive to borrow, which results in cutting housing demand, cutting auto demand, making new businesses harder to start, etc. And all of this eventually will result in job loss and reduce power of employees in the labor market. In fact, I find it interesting, whenever employees get any kind of leverage in the economy vis-a-vis -vis their employers, the Federal Reserve is on the spot to raise interest rates and therefore crush any power that working people have in the economy. Even when the actual causes of inflation could be addressed in other ways that do not harm working people. So the Federal Reserve could say, since it is by law obligated not only to, to look after prices, but also to minimize unemployment, what they should say is to the government, the Congress, and the president, it's your job to address this inflation, 
by raising taxes on businesses, on the wealthy, of actually enforcing antitrust laws, of uh, imposing uh, taxes on, on windfall profits um, because of the uh, pandemic and the, you know, the uh, sudden uh, resurgence of the economy. That's what they should be doing. But instead, what are they going to do? They're going to raise interest rates, which will uh, wipe out the most vulnerable workers in the country, but because they'll lose their jobs. And yes, eventually that's going to reduce inflation, but at a, a at a cost that is, doesn't need to happen. Well, it'll bring down the price of food because people who are out of work, the demand for food will go down. So the price oh, of the, food will go down. The demand for everything will go down. I'm making a right? joke. That's, that's kind I, of I was, the idea, I, yeah. I was, it was a Malthusian joke. Oh, yes. Um, so I have a little problem with his, yeah. or I'd, I'd like him to be a little more specific when he's talking about, you know, uh, inspiring workers by the purpose of the organization and make sure they're fairly rewarded. We need to be a little more specific there. And he, he raises a number of other uh, points, but I'll just say one more. And that is, he says, address flexible work challenges. Effective leaders balance remote and in-person work and help employees find a new equilibrium, making any return to workplaces positive. They know that they cannot expect workers to be available 24-7. Gee, that's nice, isn't it? Mm -hmm. and, and that they cannot simply throw more silence uh, assignments on already overwhelmed employees when they are shorthanded and experiencing stress. They also need to respect boundaries. Okay, so I have some suggestions here. Um, the workday should be clearly demarcated. Uh, after work is over, there should be no work emails or texts. There should be no expectation on the employer that the employees should be working after the workday is over. Just because they're, you know, we have these electronic devices and texts and all that uh, doesn't mean you can have them essentially on call. And uh, for environmental reasons, as well as that most employees prefer it, um, if you can't make work entirely remote, uh, then you should provide additional pay to employees who have to commute. Right. And they should reduce the work week. If you really care about life-work balance and, you know, respecting boundaries and all this, these nice little phrases they throw out, then we should re reduce the work week. We can reduce it to from 40 to 37 and a half and then to 35, like France has done in other countries, and then to 30. I think we could get there over time without a reduction in pay for employees. Uh, but of course, you know, somebody who consults for businesses is not going to say these kinds of things, at least explicitly. Um, so, yeah. Those are my thoughts on that. Great. Thoughts? Professor? Yeah. Um, 
By the way, Professor John, thank you for introducing us to Jack Rasmus. You had him on the show about a year ago, and I've been corresponding with him fairly regularly now. And um, and he's uh, he he's puts uh, a lot of his thoughts on Twitter, but uh, particularly for this um, recent inflation, he says he has calculated roughly the inflation is a third maybe a third driven by demand. One third global supply chain disruption because of mostly COVID and the US sanctions. But uh, and but the third of it, at least, is simple price gouging by US corporations because they can. And in the statement, Powell even admits that rate hikes do absolutely nothing for those two thirds that have nothing to do with demand that it's structural. And even the demand is, is kind of, it, it's it, it's not welling up naturally. It, it's a reaction to the events of the last two and a half years, which, you know, a reasonable, robust economy, it would just absorb. But, you know, the, the, the Federal Reserve decides that, you know, our population needs shock doctrine, capitalism, to get us what more disciplined or something. I don't know. Maybe we've been spoiled, in their opinion, by having uh, growing up with indoor plumbing. <laughs> but I mean, seriously, th- this seems to be almost sadistic. I mean, and they're just uh, they're they're just callous disregard for um, the suffering of most people in this country. Yeah, and, and I recommend having uh, Dr. Rasmus back on the program. Yes, let's do that. Yeah. What if? Yeah, it- he's got. Uh, he he he, uh, he he directed me to uh, several articles. I mean, it it's hard for me to understand exactly, you know, these uh, these predictions economics because I'm looking for like a conserved current like physics, and you don't have it exactly. But I mean, his thinking seems to be very much rooted in reality and in, in what people are actually going through, and basically, you know, policy. He's one of the things that he's very, I mean, people talk about industrialization versus finance and the economy. He says, you can't, you you can't distangle this from it. It's all Wall Street now, you know, because it's not just, it's, it's just not, for instance, energy. It's not just the fossil fuels. It's just Wall Street's investment at, into fossil fuels and the financial instruments built up. I mean, it was, it's very frustrating. I was um, at a meeting this morning with the, um, Nuclear Energy, uh, in, uh, Nuclear Energy Innovation Council, and they were uh, we were talking about the kind of technologies, include particularly those that would deal with spent fuel, and they just got into a big conversation about well, you know, are the stockholders and the investors need you know to blah blah blah, and I had to interrupt everybody. I said, do we think this is a serious problem or not? You know, why are we talking about Wall Street firms? Maybe the money, because they were were trying to parse out what we're actually going to get in this uh, in the Inflation Reduction Act that's going to nuclear. Some amount of that money is going to go to R and D. And I said this should have nothing to do with Wall Street. We're trying to solve a problem. They'll follow us when you know when we build stuff. They they will have no problem. This is will have no problem trying to to invest later. But it's just so frustrating that the thinking of people is so straight into like 
figuring out what Wall Street will, you know, will will invest in rather than, hey, let, let's solve a problem, which is an existential crisis, which is, you know, the which is energy and fossil fuel and global warming. And the idea that we're straitjacketed by this thinking is, is just so frustrating to me. And I think people have just convinced themselves that this is some goddamn law of physics, like gravity or something, that, and it isn't. It's all decisions. It's all policy. It's all a group of people that get their control because they have forced the ideas or gotten people to buy into their ideas. And that's it. A small group of people. Yeah, so anyway, yes, please, let's get Dr. Yeah. Rasmus on the show. Great. Great. Professor Hussein? Well, just on this, I wanted to um, underscore that um, in addition to, uh, I think uh, I think Prof. John had it exactly right uh, when he said that the economy, the decision makers who run and govern the economy or are influential in the economy seem to make all kinds of uh, decisions that are designed to counter uh, can, you know, any situation where workers bargaining conditions for wages, uh, better conditions, benefits, and so on improves. And so first, the inflation itself was really targeting, you know, a targeted working class uh, people. I mean, you know, this just seemed to be uh, a desire for other parts of the economy that may have suffered during um, the pandemic, uh, where you know, certain kinds of uh, online marketers and other industries made incredible profits is that now some of the other industries are just jacking up prices to make up for lost ground from, you know, the last couple of years in the pandemic. And um, then this decision to uh, raise interest rates is just, you know, punitive on top of already a situation that was attacking you know, working class people. So it's, uh, it seems like every decision that's being made, the priority is how do you set back working class people? How do you make people more vulnerable, incapable of organizing and bargaining for their rights against the corporate, um, you know, barons uh, who are just exploiting the situation uh, because they can, because they have monopolies or because, um uh, you know, they can use these excuses just to jack up, uh, uh, you know, cost and blame workers, you know, for it saying, oh, you know, the wages have, have gone up, but they find every way to undercut those gains that are being made. So I think that's a very serious problem. Um, in terms of topics, I was going to talk a about the Ukraine situation as well. Um, and uh, but I think we covered almost every one of the topics with uh, Professor and Lee, um, the only thing I would say is, uh, you know, Turkey helped broker this uh, prisoner swap. They helped broker um, an agreement to allow uh, grain from Ukraine to uh, be put back into the market. They tried to broker uh, a peace agreement in March that was scuttled in April. Um, they keep trying. It's very interesting. Um, 
why isn't our government trying? Obviously, we know why there's a larger analysis of this, but I think we need at this point now with the escalation of the war, uh, this call up by the Russian military, this is a response, uh, you know, that is dramatically escalating the war. The renewal, uh, Professor Anley is correct that Russia always maintained that they could conceivably, if they felt their national interests uh, were uh, at risk um, in a, a existential sort of way. They said, you know, you know, all options are on the table. There could be, you know, tactical nuclear. But I, I feel like this reassertion of it in the context of a major mobilization, in the context of uh, suffering some losses of territory in areas that they had managed to to gain, is ratcheting up the tension. And Everything that we were worried about at the outset of this war of escalation, that if, you know, if uh, NATO uh, and the U.S. Um, use this as a proxy war and try to trap uh, Russia into long and extended conflict to sap their strength, to undermine, you know, the regime and um, and so on, that it just was going to raise the specter of escalation that could get out of control and be incredibly dangerous. And I feel on a day like today that we're getting closer to that and we can foresee that these measures that Russia is taking are definitely going to ensure that the war goes on for many, many months. I mean, if you call up 300,000, some reports say that uh, the authorization may be for as many as a million uh, troops uh, it's going to take months to train them. If you're going to go through all of that, it's going to take months to train and deploy them. The winter is coming, okay? Mm -hmm. um, you know, Russia is probably hoping that pressure on the energy crisis will force, uh, you know, Europe and NATO to back off or at least pay a cost for this. That all has to be played out over the course of the winter, it means there's no end in sight here um, in a military sense uh, until, you know, the earliest next summer, perhaps, you know, uh, for this set of scenarios, the decisions that are being taken now for those to play out. You know, we're talking seven to 10 months, maybe as much as a, a year. This is devastating for the world, for Ukraine, for Russia, for it's devastating for everybody except some groups that are going to make an awful lot of money on weapons, on spiked energy costs. Uh, some people are going to profit from all of this, uh, but it's going to be devastating and terrible for the whole world. Why are we not pushing our government to get serious about negotiations? Um, I think it's, and it's going to end up taking, I think, some kind of concerted effort in the UN from what used to be called the non-aligned, I think, movement. I mean, at least whatever the new configuration of non-aligned. Uh, so I'm quite and worried. And who, who about, makes up the non-aligned? Well, these are, you know, would be countries that have thus far refused to come down uh, on supporting sanctions, nor have they necessarily defended Russia's military action, the group of countries uh, in Africa, in much of the Middle East and Asia, 
who have, um, like India, large economies. We're talking about most of the world's population. We're talking about a very significant part of the world economy, if you count the BRICS countries, uh, and um, who are basically trying to um, avoid the us versus them uh, approach that uh, the U.S. rules-based order and sanctions regime is trying to force everyone into. I just read a report about how upset, and we've seen statements being made uh, by, you know, uh, is it uh, Jen Psaki uh, and others from the administration of being really frustrated and a little annoyed and threatening of India because India has not come out very directly in supporting the U.S. position. Uh, they're still trading, they're willing to pay in rubles, but at the same time, they are cautious and concerned about the situation and also want to maintain national sovereignty, international uh, law, and the idea that invasion and, and annexation of territory is, is uh, you know, uh, against, against uh, the UN Charter. Uh, so, you know, they're trying to be balanced. And I think at a certain point, these sorts of countries are going to need uh, to uh, collaborate and cooperate together to maintain uh, their, uh, um, you know, position in the world economy, to have their interests looked after, and they will need to put pressure, um, you know, on both sides and by sides. I don't mean just the Ukrainians. I mean the U.S. and NATO and uh, and Russia to try and come to an agreement because it's going to be disastrous for you know, these countries, if this continues on for a whole other year, which is what the prognosis looks to be, because there's been no interest whatsoever. This is just outrageous to me. No interest whatsoever by our government to broker any kind of diplomatic resolution uh, to this. And the fact that there isn't a peace movement, uh, maybe there will be one in Europe. Uh, or or to... what about in Russia? Is there a possibility that there are? I, well, I think anytime you begin, you know, tr- drafting people, right. which is what's happening, you're going to have consequences. It's not going to be popular, uh, you know, but that will take time, you know, for that to really play out. And if people are waiting for the, you know, Russian regime, you know, Putin's administration to collapse, I mean, you run the risk. Uh, of having uh, further right-wing, more militaristic uh, and aggressive ultra-nationalists who, you know, will say Putin, you know, wasn't willing to go all the way. You know, he wasn't aggressive enough in his but don't they have a history? military tactics. Isn't there a history in Russia? I think Foreign Affairs has a piece. The, the, the history of the coup to replace the leader who's gone off the reservation, bad ter- bad expression. I apologize for right, right. Well, but I know what you mean. Is yeah, yeah, of course. I mean, this is a danger, possibly. But, um, you know, the question is: is can can Putin uh, sort of uh, put the blame on you know the military staff, uh, you know, decisions of the generals and their tactical enactment of the of the battle plan i i i wonder because i think a lot of those decisions were predicated on political decisions and choices early on you know miscalculations perhaps that 
you know, the Ukrainian regime would just immediately collapse or, uh, you know, they could sort of replace, uh, you know, Zelensky quickly. Um, that didn't happen. So they shifted into, you know, territory in the east and 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 the south. Now there are problems with that. You know, they're bogged down and they have to go from what they called a special military operation. Now they have to actually have a more general mobilization and that's going to be unpopular it's going to have political consequences but we shouldn't imagine that these are very predictable consequences you know so i mean relying on that is very very dangerous uh perhaps you will get some people who as uh, prof john mentioned um might push for using uh you know uh weapons uh that so far haven't been implemented and, that's and I, a very dangerous situation I just say we heard this in the U.S. Uh, when America lost the Vietnam War. One arm tied, but we're never going to fight another war with one arm tied behind our backs. We That's dropped right. more bombs on Vietnam than all the bombs we dropped combined on all the other wars, plus Laos. Cambodia. And yes, Cambodia. Exactly. And they came back and said... The problem was we didn't have a clear, the, the Powell Doctrine, we didn't have a clear mission, and we fought it with our arms tied around our back. Next time we're going to give it, we did give it our all. We sent 500,000 yeah. troops into yeah. Vietnam. Exactly. I mean, we had free fire zones. We had napalm. We had, uh, you know, kill anything that moves. Uh, we, we, we did everything, unfortunately, the, that we could. Uh, I had a cousin who fought in Vietnam and he says those things. He says we didn't. It's the stabs in the back. It's how. Yes. Yes. Go ahead, Professor Hussein. No, that's just exactly uh, the the motif of the far right and the fascists as we saw it in, you know, uh, response to, uh, well, in, you know, the Nazis, you know, basically said, you know, we were stabbed in the back, right? I mean, it's the same kind of logic. Something like that could easily happen there, I think, as well. So uh, I don't see why we don't have a stake in, uh, you know, let's just say the left. Forget about our administration. But where is the left to push for peace, diplomacy, nuclear disarmament let's get back into the nuclear disarmament you know treaties those were a very good yep. thing for the world you know uh, but there's no call for this it seems it it is still going on by the way the new start treaties there are still negotiations um we might because about 8 years ago uh i was involved in sort of a more or less back of the envelope type calculation but nonetheless it was just a uh, you know how how uh, long would it take a system of our subcritical nuclear reactors to uh, to dispense with 34 metric tons of weapons-grade plutonium, producing tritium and a whole bunch of other isotopes that might be useful for medical purposes, what and so on, and so forth, and. And you know the the demand for that was less when. Uh, we formally broke off from that several years ago with Russia. And that's a damn shame. Um, I don't know what's happened to the left. I think partly 
it was just kind of the Russia hate that's been whipped up for the last six, you know, for the last six or more years. I mean, I remember distinctly at the Democratic National Convention, you know, it, it was almost comical and childish, but there was a little bit of a, I don't know, sinister aspect to it, too, when suddenly in the middle of the convention, mostly in the afternoon, uh, there would be some uh, two minute, you know, two minute film on Donald Trump and everybody's supposed to boo. And so I started reporting it as, oh, time for our two minute hate, you know, and it, it was kind of clownish. But even as that that convention went on, especially the talks, a uh, couple talks before Hillary's final talk. I mean, at the end of this talk by this general, this whole Democratic National Convention felt like a Trump rally. So I think there's been a lot of uh, not so subtle propaganda in our own and on our own country that has whipped everybody into a state of I don't know, uh, sort of neo red baiting that makes people just want to shoot something or kill somebody or like defeat Russia or something like that. So, but yeah, there is no, there is no peace. Uh, there, there is nothing on the left here. And that's eerie that there is nobody, you know, on the side of negotiation. I mean, it's latest uh, as April this year, there was a serious peace negotiation that was being conducted that was that was being brokered by turkey between uh the, the between the players between ukraine the the donetsk russia and and others and uh boris johnson just you know visited kiev and spiked it and here we are like the war i don't even think they care that the war is not going well or that we may not win it i think there are there are forces in the United States and in the West that just want to keep the war going. Yep. Jump in for a second because you guys obviously you you're on you're on mine and Harvey's time and, uh, and oh we're, here and, we're sorry, uh, Alan. Yeah, no, no, no. But that, that's not why I'm, I'm jumping. I'm jumping because <laughs> I want to respond. Um, PDA has an official alliance with Code Pink. You know, Media Benjamin's on our advisory board. They've been with us since you know we we came out of the Iraq War era, two thousand and four. So what, what Adnan just outlined is basically PDA's official position on Ukraine and Russia. And it is also code pinks. Now, they are more forthright. And I'll be honest, within PDA's ranks, Marianne is, is spot on. They're, even within the PDA old guard, Dennis Kucinich is our, you know, the, the campaign the PDA came out of, very peace. By the way, Kucinich's line is very close to Adnan's too right now. But, but so but for the first thing to say about Whereas the left, Code Pink, and yes, PDA, but uh, more props even to Code Pink, have been out there saying exactly what I'm not saying, but nobody else on the left has been following. So the Bernie left has just not taken this up. And there is also a falling away of support, and we've had a lot of rancor inside PDA taking uh, uh, issue with the heads of our, um, we call it end wars and occupations issue organizing team or foreign policy issue organizing team, Marcy Winograd and Jim Carpenter. And they are both you know, peace activists. Um, and, you know, Roots, Roots Action, Code Pink, PDA, a Win Without War. We all have a line very similar to Adnan's. But our leadership uh, within PDA has taken a lot of flack from some of the rank and file because, yeah, they've watched too much friggin' MSNBC over the last, you know, 
whatever it's been, six, seven years. There's been a lot of Kool-Aid that's been offered up to be drunk um, around that. And um, so unfortunately, though, I would say the main thing is it's not that the is some of the institutional pe- the left peace groups aren't taking a line that's decent in this. Because I think I'm clearly right. You know, what, what the heck? Putin's, Putin's not going to back down anytime soon on this. I mean, this has got to be negotiated. And, and it's a horror show for the world, exactly as Adnan was saying and Marianne was saying. So, you know, but nobody's taken us up. In the UK, too, they, there's very little movement on this. Well, um, I'm, I'm I, distressed that there's just nothing in our political culture now that seems to allow for somebody who may be our adversary or even enemy to have actual legitimate concerns, whether you agree with them or not. I mean, that was the whole, that's the whole basis of diplomacy. Somebody has a concern. That needs to be addressed. The mythology of, is, I think it's largely the mythology of Trump's relationship to Putin that is oh, just, uh, you know, handcuffed. Got them thinking nonsense, you know, about it all. It's um, turned the left stupid. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, hate calling it, it the left. But I can't I do, think sad, about the world. Sadly, I do think significant portions of the left, like I don't think you'd even get this on an agenda at a DSA meeting almost anywhere. Yeah. Right. So. Well, we have to wrap it up. Great job, as always. Uh, Professor Marianne is a particle physicist, as well as Parks Commissioner Aurora, Illinois. Follow her on Razor Girl. We didn't have time tonight to talk about what you wanted to talk about. I apologize. Professor Adnan. We can get to it Monday. uh, Sorry about that. Professor Adnan Hussein, host of the Mudgeless Podcast and... Guerrilla history, who do you have on the show? Well, um, I'm hoping we'll have uh, Professor Harvey J.K. on quite soon to talk about uh, the new edition of the British Marxist Historians. My copy is on its way, and so we'll be arranging to speak with him very soon about all these wonderful, great historians um, and the relevance of uh, you know, that sort of work today. So I'm really looking forward to that conversation. And also, I just want to encourage people to go register for my new online free course on the crusading society and what medieval history has to do with uh, the birth of forms of religious and racial bigotry and prejudice. So the interconnected histories of Islamophobia, anti-Semitism, uh, you can go register for the course on my new website. Fantastic. org. Great. There there are other uh, Adnan Husseins out there, alas, and they got to .com ahead of me. So uh, I'm, I've am i been pushed to the .org. But so you, you belong in, in the .org. You, you belong. I, actually, I was very happy about that. Yeah. Um, I'm more of an organizational type. Than, yeah commercial type so yeah www.adnanhussein.org and yep. you are being generous enough to teach your course on the crusades yeah and so you can register for it and get the link uh, by going to you know the course page there i'm doing it right now as we plug rahima.org r a h i m a.org give money to rahima.org. It supports refugees. We don't do enough. We create refugees. 
The ones who make it to America deserve all our help. And Professor Hussein's parents have set up a food pantry in the Bay Area that supports refugees. Please go to rahima.org, R-A-H-I-M-A, and it is a great cause. They provide healthy, nutritious food that everyone here approves of. It's borderline vegan. I know it's got some yogurt. It's as pretty close to vegan as you can get. So fantastic. Thank you so much. Professor Ann Lee, everybody read her every day at the Daily Kos. She writes under the handle Annie Lee, and we'll put her links in the chat room. Thank you. Great job. And Professor Jonathan Bick, we'll see you at Office Hours, teaching Star Trek and the Twilight Zone tomorrow and Saturday. Joe in Norway, look at, look at what you did with a microwave oven. What did you do? Professor K, look at this. This is, this is a microwave. That's disgusting. I can't look at that. <laughs> it can be done. In it Belgium. Can be done. It's, he's in Belgium. <laughs> what I we, did have lot, was... we have a lot of Belgians in Green Bay. Do you really? Yeah. It actually was a settlement area for Belgians. Yeah. Little Walloon, I believe it's called. Uh... Uh, yeah. Let's get some Walloon cuisine, I believe. And we go to Little Walloon. The late late harvest uh, meal here. I made a puree of uh, three different mm-hmm. greens, amaranth, uh, mangold, or shard, and uh, sorrel, which is very sour. I, my, I steamed in a, a mushroom broth, uh, cabbage, overgrown zucchini, potatoes and sunchokes. And then I blistered the tomatoes, set them all around. I made a green tomato, a red onion and horseradish. We had horseradish from the garden. Everything's from Falco's garden. And we've got nasturtiums here for garnish and the drizzle of olive oil. And who's going to eat that? So it looks like this will be Falco's breakfast. Wow. What a great guest. What a perfect guest. Give Falco our love. God, that looks great. You give me a give me a sofa, I'll make dinner. <laughs> That's beautiful. In Belgium. That's amazing. Now when do you leave Belgium? Um, I'm not sure. I'm booking my flight tonight, so we'll see. Maybe a week or week and a half. Fantastic. Great job, as always. Thank you, Joe. See you this weekend. Yes, thank you. Time for Minsky and Kay. Professor Harvey J.K. is the author of FDR and Democracy and the aforementioned British Marxist historians, Alan Minsky, executive director of Progressive Democrats of America. And Professor Kay, do you remember Space Force Donald Trump created a brand new military branch. Oh, yes. I haven't thought of that in a, in a, in a few years, I bet. Sure. And, and they have their own song now. Have you heard it? <laughs> no. <laughs> they have their own motto, Semper uh-huh. Sutro, which means gangsters for capitalism and zero gravity. 
That really is their, it's Semper Sutro. I would assume that would be, what, Latin? And uh, uh, means always. Yeah. So w- would you like to hear their new song? This is real. This I, I is, actually would love to hear the song, yes. They, they have a, this is from the Air Force. They're a branch, Space Force is a branch of the Air Force. And they, this is their new official song that came out this week. That's not a put on. Holy fuck. Yeah. That's not like from the Cultural Revolution. That's not Stalin. That is America. Space Force. You know, if you, if you play it backwards, it's the um, Minsky K theme song. <laughs> I don't want to tell <laughs> This is... We're, this is the Trump legacy that will live on... For decades to come to protect uh, you know wait a minute wait a minute so the wall is is the wall still being built i think so yeah and the space force now exists yes god you know i saw him with hannity last night and i thought i wish i had like one percent of his gall like just it's it's amazing. The, yeah. the, nothing you he's in literally the definition of indefatigable. Yeah, you're right. I it, it's astounding. Like I would yeah. be curled up in a ball. I'm going to prison. They're going to get me. They found out right. about me. I'm an imposter. He's just out there going. I just you know waved my hands over the files and declassified them, and. There's a disclaimer. Well, wait, you know, you, you heard, was it really the case that he said the reason they they had uh, invaded uh, Mar-a-Lago was to look for Hillary's emails? Yes. This guy's... I, <laughs> uh, oh, God. Oh, my God. They will well, wait a second. You know, it's interesting. Apparently, the polls in certain places show DeSantis now leads him in... Uh, popularity among the Republicans. And then DeSantis is is clearly as wild as he is. Yep. Is Dan is Dan is Dan working your show? Dan Frankenberger? Yeah. Yes. Okay, because I, I I thought I sent him the video of of uh of DeSantis explaining the human trafficking from Texas. Oh did you have you seen that video? Uh, no. Uh, oh. What is it? Can you? I I can't. I don't. I know. I can't give it. I can't do it justice. It, it's short. When he was asked about to explain what what he was doing using Florida tax dollars in Texas to recruit Venezuelan refugees, immigrants, onto flights that then took them to Martha's Vineyard. But 
Dan doesn't have it. We, we don't have the clip, no. Well, that's too bad. Is it possible it's being paid for by Republican donors? Or do we know for a fact it's coming out? No, it's it, it's, it didn't deny that it was state dollars. I mean, I'll give you the... We've, well, we've fallen so far, because in the 1980s, if that had been the narrative, there would have been a good load of cocaine dropped on the vineyard, is yeah. all I can say. Now, none of that's being delivered. Nothing. So. Just... Political theme. No, but seriously, then I should since since we're not going to get the video, which is unfortunate. hang on, Rodrigo might have it. Keep talking. So basically, what he says is that I I, I can't possibly explain any ver, any ver, I can't accord yes, any. Here, here, here. I've got, we've got it. Thank you, Rodrigo. Here we go. Yeah, is a CRT is, version of history. For example, the 1619 Project is a CRT is the other, version of this history. Is not the same it's oh, this is not supported the by the one. New York. Sorry. This is another one. Okay. Uh, That's another one that would have been worth. <laughs> no, so he, he says that when when these folks are asked in uh, Texas, when they've come across where the, what state they want, they're looking to go to, Florida is, is the response 30% of the time. And that... But they're not coming in ways that they can be easily stopped. They're coming in cars. He said in onesies and twoesies. Uh, that's his that's words. So the idea was to basically head it off, you might say. I mean, the whole thing is utterly, I mean, it's, utter, it's like throw crap at the wall and see if it, if it sticks. All right, yeah. now you're, you're a history professor. Well, you know, I think I think one of the things too about this, DeSantis, sorry, David, we'll be back in a second, is don't forget a, a component part of Trump's ascent was being absurd enough to be entertaining enough to constantly get coverage. Right. And yeah. that seems like some something that's going on with DeSantis right now in his playbook. Yeah, and that's a good point. Excellent point. You're right. Right. Well, you're a historian, and apparently Donald Trump is a historian. Here he is on Hannity. I'll play the clip of him talking about the virus. The vaccines were supposed to take anywhere from five to 12 years. And if you look at throughout the world, I would be willing to bet we save 75 million people. Because in 1917, where you had a very serious virus flu, mm -hmm. uh, as you know, hundred million people died, probably ended World War I. A lot of people Spanish don't know. All the soldiers got sick. Yeah. I mean, it probably Went ended World years. War I. I don't know if you've ever years. heard that. It, was, it yeah. sort of put an end to the war because all the soldiers from both sides got sick. But hmm. So when they were stabbed in the back, it was a needle, a, a vaccine? What, so is that true, Professor Hussein? That well, I thought it was 19... I thought it was... If, yeah. if he's here, I, yeah. I thought it was 1918. 1918. Of course. Not 1917 for a start. Right. Um, they, they came home with the virus. But, but in the vein of, of outstanding historians, Rodrigo's video may actually be worth show, okay. now, now broadcasting. Okay, so what... I, I, I think that's wrong because it mainly hit on the, our, our, the Allies' side of the lines on the Western Front. The Eastern Front was shut down by then because of the Russian Revolution, right? And um, and so I don't think it hit the Germans that badly. I could be mistaken. I that I can't. I can't. Well, they, there is. A, but it, what, he's wrong. There is a theory that it was. But German there was, warfare. It was going on during the end of the last year of the war. It did. It oh, did was? start. 
1918 was the last year of the war. 1917 was not. There is a rumor that it may have come from uh, germ warfare. I think I'm not making this up. I think it was from Belgium. There's like some conspiracy theory. Is that any link to what uh, was being? I'm just. I don't know. I don't know what Falco, what he was doing during World War. Like Belgian ale, if that helps. Okay. The general general theory is it came from Kansas, actually. Right, but that's been. But they brought it from a military base in Kansas. That a Chinese settlement in Kansas. Well, it was actually a military. No, that that was a stupid remark. I'm sorry, but that's because remember everything is sort of emanating. Right. Right. But they, they say the military may have brought it back from Kansas. Here is, speaking of stupid remarks, Ron DeSantis. For example, the 1619 Project is a CRT version of history. It's uh, supported by the New York Times. They want to teach our kids that the American Revolution was fought to protect slavery. And that's false. We know why the American Revolution was fought. They wrote pamphlets. We saw them dump tea into the Boston Harbor. We saw them meet in Philadelphia. And we have the records of why they revolted against King George III. And so it was the American Revolution that caused people to question slavery. No one had questioned it before we decided as Americans that we are endowed by our creator with unalienable rights and that we are all created equal. Then that birth abolition movements. So you can't teach history that's being used to pursue an ideological agenda. You can't teach uh, that the foundations of our country uh, were somehow evil. Our, our, for example, the 16th. Professor K. Well, let's put it this way. I do not subscribe to the 1619 rendition of American history. However, however, to claim that the American Revolution, which it, and which, by the way, did actually in, in, inspire and instigate um, abolitionist movements, to, to claim that nothing ill came out of the revolution. I mean, to portray it the way he's trying to portray it, it's like, you know, it, it's 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 not history either, basically. Slavery was written into our constitution. Well, not 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 the word slavery, but it was it's there. Yes. Well, I mean, think, I think in the constitution they said we're going to hold off. The slave trade will be legal until what eighteen twenty, I believe. Mm, something like that. Yeah, which was written into the constitution, and of course, yeah. black people were counted as three fifths. Yeah. Right. So for, for for electoral representation purposes. Right. So right. but the sixteen nineteen project it just has it it just has it wrong. Okay. In what way? Well the American Revolution did actually launch abolitionism in many ways. That's it's it's like it's not the first time people question slavery, but it did actually it I mean all the histor- that's a fairly obvious historical reality. But to say that I mean, what he did is this: he 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 then projects, unal- you know, the unalienable rights without then acknowledging the degree to which slavery persisted and expanded in the South as a consequence of the domestic slave trade. Okay, that kind of. Stuff. I mean, it's just it's as unba- it's as unbalanced or imbalanced as the sixteen nineteen. There were in- people in- who wanted to get rid of slavery during the Constitutional Convention. It was brought up. It was, it was brought up during the entire revolutionary period, and right so, through the early years. But Yeah, absolutely. But, but they needed the, the Southern 
states, the southern colonies. Yeah, well, yeah, right, the southern states. But by the constitutional moment, it was they were southern states. Right, right. Alan, your thoughts on that? I was just actually, um, I, by the way, I'm in, in upstate New York, David, I'm visiting my mom, uh, and um, who's been, you know, struggling after having had COVID. Um, but she's doing okay right now. And, yeah, to give um, her my best. and I travel and I got very, very little sleep. And I, I was on a flight today, and I had the recent edition of the New York Review of Books. And there's an interesting article about the divide between the red states and the blue states, how severe it is. And they just start, you know, the, 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 there are two authors, I can't remember their names off the top of my head. I mean, they have the article right over there. But um, I, you know, this, this is, I, you know, I, I was a little, I thought Harvey and I have a bit of a rejoinder to an article like that, because, I mean, yes, the divide between red state America, blue state America, and red America and blue America is very sharp. It's very distinct. You can look at its cultural delineations and its roots in the Confederacy, its roots in the very divide that you guys are talking about inside American history. And, um, uh, you know, and, and you know, obviously the divide going back, if it's just, you know, propagated white men who are debating it at that point, it's, it's obviously in a very different historical phase now than it was then. But um, uh, I think the rejoinder to all of this is, yeah, all of that's true about the divide and the cultural differences and the, the grounding of it in a concept of a, like a Christian nation and a Christian culture too, uh, and conservative Christianity uh, in red America. But if you don't address the economic decline of red America and red state America, uh, when, you know, obviously for all the wealth inequality and balances on the two coasts, these are absolutely booming economies in terms of wealth generation compared to the middle parts of the country. And relative to the wealth generation in the middle part of the country, say, in the, for the, a, a hundred years before Ronald Reagan was president, the divide is profound. And so if you don't go about it and raise, there, what, what other hope is there for resolving this and you know, actually building America into what it can be as the most diverse uh, nation now in the history of humanity? Um, and you know, is there such a hardcore grip on red state white Americans that is so unequivocally racist that if they did start to be prosperous societies, it wouldn't mitigate this divide. I think it would mitigate the divide. And, uh, and in any way, it strikes me as the only thing that really can be used to address it. I think we saw Sanders make a lot of headway in red state America with his economic message in 2016. I think if the left is serious about being a left, it's possible to return to it. Again, I think that's what Harvey and Harvey and Mike's project is about around the 21st century economic bill of rights. Um, but, um, you know, I mean, and, and obviously you guys are having a very substantive argument, conversation off of what DeSantis says around the 1619 project and CRT. Um, but, and, you know, these are live issues, but they're live issues because, um, uh, which are very exacerbated by the economic disparities within the country. And distractions from the economic disparities. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it, it just these it's almost cliche. And you would think. Red America would get hip to it, but people get turned on by hatred, don't they, Professor K? When that's when that's when that's the food available, I guess that's that's what you eat. <laughs> 
that's the red meat that they're giving yeah. the uh, how is the economic bill of rights? Well, actually, you know, and the thing, too, about me and Harvey, you know, Harvey's from, has lived in Green Bay now for um, um, much of his adulthood. Obviously, he's, he's not from there originally, but I'm from St. Louis, so we're from the Midwest. And, um, you know, I, I just, um, I obviously knew a lot of, when, when, when I was in St. Louis as a kid, it was a very heavily Democratic town, and the white working class was heavily Democratic. And they were Union Democrats. They also were for the Civil Rights Movement, you know? At least the the German uh, the people not 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 necessarily the WASP elite in St. Louis they would have probably been against the civil rights movement but the 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 plurality of whites in St. Louis were of German and Central European descent and they had a strong left tradition and they were for the civil rights movement traditionally and I imagine now most of their offspring who stayed in the Midwest voted for Trump but I did not find these to be bad people when I was growing up and there's no doubt there was a horrid race divide. It was a horribly racist metropolitan area, um, structurally, especially. But um, it's now, I think, uh, the politics have moved very much to the right. I don't think these guys, though, are economically that far on the right. right. You know, did we talk last week? I, I'm My days are a bit off right now. Well, they're always off these days, actually. But um, did we talk last night? Last We did talk last week about the 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 race here in Wisconsin, right? Between Barnes and Johnson. Go ahead. We have some new polling on it. So Yeah. What new polling do you have? Do you have something newer than I, than uh, I was that, that it's getting closer than, than it should. Yeah, no, it's he there, last week he lost like nine he lost nine points, Barnes. He just it was like his campaign was collapsing. Did I, did we talk about the fact that Johnson and the Republicans and the right wing basically have been trying to portray him as as a radical, okay, as a radical, Fund defund the police. the police, especially, okay, and the fact is that he, instead of responding by trying to ignore it and go beyond it, his response has been to run campaign ads in which he starts off by referring specifically to the lies against it, you know, you know that he's being accused of, the stories that he's being accused of. And then goes on to deny them. Right. So, you know, I want people to realize that if he loses, it's not it's not because of racism. So they, these Democrats just run terrible campaigns. OK, and then now to come back to the Economic Bill of Rights question, the fact is that it's stalled right now. The, the, the so-called progressives have not picked it up. OK. I have no idea what the progressives look. The Democrats have no story, but neither do the progressives. Okay, I mean, all as far as I'm concerned, the squad and all the others who came in, okay, never cultivated a story, never projected any kind of vision. Right? It was like issue by issue. So, as the second article in the series that we've developed offers, almost all of the key points of any progressive agenda are already in the form of bills presented. On the other hand, most Americans have no idea of that. They have no imagination about it, no consciousness of it, because there's no story, no 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 vision, which is one of the things, in essence, we were trying to provide by way of the Economic Bill of Rights. So it's not going to happen this season, that's for sure. Right, right. Majority of Republican voters want to make Christianity the official religion. 
In that's a that's a a, a, a poll you, yep. you you've got there. Yep. In my lifetime, throughout American history has been has been probably even worse than uh, if there had been polling at certain points in American history. We know it would have been much worse, really, than what we have today. And by the way, oh, don't yeah. under never un, never never discount whatever sins and and faults the founders had. They made it sure it was not a Christian nation. Great right. job there, actually. They okay. did a great job. This, that, that may be one of the greatest contributions of the founding generation, that, right. they, that generation. Wrote, they wrote a godless constitution. Yeah, right. Godless. Brilliantly so, right. Brilliantly so in reaction to the extreme Christianity of 50 years earlier and earlier than that. And that snapped back again in what's the first great Christian revival is like the 1820s or 18 teens. Yeah, the Second Great Awakening, they call it. Yeah. Right? And in that phase, boy, if you pulled the American people, it would have been ugly. And we're, yeah. we, we, right. we only exist as a country we do because that generation of the founding fathers were very wise to this. And it isn't just in the Bill of Rights. It's in the Constitution. Look, there's no, there's no religious oaths to be taken, no, you know, tests of, for, for, for running for office. I mean, it's, Godless, absolutely godless. Speaking of godless, Mitch McConnell is all in on uh, shipping the migrants to blue states, and he's given up on Blake Masters in Arizona, but he's all in on Herschel Walker. And Herschel Walker is going to debate... Raphael Warnick, the current senator from Georgia, in October. This race is tightening in Georgia. This should be a blowout. How do you explain that? I I cannot. I mean, I've tried to avoid the word idiocy as much as I can. Right. But these Republican candidates, in in his he's a prime example, are just idiots. And I I. Look, I think that a lot of this has to do with the fact that most Americans for too many years have just literally turned off. They just literally turned off. Okay. And they've turned off because there was nothing offered for all of these years. I mean, decade upon decade, nothing was offered and nothing was pursued and nothing was developed. And when it was developed, look at the mess it became. Obamacare is a mess. Okay. I mean, so 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 Americans now. I think Alan hit the hit the nail on the head when he talked about entertainment. They're like Punch and Judy shows. Yeah, I mean, I think I think right now in in Georgia, the the divide between the two parties is about as pronounced as it can be anywhere in the country. And um, uh, you know, Herschel Walker was the most celebrated college football player in the history of the state. So. Um, you know, it's really hard to imagine, a la Donald Trump, what he could do to not get 45 percent of the vote in a, in a midterm election year. Uh, and that's a pretty strong base to get to. You know, by the way, there, there, again, there are other candidates on the general election ballot there that make a runoff not unlikely. So um, there's some libertarian, I think, that's going to pull some votes. And um, I forget who else is on the ballot. But remember, they had runoffs and they had runoffs because you don't have a runoff in Georgia if you get to 50 percent. Right. So there are these third and fourth party candidates who are on the ballot that will pull some votes. Well, um, we've been doing we're about five and a half hours into the show. We have not talked about Donald Trump that much. This is the first segment where we talked about him. 
your thoughts on Letitia James, the attorney general, suing Donald Trump for fraud and the family, the three the three kids sued for fraud. Well, we all know the fraud. Yeah. OK, but so finally, finally, Letitia James put together the, the evidence very effectively from a whole variety of, of sources and states. And, uh, you know, at least she's got the the cojones that Merrick Garland has yet yet to show. Now, you're you're a a professor. Retired, Bri- but a brilliant, brilliant man. Alan Minsky, one of the most brilliant people I've ever met in my life. Bill Barr was attorney general twice. OK, and I saw him on Fox News saying Letitia James, the attorney general for New York State, doesn't have a case. And she obviously doesn't believe she has a case. That's why she didn't file criminal charges against Trump. She only filed civil. And then I read she's not authorized in this purview to file criminal charges against Donald Trump. Federal government can file the criminal charges. So how did the former attorney general not know that, and you did. Did he go to Yale Law School? Probably, yep. Yeah, we got all the good people. <laughs> How is it possible that the Attorney General doesn't know what a professor of history knew about jurisdiction? I don't know. Just, I, I, um, found, I found um, it shocking. Um, it, it, Nancy Madison, who I don't know Nancy Madison, but she wrote in the chat just now something. It goes back to Herschel Walker. We'll go back to Trump in a second. She wrote, Herschel Walker doesn't need to be intelligent for Republicans and their voters because he's a reliable vote. And they aren't interested in governance. Unfortunately, on that last phrase that Nancy says, that's the opposite of what's true. They are interested in governance and they govern. Uh, They govern actually rather uh, effectively for the Chamber of Commerce and seeking the ends they uh, achieve. And Mitch McConnell has achieved for them. Uh, and that's the thing. They get reliable votes. They're in lockstep. And that's how they govern. Yeah. So, and they destroy and they destroy Democratic government as they do so. Right. And and the fact is that the Democratic Party has refused, not failed, has refused for too long to make democracy the question and to make how you save democracy the possibility. OK, I mean, it's everybody knows how to save democracy and the Democrats could care less. Okay, all you have to do is look at Schumer's deals on the side and Schumer's family connections. And, you know, it's just like all these folks, they have too much at stake in the status quo. Yeah, by the way, the side deal thing, the way it's playing out, it's the lead lead article on The Guardian right now. In the U.S. version of The Guardian, not getting a lot of. Uh, coverage elsewhere, but it's <laughs> the Guardian's doing some decent reporting on it, and it's it's pretty stunning to see what Chuck is doing. I mean, this is this is a lot like um, what happened in the Clinton administrations with Glass Steagall and NAFTA and the Communications Act and and even the Crime Bill, because when the center left party capitulates to the agenda of the right wing, they can get anything passed that the right wing has not been able to pass. Explain the side deal. Is this the mansion side deal? 
Yeah. So the, so the fossil fuel industry has wanted nothing more than to have what's called permit, permitting reform. That is how they stop the pipelines, which is not to be able to get permits because there's spills, there's leaks, there's environmental damage, and a whole bunch of regulations from the Clean Water Act, um, NEPA, I always forget the first word in that acronym, but also the Environmental Protection, uh, the EPA, the Clean Water Act, and a few other elements of the way these things are reviewed. What, is, what are you doing how with these your things have been stopped? You're, you're making so, noise. So it takes the Democrats to give them their wish list, not the Republicans. And that's what's happening right now. Every single one of those environmental measures, maybe one somewhere out there was passed by a Republican politician. No, these are all done through community activism, grassroots operations, and finally persuading Democratic politicians to codify these environmental regulations. And it takes the Democratic Party with Manchin and Schumer in the most cynical manner right now to undermine these environmental yeah, regulations. Yeah, Lever News, you know, the David Sirota operation mm-hmm. reported, Senate Democrats' new bill declares that a massive fossil fuel pipeline will reduce carbon emissions and the bill could shield the project immunity from any judicial review. The company's execs are the number two donor to Chuck Schumer. Wow. Wow. What a guy. What a guy. You got it. Hey. All right. Should we call it a night? On that <laughs> note? That one. On that let's, note. let's end yeah. on that. Wow. Just think, you and you and Alan are in the same time zone tonight. He well, we're too in the same state. To... We're in Chucky State. You how, know, long in Chucky in, state. how long are you in uh, Chuck Schumer's neck of the woods? But actually, I have to tell you, I will almost certainly miss next week's show because I will be on an airplane at that point next week. I'm Thursday to Thursday on this trip. It's all just to be up with my mom. However, my sister is going to be going to Italy later. She lives near here. And when she goes, then I'll come back here for a longer stay and I'll, I'll come down and see you, David. OK, or maybe I'll come yeah. up uh, and see you. Uh, let me know anytime. Uh, you know, of course, love to see you. Yeah. How far away are you from New York City? Rhinebeck. So it's a, it, it is, I could have picked somebody up in Poughkeepsie, which is the end of the Metro. And North then line. you could stop at the FDR. Yes. Home right. and How far are you from and Hyde Park? The New Deal exhibit. I'm sorry, what? You could go up to, get off at Poughkeepsie. He'll come down to Poughkeepsie to pick you up. You could then stop at the FDR Home and Library in Hyde Park, which is between Poughkeepsie and Rhinebeck. Okay. The and, one city between Poughkeepsie and Rhinebeck, the one town. Yeah. And what's the new yeah. exhibit? No, it's not new, but the, they refashioned the, the the museum there as a real history of the New Deal. It's really it's really well done. Well, you, you know that my parents, whenever there was a, a tragedy, whenever somebody died, we would go to Hyde Park. That This is since I was a baby. My parents would take us to Hyde Park. Just if there was, for whatever reason, they loved Roosevelt. So I took my daughter to Hyde Park about three years ago. And I go, what's going on? I hadn't been there in decades. And I, they wouldn't let me. They had a big visitor center. And I yeah. said, I, I, why can't I just go into the house? And they said, well, people were stealing things. People were going. Yep. People were go. They were going in. This was, I guess, twenty years ago. People were going into the house as tourists and reaching over and taking things off 
Roosevelt's desk. Can you they believe it? They've roped it off differently now, I would assume. Jeez. Yeah, you can't just wander around there without anybody. You have to go on a tour, a guided tour. Well, yeah, no, that's true. You have, if you go in the house, you go on a tour. That's all But true. when I was a kid, you could just go around. Yeah, but you can go into the, into the museum. There's, there's a number of buildings there. There are lots of things you can do without... Without that, look. If I knew you were going to go, I'll call my friends at the at the at the home at the at Hyde Park and get you a. Can I stay overnight there in the house? <laughs> Franklin's bed. Um, Always ask the, um, for more. Hey, I, I should say too. Um, um, uh, again, I remember I had that busy week last weekend, and um, we had Ralph Nader on. Uh, huge turnout and a great response Good. to Ralph. Of course. Uh, but then this, but this Sunday on the PDA town hall, we have Jamie McLeod Skinner, and she is um, the only real um, progressive uh, candidate who is up for a, to try to win a seat as a first-time congressperson in a swing district. There's there are two others, but she's by far the closest to the race. Where is she going to be? Where is she running? Oregon fifth. Oregon sixth. Oh yeah, is, right, right. Of course, Oregon right. sixth I, is, is right. favorable for the Democrats. It's sort of like swing state contingent. Jamie is right in the heart of the swing districts. And so how do people sign up for this? Um, you just got to go to um, sign up at pdamerica.org as a member or um, or email at info at pdamerica.org. Right. Rashida Talib, do you love her? Of course, yes, she's great. And, and, and Helica Duane is somebody put in the in the chat. And I, I like Angelica a lot, and hopefully we can win that. Now, that's not a swing district. It's a very close race, but that's two Democrats running against each other. She's challenging an incumbent, and Angelica is down in the neighborhood adjacent to where I live. Fantastic. Um, very deep blue part of the country. Fantastic. Uh, yeah, Rashida Tlaib's the greatest. She's fantastic. She had a great week this week. She's fearless. She took on Would Jamie you? Dimon and... Mm-hmm. Uh, I w- I don't want to get into the stuff on Israel tonight. I already discussed it earlier on in the show, but the, the, anyway. Well, Jamie Dimon, you know, I always say about the, about the democratic party that uh, what we're looking to do is a friendly takeover with some hostile expulsions. And the first name that comes to mind is somebody I'd like to expel from the democratic party is Jamie Dimon, right? Robert Rubin, Larry Summers, all these guys got to get kicked out of the party, get a good, good working class based party going in. First, yep. Rashida's great for that. Yep. Professor Harvey J.K., the British Marxist historians, out in one week. One week. That's right. Yeah, but I will tell people, I know it. I, all I can tell you is on Twitter, somebody had a picture and said they got their book already. And it wasn't one of the ones the publicists sent out. And, and I said, where did you get that? And they said, the Amazon is already delivering. So I'm not telling it to anyone to go to Amazon, but it's fascinating the way Amazon sets its own rules. What's wrong with Amazon? What do you have against Amazon? They create jobs. What is that? <laughs> what? I, that's me supporting Amazon. Oh, that's that's you. That's you. Just burp it out already. Come on. I'm just saying that Jeff Bezos is a good man. And how else can people buy your book? How else? 
Yeah, Red Emma's, the bookstore. Red if you're in New York, you, or there's, there's uh, Destroy Red Emma. Mally Jackson. Go straight on to Zero Books website. Zero Books. I mean, all every every bookseller will is, is Powell's out in Portland, Oregon. Online, go go to them. I'm buying Powell books. Readily available. I'm Jeff Bezos. I'm buying RVJK. You're now my puppet. Wow, <laughs> Jeff Bezos is mean. Don't ever do that again while I'm on with you. <laughs> Why is that creepy? <laughs> Very. I'm gonna um, I'm gonna not be able to fall asleep tonight. <laughs> that's Jeff Bezos. That, Al- that thought alone is enough. I know. Alan Minsky, <laughs> Progressive Democrats of America. Uh, maybe I'll see you Sunday for the turnout. Yep. Great job. Yep. If Alan's not going to be here next Thursday, let's come up with something silly to talk about. Let's well, let's talk about British Mar- British Marxist historians. Let's do a chapter. Okay. Okay. Give me a chapter to read. And we'll- uh, let, 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 yeah, tell you what, read the prefaces, okay, and in the introduction, and just ask me how it is that I bothered to, to, I was a Latin Americanist. How did I end up writing the book that people know me for from Australia to Johannesburg? Look at a jet-lagged Alan Minsky. Look at you. Now, when you're back in your mom's house, do you feel, is there, do you feel like a child? Do you feel? Yeah, a little bit. Um, But, you know, I'm actually behind me. It's sort of funny that this is all from the year that they lived in England, like Wedgwood, China. And it's sort of funny because, you know, they had a bunch of lefty friends in, um, and in fact, the person who would be like, uh, um, uh, close, closest to the British Marxist historians who was in my dad's orbit would have been the economist Joan Robinson. Oh, Probably would have been that. Um, yeah, um, Cambridge. Yeah, yeah, and uh, he was he was a huge. My dad was a. Um, she was one of the great economists. She may be. She's one of the. She is an economist that I actually referred to in my dissertation. There we go. Yeah, and but the thing is, is all these lefties, and I imagine this is. By the way, there's a there's a pretty significant documentary on Hobbes. Hobbes, um, yeah. Yeah, it, it has. It is actually quite good. Yeah, and it's, it's online. You can find it. I think yeah, it was you can. Done I think you can get it on YouTube. Even what's oh, it, it was done by the London Review of Books, right? Right. Yeah. Amazing. Right. right. Absolutely. Okay. And um and and but this kind of thing, this kind of display, you no matter how left you were, you know, there's a lot of British, you know, intellectual class folks have these like you know, uh, glass cases with wedge yeah. of China. Yeah. And uh, so that that's. That's Actually, it kind of reminds me of my mother-in-law's. Uh, she had, yeah, exactly. As I look at it now, yeah. <laughs> there we go. So that's that's what I think about coming home right now, which uh, in honor of the British Marxist historians and having having lived in England in sixty nine seventy. So. Were you hanging out on Carnaby Street? No, I was a little bit of a young kid. They, they, you know, they were the defending. Um, they had won the World Cup soccer tournament in sixty six. Yes, yeah, now it was being played in Mexico in 1970. So the year that I was there, there was this incredible buildup of enthusiasm for four and five year old boys about the, you know, were, would they defend their World Cup championship? Of course, they've never won another World Cup since then. Yeah, but <laughs> Fantastic. I remember that hype. Yeah. Thank you both. I got to take Chuck Schumer off the screen. Let us now go to thank you all. I'll, thank you, David. Thank you. It's an honor. It really is. Let's go to Mexico, where Rodrigo is 
standing by, and then we have another call after that. Uh, hi, David. Uh, sorry I couldn't get you that other video earlier. Can't find it. It's okay. The other one was good. Why do we not have an obsession with wearing masks? There is no big mask cartel, not a single billionaire thinks, oh, I'm going to make a killing when I convince everyone to not to wear masks. But we do have lots of billionaires who are happy to let us die to keep the economy open. Not only is that how capitalism works, but also every single billionaire can just outspend the U.S. government in advertisements and propaganda whenever they want. The biggest military in the world by far can't afford to invest a proper amount on preventing health crisis. If that doesn't sound right to you, look up the Senate vote of Bernie Sanders trying to move 10% of the Pentagon budget for fighting the pandemic. Alec Karagatsanis, who everyone should follow on Twitter, wrote about a New York Times article by Annie Carney and Stephanie Lai about legislation to increase the size and power of the militarized police surveillance bureaucracy. The NYT told its millions of readers that, quote, civil rights groups, including the NAACP, end quote, were pressing for more police funding to pass Congress. The article does mention that with gas prices going down, the GOP is looking for other reasons to trick people into voting for them. But it mostly blames Pramila Yeyepal and other progressives for blocking this legislation to give cops more money to fight with the ghost of, quote, the GOP is accusing us of being soft on crime, end quote. That's my quote, but anyway. It also mentions all the Democrats in vulnerable districts who are trying to give more money to the police so they can get re-elected. The article now says, two days later, an earlier version of this article misstated the position of civil rights groups on the police funding legislation. The groups are not pressing for passage of the package in its current form. That's at the bottom of the page. Everyone who read the article two days ago, however, can be forgiven for thinking that they shouldn't oppose this legislation from that hero Gottheimer if civil groups are for it. The article also pretends that the Congressional Black Caucus lobbied for more police accountability in the bill which contains no such language. They also didn't speak to a single advocate for the Fondo Police or Prison Abolition about an issue that has held the country in trial for two and a half years. Millions of people who have looked at the numbers and concluded that the solution to police abuse is not more cops. A quick reminder that there were 376 cops at Jubalde, and they waited, waited an hour for backup while a shooter kept killing kids while he waited for the cops to kill him. You heard that right. 376 cops arrived at that school in Jubalde within the hour, some federal, some from other states. And the only reason the standoff ended so quickly is that some Border Patrol, patrol agents who are less scared of Latinos than other branches of law enforcement, decided to go in without permission. You could probably win a civil war in a small country with all the military surplus gear all these cops broke with them. There was a cop who was willing to go in according to his training, but he discovered no one was following him, and the other cops told him to go somewhere else in the school and wait there. 
and the mother who ran in to save her own kid and got out despite the police trying to stop her, is still in trouble with the police. A few months ago, I ranted about an eight-month investigation from beloved anti-bullying advocate Emily Baselon, who somehow never met anyone who could explain to her that she was painting advocates of trans genocide as reasonable people. David Feldman ranted in the last episode about a very balanced expose they did about Linda Sarsour, which I will not read, but probably left out of their accusations about Russian bull farms that Sarsour kept refusing to distance herself from actual anti-Semite Louis Farrakhan. And if you want something, yeah, you that can was mentioned. That better. was mentioned. That was mentioned in the New York Times article. Okay. If you want something, you can do to make things better. Write to the New York Times and tell them to do better, or you won't subscribe anymore. You don't even have to subscribe. Just tell them to do better, or you'll switch to the Washington Post, which has the CIA bet its stories while Jeff Bezos does contract work for the CIA. You can also write to the Washington Post that they need to do better, or you'll switch to the New York Times. This is something everyone can do, even if you don't read either of those papers. They do good work sometimes, and sometimes they both publish articles about how useful it is to have a second kitchen. kitchen sorry. But they also lie often, and you can tell when they're lying unless you already know better than their published articles, which kind of defeats the purpose of reading them. Francesca Fiorentini said on MSNBC that there's only two options for immigration, letting people in or letting them die, and Fox News quoted her accurately on this because they were trying to score points against the Democrats. As someone from the Majority Report community and me were saying, this is the trolley problem, but no one's on the track in front of you. Millions of people are on the alternate track you'd have to go out of your way to switch to, and you can picture the Fox News audience going, what was option two again? A reminder that overpaid advisors keep telling Biden that Putin is going to blink first because they think their stocks will go up when World War III starts. And finally, as I, I wasn't going to say anything about the 7.7 earthquake we had on Monday because it was, quote, only, in quote, a 7.7, but last night we had a 6.8 replica which killed two people. Mm. We get all major earthquakes on the week of September 19. There was a big one on September 19, 1985, which made many affluent families move from Mexico City to Puebla. Thank you. Thank you. And finally, uh, Randall Randall. Randall Randall. Hey, David. Thanks for another great show. How are you? Hey, not bad. I had two questions for you. Number one, is Aaron Berg okay? Yes. I should rebook him on the show. Yeah, I miss him. Yeah, Everybody we haven't else. had too many. We we had, you know, uh, the past three months I've been going on <clears throat> autopilot. And I haven't had comedians on. I don't know why. Uh, but I need to start having some comics on. Uh, so... Yes. We've culti cool. we've we've cultivated a, a community uh and the comedians I, I need to have more comics on. Yeah. 
they're they're not part of this community, so it, it doesn't. Uh, yeah, I will call Aaron. Cool. I look forward to it. Then, yeah. It How was, are things in Pennsylvania? Pennsylvania? How are things? Things looking? are good. Is Josh Shapiro going to win? Uh, I think so, but hey, who knows? We all thought uh, Hillary would win too, and then we woke up that morning. Yeah. Oh boy, I remember that. Thank you, yeah. Randall. Great talking. To hey, you. Uh, yeah. One, one more thing, if I may, uh, David. You've you've told us before about your alter, your your other life as Feldo the Clown, and how uh, you got hired to to ruin parties. Is that correct? Can yes. you can you tell us a a brief story about ruining a party? Uh, you know, this is a long time ago. I do remember. Did I tell you the story? Uh, and I think if you Google the, the San Francisco Chronicle, it's in the San Francisco Chronicle. I did a fundraiser in 1985, dressed as a clown. And I said, uh, they were blowing up abortion clinics. Uh, this was the joke I did. Uh, the message is clear. You better be pro-life or we'll kill you. This was... Back in 1985, when that joke, I'm not, I think I was the first one to write that joke. Uh, you better be pro-life or I'll kill you. And I'm walking off stage and uh, a, a big guy picks me up by the, and I'm in a clown suit. Wow. And throws me up against the wall and says, if you ever make fun of people who are pro-life, I will kill you. If you ever make fun wow. of pro-life people again, I will kill you. And this was in San Francisco. And it was in front of other people. And it got picked up in the San Francisco Chronicle. Here's the thing. I'm, as, as a stand-up, I piss the audience off. I've never been punched. Nobody, when I wore a clown suit, people <laughs> wanted to to punch the clown. I don't know what it was about wearing the clown suit, but people, it's just really creepy. And people, there were a lot of physical altercations. Uh, plus, I was drinking at the time. You shouldn't be drunk in a clown suit. There, there's a good rule of thumb. Don't don't wear a clown suit and, and drink. It's okay to drive in a clown suit, which I used to do. So my gigs which was some of my press. <laughs> Bye, honey, I'm leaving. And I just walk out <laughs> and drive to my gigs <laughs> in a clown suit. Anyway, that's all I can remember. It's late. Thank you, Randall. All right, thanks. Thank you. I want to thank all our guests. Uh, they were tonight. Grace Jackson, the brilliant Lane Hewitt, <clears throat> who was also Sir Arthur Grebe Striebling, and just a great, brilliant, brilliant. There, there are 10 Lane Hewitts. I know this for a fact. There cannot be one. I want to thank Ben Burgess for not showing up. He sent me a note last night, and, and I missed it. So the Hershenfelds, Dr. Philip Hershenfeld, and Ethan Hershenfeld, and everybody go buy this book right now. Today is now. You can buy it on Amazon. There's nothing wrong with shopping on Amazon if you don't mind losing 
your soul. Uh, anyway, today is now. I also recommend this beautiful book, Saving Charlie Parker, written by Mike Steinell. Go buy Saving Charlie Parker, written by Mike Steinell, and uh, pick up this book. Thomas Paine and the Promise of America, written by who? Oh, Harvey J.K. I want to thank the Hershenfelds, Emil Guillermo, the Reverend Barry W. Lynn, the, the professors in Marianne, Professor Marianne Cummings, Professor Jonathan Bick, Professor Ann Lee. Read Professor Ann Lee every day over at the Daily Co's. She writes under the name Annie Lee. I want to thank Joe in Norway for just making it impossible to think straight. Delicious. And thank you, Falco, for providing the industrial kitchen. Thank you to Alan Minsky and, of course, Professor Harvey J.K. Rodrigo. This show is produced by Dan Frankenberger along with Professor Jonathan Bick, Grace Jackson, Andy Brown, Sarah Bush, Joe in Norway, the Invisible Ninja. They do such a great job. And we're meeting again and we're getting back into the, uh, the groove. The, the summer's over. I had a rough, my mother died and I was on autopilot. But uh, it's time to, uh, to get to work. So thank you all. Thank you to the listeners. Thank you to the people who show up in the uh, in both chat rooms. And thank you to the mods. And I had their names uh, in front of me. And I oh, no, I don't have them. I'll, I, I read the names of the mods at the top of the show. All right. I'm going to put this show to, to bed. Uh, anything else? Office hours every Friday starting at 8 o'clock. And uh, sign up for my newsletter, please. I think that covers everything. Subscribe to us wherever you hear podcasts and share this show. It's the only way, only way we can get the word out. I'm David Feldman reminding you to stay strong and protect the weak. The other day there was a knock at the door It was the FBI I said, what you here for? We heard about your song We think it's seditious I said, can we talk later? I'm doing the dishes I said, what's the problem? What's the fuss? They said, we're the FBI, don't you mess with us. We can lock you up. We can put you away. We can make it so you never see the light of day. I said, Feldman made me do it. Feldman made me do it. Feldman made me do it. And that's all there is to it. Feldman made me do it.
Got a text this morning from a former student. It said we heard you on the show. You were not prudent. You said the Edward Professor, is that true? We really expected much better from you. I said, Femme made me do it. Femme made me do it. Femme made me do it. And that's all there is to it. Amazon called it was customer service. They said we need to cut it out. You're beginning to hurt us. You made fun of our boss. You better stop now. If you don't, he'll ship you off to Minden now. I said, Thelma, maybe do it. Thelma, maybe do it. Thelma, maybe do it. And that's all there is to it. I got a letter from the lawyer from No Evil Foods who said we don't like your song or your attitude. It's time now, Professor, to cease and desist. The folks I represent are really pissed. I said, Thelma made me do it. Thelma made me do it. Thelma made me do it. And that's all there is to it. That's right. I Yeah.